Big Finish presents Doctor Who, Watchers, written and read by Matthew Waterhouse, with Nicholas Briggs as the Daleks, for Christopher Hamilton Bidmead. The Doctor and Adric had recently left the planet Traken, and though they were already unimaginably distant from it, the incidents and people remained in the forefront of the boy's mind. His thoughts kept returning to the young princess in purple velvet. I was sorry to have to say goodbye to her, he said. She's such a nice girl. The Doctor recognised the self-conscious understatement. He smiled gently. Saying goodbye. You'll get used to it, he said. You'll have to. Every hello ends in a goodbye. That's what being a traveller means. Goodbye Romana. Goodbye Nyssa. That's what being a traveller means. Adric glanced for a moment at the man in whose ship he had stowed away. He felt like the most fortunate boy in the universe. Did anyone anywhere live a more interesting life than his? Adric was the latest of a number of friends across the centuries who had spent a portion of their lives travelling with the Doctor. Their understanding of this extraordinary being could, of course, only be partial. The jungle girl Leela thought he was addicted to danger, the thrill of the chase, but this might have been because Leela herself was. The human journalist Sarah Jane Smith understood him as at heart an explorer rather than an adventurer. Once he had remarked that it would be nice one day to find some unpopulated planet with fabulous flora which he could quietly study for a few hundred years, far from so-called advanced life. The time lady Romana, whom Adric too had known, took a midpoint view. Risk and acts of heroism burnished what she saw as his considerable ego, but she had noticed that he was often embarrassed by the round of thanks from a people he had helped, always wanting to make a quick getaway. And for Adric, so young, the sheer excitement of the universe, the endless varieties, the richness of its flavours, these, shown him by the Doctor, were much of the thrill. But also the Doctor's mind, the massive intelligence. His home planet Alzarius had merely bored him. There had been the beauty of mathematics, of course, and for him it was beautiful. It was poetry and music. But otherwise there had been so little stimulus. Adric loved the impenetrable intelligence which made his own mind leap and dance. Goodbye to the Keeper. Adric pressed his lips together wryly. Goodbye to the Master. So it's not all bad. Ah, cried the Doctor, holding up a warning finger. That may not be a goodbye. That may be an au revoir. It's always the bad pennies that have a habit of turning up. Let's hope not for a good while, said Adric with a small nervous laugh. 
The time rotor rose and fell and flashed and groaned as the TARDIS hurried them onward down the time-space corridor. Hurried? Onward? A good while, he had said. It struck him how often he thought in terms of time, scarcely aware of it. Was hurry, was a good while, was a short while, was onward a viable concept when he and the Doctor were, as he had been led to believe, outside time? Well, they were inside and outside time all at once. If they never stepped out of the TARDIS again, they would still be young and old. Outside time, time of a kind, still passed. It was one of the paradoxes. The Doctor could enter a certain time period, then, later on, re-enter at an earlier one. Yet the Doctor would be older. What was before in the time stream would be after to him. On the one hand, there was the objective flow of time, and on the other, the subjective time through which their own bodies and perceptions lived. These two paths crossed and recrossed in a complex web. In all this uncertainty, one thing was certain. The Doctor's severely battered time machine was headed for a destination which could not be known or guessed at. Where to now? Adric wondered, and found he had said it. But he didn't expect an answer. The dials on the console that once would have given one had long since ceased to function. The boy sighed lightly. Goodbye, Elzarius. Goodbye, E-Space. Unconsciously, he touched the cool metal of the gold-edged blue star pinned to his yellow cotton top. He looked down at the reed belt at his waist. He thought, but did not say, Goodbye, Vash. Alzarius, remarked the doctor, you miss it already. Not at all. How could anyone who has this, he patted the console, want that? It had seemed flat and banal. But safer. This is full of risk. Safer. Adric spat the word. There was a sudden slight pop in his ears. The time rotor began to shake and rattle. The groan of the engines to grow louder. What's happening? The doctor's adjustment from relaxed conversation to action was instantaneous. I haven't the faintest idea. He pressed buttons in the way of a person trying things randomly. The groans were yet louder now, and shriller. Adric's ears ached. The doctor opened the scanner screen, then pulled his fingers sharply from the console. Ow! Boyishly investigative, Adric put a fingertip on the console. It stung. Oh! You could fry an egg on that, though it might gum up the works. The scanner showed at its edges a vista of dark space interspersed with swirls of galaxies of various sizes and brightnesses. But at the centre was a patch of the deepest black. A black hole, said Adrian. The phantasmic groans were ever louder. A black hole! Now that is rather worrying. The TARDIS is designed to automatically steer clear of black holes. Was the Doctor disoriented? even frightened. The screen showed stars being repelled from the dark mass. In fact, the TARDIS was moving ever closer, ever faster to that black nothingness. 
we're being pulled towards it. Which should not happen. Cannot happen. The doctor hit more buttons. Ow! Nearly too hot to touch. We must get out of this gravitational pull. Force a materialization. A long way away. Anywhere. We reached for a lever. We'd be better off in the heart of a living star than a dead one. Not that a living star would be pleasant either. Heightened groans filled the room. All other senses were smothered. All the material of the universe might have been made of sound. Adric pressed his palms against his ears. A nanosecond of underwater sensation, then searing pain. Bullets of sound shot into his skull. Ah! The doctor threw up his hands. Smoke curled from the console. The screen showed blackness. The universe might have gone blind. A black hole is so dense, no matter can survive it. We'll be crushed to nothing. The boy's shouted remark came like a question. Goodbye, Doctor. There were few more beautiful places on the planet Earth than Paris, France, in the middle of the 22nd century. Who wouldn't want to walk its boulevards, see its fabulous art galleries, drink its wines and eat its breads, look down from that splendid 19th century tower? Have you ever been up to the top at dusk with a lover? In many respects, the city was just as it had been for centuries. No new building had been permitted, so architecturally, it was as it had always been. It was somewhat quieter. Private transport was banned in the centre. Driverless autobuses and taxis moved silently. Underground, the supermetro sped passengers to the Banwi Nouveau. If you are extraordinarily lucky, you might call this city home, as Marcel Chowdhury and Leon Paul Orpik did. They shared a little studio flat at the foot of Montmartre, a great place to be when you are 19 and in love, and then 22 and still in love, and the world seems good and the future is full of hope. Marcel had a day job in a theatre box office, but his ambition was to be a novelist. He'd already sold several stories to literary journals and a number of excellent articles, Things were going well. The Nouveau Revue de Trois-Mondes had included Marcel in a feature on Ten Talents to Watch. Leon Paul worked part-time as a waiter in an independent gourmet burger restaurant on the hill a few hundred metres from their flat while completing his accountancy studies. But serpents of evil can slither out from anywhere. Underground, from the sea, from beyond the solar system. Paris had seen evil before. 225 years earlier, for example, it had been occupied by an invading force from just across a river. This one came on a warm spring Tuesday. This one was an invasion from deep space.
Destruction is easy. Centuries of development, of art and architecture and gardens and fountains and squares can be shattered in the click of a finger. People were seated outside cafes drinking espressos and eating pastries and checking their itineraries until a horizontal ray seared their insides and all their plans were nothing. A charming and popular old waiter, what is called a fixture, with a neat moustache and a lifetime of dignity, carried the same cheese omelette to the same suited customer at the same street-side table as on hundreds of other mornings when he was cut down. The omelette sizzled from the extra heat and fell to the ground in a flat yellow splatter. A young woman reading news on her phone on a bench in the Elysee Gardens felt a sudden intense burning in her stomach. She fell across the bench. Her phone hit the ground just as a red stripe ran across the screen, a banner headline, breaking news. News moved fast in the 22nd century, but not fast enough for this unfortunate person. Marcel was on his way to his day job at the theatre. He was dressed casually in a denim jacket over a T-shirt and the cool new look of jeans torn at the knee. After a decade when shiny leather kilts had been all the rage among the young, a retro fashion of 160 years earlier had made its way back, as they do. Marcel's head was full of ideas for his next piece, an appreciation of Les Champs Magnétiques. A man reading a guidebook walked right into him and apologised. A tall woman in African robes, orange and yellow stripes and an orange and yellow headdress which added to her already considerable height, glided down a side street. Two white men in berets argued at the top of the metro steps. An explosion threw Marcel to the ground. This was terrific luck, because looking up he saw other pedestrians fall downwards a second after him. Mechanically, he reached into his pocket for his phone. Later, he would wonder why. He supposed to call Leon Hall. Another explosion blew it from his hand. He felt a sting at his elbow. A burn hole exposed his skin. Time moved slowly as jelly. Then a voice shouted at no one in particular, Mon Dieu! Marcel turned, saw on the horizon the top half of the tower as it broke off like a snapped twig. It made a deafening clang. Then he saw something else. He saw a UFO, the only word he could think of, large and ovular, hovering over the river, the size of a small public garden. It floated slowly downward. Marcel calculated that it was landing somewhere near the Musée d'Orsay on the left bank. Another similar object descended towards La Villette. But others had already landed. Already, their crews were in the streets. And coming from the direction of the Rue de Clichy, three metallic coned objects slid with rather graceful movements into Marcel's view. Semicircular heads of slightly grubby matte white metal. Two small lights on top and a long eye stalk. A grill for air. And below that, a panel from which extended mechanical arms. One ending with a sucker, the other silvery and hollow. 
Under the panel, a sort of tin skirt curved outward to the ground, marked by vertical lines of black, globular spots. What were these invaders? Machines? Robots? Tanks? Creatures? Casings containing creatures? Marcel turned again and shuffled forward. More explosions, shouts, groans, screams, even sighs. Marcel looked round. One of the robotic entities had reached the end of the bridge. That silver, hollow arm glowed. Concrete shattered. Someone gasped. Yet Marcel was calm. He supposed he was going to die. He crawled away. His head collided with something hard. He'd bumped into a Morris column. He managed to read the posters curving away from his sight line. In this sliver of time, he shouldn't have been able to record so much irrelevant information. Julietta Dumas, the greatest chanteuse of the mid-22nd century at the Babino Theatre. Leon Paul was a fan and often listened to her albums. Two tickets for that, birthday present solved. A new rapper at the Olympia, a jazz musician at the Duke de Lombard, the dates and venues for the French tour of an American electronic band, a shop-out recital at L'Eglise de la Madeleine. As much as the explosions, the corpses, the pain, these posters would remain in his dreams. At the foot of the column lay a small, singed piece of orange and yellow cloth. He picked it up and rolled it into a ball and dabbed it against his injured elbow. He pressed his hand against the column and tried to pull himself upward. Then he thought he'd be safer on the ground. Then he wondered why he was bothering about safety. What chance did he stand? He pushed a hand against the column again. The thumbnail caught the American tour poster and scratched an inch of white line across the singer's face. I really must cut that nail. Leon Paul was always on at him about not cutting his nails often enough. Then he fell against the column. No, not against the column. Into the column. Another explosion came from behind. White light, grit thrown up, shattered plaster. The moan of a man who might have been drunk or might have been crying or might have been dying or all those things at once. Then, for Marcel, a thought. I suppose I'm dead now. And on Tuesday, 8th of April at 11.33, his mind went blank. But the massacre went on. Notre Dame was on fire again. The ship at the Musée d'Orsay debouched its crew. Several invaders crossed the Pont Royal and came to the Louvre, guns blasting. The pyramid was shattered. They occupied the museum. And then a pause. All of Paris eerily quiet. But like paint thrown on a white canvas, the silence soon gave way to chaos. A word that had been heard in Europe 220 years earlier was heard again. The word was... Exterminate! Marcel Chowdhury's mind went blank. But then, somewhere he came to aware only that he should not have come to. He was supposed to be dead, 
and he did not believe in a life after death, so why was his brain still working? He felt the sting in his right elbow. Then he was aware of a pleasant, cushiony smell, the leather and walnut luxury of an expensive new car, though under him a harsh cold floor made his back ache. His eyes began to work, slowly at first, so that he felt he was lying in a sunlit cloud, until the wet film sticky from his eyelids cleared, and he saw he was in a cool room of white and silver and gold, and in the middle an object of dark wood, sort of like a table but divided into panels, and in the middle of it, what? A tall, thin, coloured glass something. Stained glass? A vase full of flowers? Not a vase, no. Then his eyes filmed over again, this time with tears. There was so much in the last minute of his previous consciousness to cry for, so much that he had not understood, had he understood anything, that he could not narrow in on what exactly caused the tears. Terror or confusion? Maybe it was just self-pity. Maybe it was a memory of Leon Paul. Yes, in even the most massive crisis we tend to narrow in on those we love. Yes, he must call Leon Paul. He tried to reach for his phone and realised it was lost. He struggled to sit up and failed and dropped down again to the flat of his back. He was splayed on the floor of this strange, expensive room, only a few feet from a large golden door which made him think of Egypt in an ancient horror flat film. In his left hand he clutched the ball of orange and yellow cloth. Had it not been so colourful, it might have been a piece of the wrappings of a movie mummy. This was how his disoriented mind was working. He turned the cloth around to find an unbloodied corner and used it to dry his eyes. He lifted his head. He was in the most elegant room he had ever seen. The house of an eccentric millionaire. Along the walls were rows of circular indents. A table and chairs in one corner and right in the middle, that thing he had taken for a table, a circular console of some kind, the frame made of wood polished to a shine, but sprinkled with levers and dials of metal and plastic, and on top, not a vase at all, stretching thinly upward and splaying at the top, like the umbrella at an outdoor table, but not that either. It was a slim, delicate tube which reached to the ceiling. All the colours of a kaleidoscope floated inside. And standing behind the console, a striking, tall woman in long robes and a headdress. I've seen her before, he thought foggily. The street, I saw her on the street. Her skin was richly brown, much darker than his, darker even than the walnut console, if walnut was what it was, and her eyes were of the deepest, most impenetrable black. Those marvellous clothes perfected the space, a warm flame in the heart of the cool. She was holding a bound volume open, a finger on a page. A little frown wrinkled the place between her eyebrows. She turned the page. Then she noticed him, flat on the floor. She blinked. Ah, oh, my darling boy, you've come to. 
She looked into the book again. Just a moment, my dear. I need to find some information urgently. Ah, there we are. She tapped the page and then pressed a button. Marcel heard a small click behind him. The woman showed a moo of satisfaction. That's the trouble with new transportation. I'm all for redesigning things, and I'm sure you'll agree this is a splendid room. But they do like to move things around, and sometimes one wonders whether it is just to annoy. I couldn't find the lock. In the old one, it was on the left. Still, problem solved. She snapped the manual closed. Now, darling boy, can you stand up? She glided over to him and took both his hands in her own, tugging him up in a single swift movement. Willowy though she was, she had surprising strength. You look terrible. She pushed his hair back. There's a rather deep gash on your forehead, and oh, that elbow—is it very painful? Where am I? What is this building? Who are you, young man? Please answer my question. Does it hurt? Am I dead? He remembered the explosion, the sudden blackness. Am I? Does it hurt? The woman asked again, sharply, looking him in the eye. Where? Quite. I'm sure it's worse than quite. You're being brave, darling boy, but you don't have to be brave here. Remove your jacket and shirt. We'll bandage you up. The woman spoke with that soft authority which made plain she was not to be argued with. Marcel did as he was told. Around the walls, there were many of those circular indents. The indents themselves of the same beautiful wood as the console, but the walls into which they were set were made of some mysterious material radiating a gentle golden glow—not metal, not wood, not plastic, not plaster, not anything Marcel could identify. The woman ushered him towards the wall and touched one of the indents. It slid aside with a hum to reveal a sort of vault containing a variety of medical supplies. She cleaned and bandaged Marcel's elbow and applied a plaster to his forehead. I'm afraid you're going to have a scar, dear boy. Still, it will make you look even more handsome—a magnet for the opposite sex. It's not the opposite sex I'm interested in magnetizing. Makes no difference if one thing unites all the sexes is that a scar on the forehead is romantic. My dear, your clothes are dusty and torn. Those jeans, that awful rip at the knee—is your knee badly grazed? My knee is fine. That rip is a fashion trend. Is it? Well, it just won't do. Will you please tell me where I am? She stood back and looked him up and down. I have a walk-in closet where you will find a number of clothing options. Choose what you like. She paused for a moment. Go through the door over there. She pointed to the other end of the long room. Take a left, a left, a left, a right, a left, another left, a right, and it'll be the third door on the left. She hesitated. At least that's the way it was in the previous model. She flipped through the manual. There's a map here of this portion of the vehicle. Oh crumbs! It's in a totally different place. So, she traced the journey with her finger. Take a left, a left, a right, a left, another right, a left, a left, a right, a right, a right, a left, and it's the third door on the right after the gallery of Gallifreyan sculpture. Got it? No. You had better have the manual. She thrust it towards him, and he did not so much take it as catch it. Will you please answer my questions? Go along, dear. I've work to do. Tell me, please. 
irritation flashed across her face. It's not all about you, young man. She made a shooing gesture. The corridors, with other corridors running off them, were long. The woman had talked of transportation, of a vehicle. But this was surely no vehicle. It was some kind of building. He wondered how long he had been unconscious to be brought here all unawares, and why, having been brought, he had been dumped on the floor like a bag of washing. He remembered the posters, Leon Paul's favourite singer, Julietta Dumas, and then the sensation of falling. Perhaps he was underground, a secret underground labyrinth. There were no windows. Passing the sculpture gallery, the... What was it? The Gallery of Geological Sculpture? Grenoble Sculpture? Grenadan Sculpture? He could not resist taking a peek. He pushed on the door. The gallery was empty. Disappointing. He moved on to the next door. The clothes closet was not by any means empty. It was not Marcel's idea of a closet, even of the walk-in kind. It was hard to imagine even Marie Antoinette having a closet like this, or that woman from Philippine history with all those shoes. This was like the costume store of an old Hollywood film studio, before CGI had eliminated actual costumes. There was rail after rail after rail. Card signs hung from the high ceiling as in a department store, presumably to indicate kinds of outfits, but the script was foreign. Stranger still were the clothes themselves. Many rails held garments which could not have been designed for human or humanoid forms. Finally, he found a few rails from which hung clothes that might fit him. There were hundreds, but he was not at all spoilt for choice. Many came from what some second-rate filmmaker might imagine were distant futures, silvery or plastic. This one would make him look like an android, that one like a cyborg at a New Year's party, that one like an astronaut. Then there were those from the far past. He didn't wish to look like a dauphin or a soldier in Napoleon's army or a bishop at the court of the Duke of Aquitaine. He had always flattered himself that he was cool, and cool was in short supply. He pounced on a particular suit which he decided was cool. He found a full-length mirror. He spun, allowing himself a little giggle. Oh, I like this. He looked at his face. You're very handsome, the tall woman had said. His mother had said that too, but mothers always do. Leon Paul had said it, but Leon Paul was in love with him. He supposed, yes, he was quite good-looking, with his jet-black hair and shapely nose and light brown skin. His lips were a bit too thin. He pulled on an earlobe. His ears were just a bit too big, but on the whole he was OK. He put his old clothes on the rack and put his wallet in the inside pocket of his new suit. He trekked back to the console room. The woman was staring into the slim, glass-like tube. She looked at him, or rather his outfit. Right planet, wrong period. Precisely two centuries before your time, dear boy, she said, taking the manual from him. A grey suit, the jacket with a velvet collar, four buttons down the front, a cerise shirt, slim trousers which accentuated the hips. 
black boots with zippers down the side. From the left breast pocket, he pulled a pair of shades. He walked back and forth a few times as if on a catwalk. It suits you, 1964, mod, very London. Oh, London. He wrinkled his nose with contempt. All right, where are we? Who are you? Are you a film star? Who am I? That's a very interesting question. Who, after all, are you? Who are any of us? Philosophers have dwelt on such questions for all eternity, have they not? I like philosophical discussions as much as the next person, but please, do you recognise me? Her quick smile held a hint of a challenge. Not actually, but I only like really old flat films. Outside, I wandered onto a film set, didn't I? All those dead people, they were just extras. He tried to convince himself these things were true. He failed. This is a film set. Then where are the cameras? Concealed behind those discs. How lovely of you to take me for an Earth film star, darling. Though I do fear it makes me seem a little shallow. Certainly I am photogenic. But no, I am about a more serious kind of business than entertaining the masses of Earth or anywhere else. Some kind of subterranean government complex. He had a vague notion that most governments had bunkers in case of emergency. You're inside the Colon Morris. Inside it? Marcel laughed. Not below it or above it, inside it. That's not quite right. We're in a relative adjoining dimension. Marcel could not hold back another laugh. Crazy. This is crazy. Shall we take the weight of our feet? Marcel followed her to the elegant teak table which sat on an orange rug flanked by two leather armchairs. She folded into one while he dropped into the other and placed his sunglasses in his pocket. She reached out and pressed the nearest indent, which rolled aside. A purple tablecloth flew out and landed, perfectly placed. Then a silver tea tray appeared with a pot, two cups, a bowl of sugar, a jug of milk, a plate with four dark chocolate biscuits, 70% cocoa, and another with a slice of lemon. The teapot floated and tilted. Warm, fragrant Lapsang Souchong flowed in a line into one of the cups. Not a drop was spilt. The pot settled back on the tray. Milk? A little. The jug rose poured, landed again. Sugar? No, thank you. The second cup was then filled with tea, and then the lemon leapt, that was the only word for it, into the cup with a small splash. Wizardry, he said, laughing. His hostess looked aggrieved. Oh, you humans, you humans! Of course, you're one of the many generations of Earth children who have been brought up reading about that boy with the round glasses. Really, it's too infuriating. There's no wizardry anywhere in the universe. If you ever meet a wizard, he's a scientist or a fraud. What you've observed is a precise relationship between computer programming, magnetism and the science of flight. She sipped. I hope it's not too strong. It was perfect, he said. He rarely drank tea, favouring chocolat, but it did not seem right to complain. Now, darling lad, you and I have a problem. 
I find myself in a quandary. I don't suppose you've ever heard of a planet called Gallifrey? She shook her head before he could answer. Of course not. Oh, we oui, they're famous for their sculpture. Or so you tell me. Cheeky thing. Your so-called gallery was empty. Uh-uh. They're air sculptures and they're charming, exquisitely coloured. They furnish any space delightfully. Your poor human eyes can't see them. But there we are. Now, important matters. As well as highly specialised sculpture, Gallifrey's main claim to fame is time travel. We perfected it. Marcel spurted out some tea, which splashed onto his new trousers. I am going to flatter your intelligence and hold nothing back, Jolly Garçon. Not much, anyway. Yes, Gallifreyans broke into the time-space corridor millennia ago, though you will appreciate that once you have the power of time travel, the concept of millennia takes on a different texture. The strata of Gallifreyans who controlled matters of time and space called themselves Time Lords, which is smug but accurate. We should be relieved they didn't call themselves Time Kings. They realised speedily that their discovery, the greatest in the universe, was also likely to be among the most dangerous. Just one example. What if a wicked being went right back to the start of time and tried to destroy the fabric of the future? You can see that would be unhelpful. So they have a bureaucratic, even labyrinthine series of mechanisms to prevent this. If you ever meet Time Lords, you are likely to find them surprisingly dull for a species of such advanced ideas. They've had to wrap themselves in red tape to keep the universe safe. This is why they have their renegades. Boredom has always been an issue. One of their earliest protective developments was that of the Department of the Watchers. Like me. I am a watcher. A watcher of what? Practically everything, my dear. She sipped. In another time ship, another duo stood in a less luxurious console room. The groans and screams had diminished and shaken like a faulty tape. At least that awful noise is going away, said Adric. And this black hole doesn't seem to have squashed us to nothing. Which is all to the good, said the doctor. The time rotor slowed and stopped. We seem to have landed, the boy went on. Seems? I know not seems. The TARDIS tells us we haven't landed at all. So the TARDIS is wrong. Wrong? You're never wrong, are you, old girl? Sometimes a bit vague, but never wrong. Adric put a finger on the console. It's cooled down, so we can't even fry an egg on it. You may be right, Adric. Maybe she's ready for the knacker's yard. The doctor patted the console. Sorry, old girl. You do your best. From dust and violence and death to drinking tea in plush surroundings, wearing a brand new suit and talking about time travel with someone claiming expertise on the subject. This was a dizzying leap. 
but Marcel had a flexible mind and took things as they came. The department has always been controversial, particularly as the capacity to monitor the known universe directly from Gallifrey has improved in leaps and bounds. We watchers are currently facing political headwinds. There have been endless cutbacks. Some argue that as the Time Lords are overseers anyway, what do they need us for? Are we not just another layer of busybodies? But there are those who think that agents in the field, so to speak, have their uses, can maybe catch something earlier than those who sit about on Gallifrey looking at screens. There are very few of us left, and I always half expect to be summoned back and told I am redundant. I suspect our advocates keep us in harness for reasons of respect rather than belief in our value. Those few of us cling on and get some nice perks, not least of which is the most brand-spankingly up-to-date transport. Hence this elegant new model. <laughs> the greatest company car in the Milky Way. Marcel's small laugh came out more like a snigger than he intended. What a lovely way to put it! In the Milky Way and far beyond... Our job is to travel through time and space observing, recording, not interfering in anything unless instructed to do so, and that's exceedingly rare. For instance, those vile car-led creatures that are currently desecrating your city, I cannot prevent their wanton destruction much as I would like to. I cannot undo what has occurred. The universe would fall to pieces if we undid every terrible thing. Where would we stop? But when those creatures, and they call themselves Daleks, my darling, and they are dreadful, dreadful, when they began to show signs of experimenting in time travel, well, remember that wicked person I posited? Steps were taken to limit their success in that field. So you are not one of these Lord de Tomp. Goodness me, no. I graduated summa cum laude from the academy, but I am a girl who likes to travel. Had I not been a watcher, who knows, I might have become one of our notorious renegades. No, this suits me much better than office work. Marcel blinked and stared. The elegant woman continued. All these ungraspable ideas, so abstract it must seem to you, bring us down to a little local difficulty, namely vous. Moi, vous. You see, darling, you are to all intents and purposes dead. I'm sorry, but that's how it is. Marcel's eyes squinted as he tried to take this in. He spoke slowly, like a man working out a crossword problem. You are telling me that on a sunny morning in April, I died. The woman said chirpily, Tuesday, 8th of April, 2164, a sunny day, as you say, at 11.33am, full of youth and hope, you died. But I didn't. At midday of that date, or whatever time it is now, he wished he had his phone to check the time. He wished he wore a watch. I'm here. I'm alive. He put his hand on his heart. I am alive. Otherwise, how could I be wearing this suit? 
and these sunglasses. He put them on. You must have noticed a blinding flash just before you fell into my machine. Where? That flash was the ray that should have killed you at 11.33. Would have killed you if I had not been struggling with that blasted lock. It was silly of me to come to Paris, but I can rarely resist it. It is one of my favourite places in the universe, and certainly my favourite place on your funny little planet. I was treating myself to a little holiday, pottering round galleries. One of the few things the human species does tolerably well is art. Art and winemaking and... Well, that's it, really. But 2164 was a terrible year to visit. There is so much history in the universe, one cannot remember everything. If I were to send you outside at 11.33, the moment in question... There would be no more Marcel. I can't face doing that. None of this is your fault. The fault is mine. Not mine, actually. Those designers who insist on moving buttons about for no good reason. But if I were to send you out at, say, 11.35, I would risk undoing all history. I cannot do that. It's forbidden. Marcel sprang to his feet. Enough of this. This is all a joke, isn't it? He went towards the exit door. He hammered on it. Calm down, Marcel boy. Calm yourself and come back and finish your tea. You don't understand. I have to go back. I have to find... Uselessly, he took off his sunglasses and looked at them open between his thumbs. And everything came back to him. The kiss as he left, the nice weather, the invasion, the noise, the blood, those robots or whatever they were, Julietta Dumas, this impossible, ridiculous room, his suit. He experienced a brief sensation of something like madness, which dissolved into misery. Leon Paul. It's difficult, I know. Please, let me out. Pretend I never appeared. He clenched his fists. He wasn't thinking rationally. If I'm killed, I'm killed. Let me out, or... Or what? Marcel, you've stumbled into a thing beyond your comprehension. You may not like it. I don't like it myself. Understand, I am an alien. <laughs> a creature from outer space. In real life, aliens don't come to this planet. His inner voice said, They just have. They do frequently, and many hundreds of the worst are destroying your city. The real enemy being so far out of reach, Marcel, as commonly of humans when the mind is clouded, turned on the nearest person. And that's just an inconvenience to you. He spat these words, but it's my everything. If it was an inconvenience to me, I'd shrug it off. It's because it's not that I'm holding out a hand to you. He stared at her. Open that door! My dear boy, we are far from Paris now, far from Earth. If you look across to the console, you'll notice that the colours in the time rotor are swimming, like it's happy. A TARDIS, or in your language, a TED. Tomp et de mensure relative dans l'espace. 
This is my machine, my company car, as you put it, a Ted Type 53. A smooth and quiet ride, do you not agree? Far from <coughs> a watch of space, please. Inexplicably, he added, I don't even know your name. He laughed humorlessly. I've many, none of which you could pronounce. You may call me Milady. That's not a name, it's a title. It's my title. And what are you offering me that I'm supposed to happily give up everything for it? Not happily, dear boy, I know. Travel, observation, learning. It will be a rich experience. It may be possible to eventually find a place for you on Gallifrey, but I can't be sure they're increasingly unwelcoming to immigrants. In many regards, they are very stupid. We'll see. We'll see, he snorted. I lose my life, and we'll see. And remember, to all intents and purposes, you have lost your life. But not to know what happened to him. To be always wondering if... You may like to remind yourself that when you think of your lost life, your Leon Paul, your hopes for the future, you were happy. You died happy. Not many people are given to happiness at the end. And the unearthly woman opened her arms and he fell into them and he wept. As the night came to Milady's TARDIS, and on a regular cycle it did, Marcel chose a room to call his own, sparsely but well furnished with steel chairs and a desk and a comfortable bed. He heard Milady's footsteps heading back to the control room. Did she ever sleep? After undressing, he pulled his wallet from the jacket pocket. Folded euros, credit cards, all useless now, he supposed. Business cards of small presses. And tucked at the back, a strip of four small photographs taken in a passport booth of Leon Paul and he, fairly drunk, laughing like anything. He looked at Leon Paul, who looked back at him with that big, tipsy smile. I don't care what she says. I'm coming back for you. He put the pictures on his bedside table and fell asleep. He didn't sleep restfully, but he slept long. The doctor's scanner screen showed an image of the kind the doctor had seen hundreds of times, Adric already a few. A dreary, steel-lined corridor, at the end of which could be seen a metal staircase. They were in a ship of some kind. A submarine? A spacecraft? Certainly not nowhere, whatever the TARDIS said. Certainly somewhere. Why isn't she telling us this? We won't find that out by standing here moping. And the doctor went out, the boy following him with a kind of running skip. They emerged into the functional cold grey corridor. Ceiling lights at regular intervals gave out the thin, bleached white of nightlights. The bulkhead on the left was doorless, suggesting it was the outer edge of the craft. It had once been smooth, but was now 
pockmarked with dents, some of considerable size. Looks like it suffered a bad meteorite storm, mused the doctor. On the right, there were a number of high grey doors, equidistant. The doctor tried the first, but it would not give. The second, however, was buckled and was attached to the frame by only one hinge. The other side was a room containing four extremely long bunk beds with thin mattresses which were torn and from which stuffing hung. There were a couple of sinks. There was a general smell of rot. They headed for the staircase with its latticed rises. In this empty, metallic space, even Adric's soft boots made the stairs ring as they went up. Adric put his hand on the metal banister. It was level with his ear. They must be really tall, he said. He touched something soft. Dust. The ship's been abandoned for a long time. The doctor glanced down and saw something crumpled in a dark corner under the staircase. He ran back down. A body. Adric hesitated for a moment, then went down the few stairs and around to where the doctor was kneeling. The stairs being so high, there was an unusually large space below. The dead creature had long ago given up its skin and was no more than a skeleton in military uniform, made of now-dried, flaking leather. On the left breast was an insignia, three red circles. The skull was long-jawed, the eye sockets large and ovular. The creature had been at least nine feet tall. It had been almost insect thin. The legs were very long. From a planet of comparatively light gravity... There were no ear holes on the skull where evolution would normally have placed them. But then the doctor pointed to a small hole at the angle of the jaw on either side. Unusual. He pulled gently on a large six-fingered hand and the bones of one finger came away, dust falling. Not a species I recognise. He looked up to the risers overhead, which threw a crisscrossed shadow over him. Onward and upward. At the top of the staircase, they found themselves in a similar corridor with similar doors along one side and a rail on the outer edge. Adric leant on the rail looking down at the TARDIS roof and, beyond it, running off until it rounded a corner, the monotonous grey corridor, more seemingly random dents on the outer wall. They walked on. Ahead of them, the floor unnaturally pushed upward and then sharply downward and then upward again, as if it had been concertinaed. This skewed pathway continued as far as they could see. This ship has been hit very hard by something, said the Doctor. Is it safe to continue? There's only one way to find out. Doctor, look! Adric pointed to the bulkhead on the left some distance ahead of them as they rounded another corner. He ran towards the rail. The Doctor followed. The grey bulkhead stopped at this point, and in its place was a bright blue metal covered in what may have been garish yellow insignia or may have been lettering of an unknown kind. The shapes were jagged and harsh, quite different from the three red circles they had seen on the skeleton's uniform. At the edge, the blue merged into the grey as if intense heat had melted them together. 
like they've used bits of old craft, said the boy. Recycling? Unless it's an entirely separate craft that is somehow fused with this one. There was another descending staircase just ahead, and the doctor clanged down it and went to the blue wall. He touched it. I wonder if there's a... He ran a finger down the point of fusion. Then he walked for several feet, fingers running along the blue metal, using touch as well as sight to find... a way into this other craft. No. Which suggests an accident rather than an attack. If there had been some intention of docking, even violently, surely they would have manoeuvred their ship so as to gain entrance. He kicked a large sheet of dented, twisted grey metal on the floor. It had presumably been thrust inward, perhaps falling off right at that moment of collision, or possibly staying attached like a weirdly inviting open door, but with no apparent way into the other craft, it must have been a bizarre parody of welcome. Until the passage of time, weeks, centuries, had caused it to drop off. Ten feet further along, they came to the other edge of the blue wall and were back to the long, monotonous line of the main ship's grey bulkhead. The corridor had flattened out, no more dents to be seen. They went back up to the floor above. A matter of a few minutes brought them to another door, as high as all the others and much wider. It was open. The ship's deck, said the doctor. It had the same dustiness, the same air of many years' silence. At the left wall near the door where they stood was twisted. A console bank stood at a 20-degree angle away from the line of the wall, turned towards them as if it had been pushed aside. And further on, what looked like another console faced at a similar angle the other direction. Its innards were exposed at the side as if a panel had been torn off. No, that first impression wasn't right. It's not another bank. It's the same one, said the doctor, ripped in half. Some powerful force from behind had hit the wall and severed both the wall and the computer bank in front. Between these halves, there was a wall not of the iron grey of this ship of giants, nor of the blue ship, but a chessboard white and black design. Different again said Adric. Look at the curvature, said the doctor. It's a nose cone. It's a much smaller craft. He paused for a second. Three spaceships in a single collision? The doctor scratched his nose. I've seen ships melded together before, but that was a dimensional crossover. Great heat had melted and blurred the line between the bifurcated bank and the checkered craft. Maybe we're wrong to assume a series of accidents. Maybe these ships were all deliberately mashed together. Are we in some kind of space junkyard, perhaps? The doctor touched the convex chessboard. Adric went past the nose cone and the second half of the pushed-out bank. Beyond, the wall ran perfectly straight. The boy gasped and stared at a bleak sight. Another tall skeleton. 
It was leaning forward, arms and head on the console as if it was catching forty winks. Adric touched the skull and it rolled a couple of inches like a billiard ball. The hand on which it had rested fell off the console and hung for a moment at the end of its long arm, then dropped to the floor with a little throwback of chalky dust. It was, for Adric, sad and disturbing. But the doctor, who had seen such things too often before, threw it only a quick look before moving right into the centre of the deck. But why, asked Adric, looking at the resting bones, would they put a vehicle in a junkyard while there were still living crew members on board? He turned away from the skeleton and took in the spacious deck. Maybe there weren't. The crushing may have happened afterwards. Long afterwards, perhaps. It was a melancholy sight. All around them were bony figures of the dead. In the centre, two seats were placed at a long console right before a large blank scanner. In each, a uniformed skeleton sat in a relaxed position. On the leftward body, the skull was tipped back in a restful pose. The doctor leaned in closely without touching the dead being. The neck's been broken as if from a sudden impact. The skull was propped against the leathery shoulder. Adric sneezed. (coughs) All this dust, he said. The doctor moved to the next figure. Then he straightened and took another look around. Once, it must have been a busy, noisy place. Adric imagined the sounds of barked orders, of lieutenants hurrying to obey their captain. Beyond the central seating, a crumpled uniform lay in the middle of the floor, and in it a pile of bones. One of these creatures crossing from one console to another, perhaps? Carrying a drink of some kind? For right by the bones was a tin beaker. And in a far corner, a skeleton of the same kind, but much shorter... Even the seat was smaller, raised high like a bar stool. A child, said Adric. Tears pricked his eyes. And beside the small creature, there was a brightly coloured plastic box with what might have been wings on the side and at the bottom, four tiny wheels. A toy, he said simply. The main console was covered in dust so thick that to touch it was like patting a small animal. With a look of distaste, Adric arced his hand over the surface and brushed away a portion. The controls, designed for very large hands, looked as blocky and childish as the toy. They weren't. They were extremely sophisticated. I wonder if they still work, mused the doctor. He pressed a bright orange button. There was a crackle from overhead and a low, long drone came out which, every couple of seconds, moved up or down a tone and into which, at random intervals, there came a dry bong like a water pipe being hit with a stick. The doctor cocked his head, listening. Alien Muzak, whistle while you work. He smiled. Not unpleasant, though not good for dancing. He pressed another button. The scanner screen blinked. Lines ran along it. Now that's more like it. Let's see what you have to show us. 
More blinking. More lines. Not much, said Adric. Give it time to warm up. Impatience is not a virtue. It hasn't been used in several centuries. The lines faded, but didn't vanish. Behind them, an image began to crystallise. I thought I'd seen most things, but this is a new one. The camera attached halfway along its body. The screen showed one side of the grey outer hull of the ship, from what could be assumed was the middle to what could be assumed was the front. The picture faded in and out, the bleached colours washing away to black and white, and then back to thin, pale colours, lines running across, thinning and thickening. But the screen showed much more than just the grey ship, for beyond it was another ship, welded to the first, and beyond that another and another and another, running into the distance, some small, some large. Adjit tried to count them. He got to 20 and gave up. The vehicles were all distinctly different from numerous cultures and planets. The Doctor had once visited a carnival of monsters, and this collation might have been the lost ships of all those monsters. They were of many colours and many shapes. An elongated space rocket was adjoined to a circular disc, which was joined to a cigar shape, which was wedged between a dodecahedron and a boxy black oblong. This huge sculpture of found objects pushed together ran beyond the edge of the screen. It might go on for miles. There might be hundreds of craft, as if some kind of magnetic force had pulled them all towards each other. A magnetic force, said Adric, like the one that pulled us here. The doctor held up his hand to silence the boy, while his eyes hopped from one of the ships which constituted the giant hulk to the next, to the next, to the next. I wonder if I can identify any of them. There was silence for half a minute, except for the eerie Muzak. None ring any bells. The doctor looked disappointed. He didn't like not knowing answers. Adric briefly enjoyed the small pleasure to be had in the doctor not knowing everything, because so often it seemed he did. But the doctor brightened. The quality of the picture is so low, that doesn't mean much. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Excuses, excuses, thought the boy, but said nothing. But perhaps, the doctor went on, there are other cameras, other angles to see. He pressed the scanner button again. The image was replaced by white flashes and white noise. They refused to coalesce into a picture. He tried again. This time the screen was black, as if a third camera had been broken off. He pressed once more, and this took them back to the first. Doctor, said Adric. I can't see any stars. Indeed, the Hulk was floating in a starless and planetless space of pinkish light. The lack of stars is instructive, said the Doctor. The TARDIS told us we're nowhere. Maybe she was right. She's rarely wrong. The Doctor moved away from the central console. Adric made a gesture to say, Do you mind if... and stopped the music. I was enjoying that. Rather too commercial for my taste, but it had an appealing structure. The doctor went carefully around the pile of bones lying on the floor by the tin cup. He strode purposefully towards two wide, closed doors. Adric followed, 
doing his best to keep the child and the wheeled toy out of his sightline. On either side of the doors were two crumpled uniforms. The doctor squatted and moved one of them. Flakes dropped from it. He touched something which had been underneath. Ah. He picked up the other uniform and again found something underneath. He lay it in his hand. He showed it to Adric. The first weapons we've seen. Armed guards. And what exactly were they guarding? The doctor pulled both the doors towards him. They shoved the uniforms out of the way with leathery whispers. They found themselves in a big square room, almost as large as the main deck, but the space was completely taken up by a single structure, a massive, clear, oblong tank encasing a convoluted series of wires and pipes and coils. It was at least 15 feet high and 30 feet long. It looked clean and new, but for one corner, where the shell was cracked from top to bottom and several wires and coils were blackened. Very interesting, said the doctor. Basic, but not unimpressive. An engine, asked Adric. Not just any engine. He walked to the crack and looked with deep concentration at the complicated mechanics of the huge, clear box. He turned to Adric. This spaceship isn't just a spaceship. Does it remind you of anything? And the moment the question was asked, it did. Adric said with a swallow, A time machine. These creatures were well on their way to discovering the secrets of time travel. Their engine half worked. It was designed to open up the vortex, and it did. They managed to break into it, but could not break out again. So that's where we are, the time-space corridor. Exactly. Hence the starless space, which isn't space at all. This ship is stuck here forever. And so are we. Trapped inside a dead time machine. As he awoke, Marcel experienced several seconds of disorientation. Leon Paul? Then it all came back. The violence, the noise, the robots, Julieta Dumas, the elegant alien woman. What had she said? 
Daleks, Gallifrey, the unreality which was the truth. He looked at the strip of passport photos. Leon Paul. Attached to his bedroom was a bathroom with a spacious shower. He leant in and turned the tap and waited for water. Nothing came out. He turned it further. He glanced at the shower head. Still nothing. Then a light swirled and twirled in a warm white beam, thin at the shower head, wide on the floor. He certainly wasn't stepping into that. He opened a cabinet above the sink. It was bigger inside than outside. There were countless bottles of shampoos and ointments, only one of which was a brand he knew. The others were perhaps designed for alien hair and skin. Maybe they'd make his hair fall out and his skin grow scales. There were toothbrushes of varying sizes. One was a foot long. Marcel didn't want to meet the creature who brushed with that. Did Milady entertain saber-toothed tigers? He laughed a little. He found a plush red 1920s dressing gown with quilted lapels. He imagined himself in a luxurious apartment overlooking Central Park, uttering barbed witticisms in a dry, nasal voice. He couldn't think of any barbed witticisms at that moment, so said in English, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, knowing it was the wrong time and the wrong place and the wrong clothes and the wrong sex. He looked at his face in close-up. Trapped in a dead time machine, in the heart of the time corridor, Adric stared at the smashed-up time engine. They went back to the main deck and the ruined beings in their places of death. Light from the scanner flooded the deck. There was a sudden, momentous boom. Another collision! said Adric. He stiffened his legs for the moment of impact. Yet nothing happened. Not a collision at all, just something passing overhead, said the doctor. The screen showed a narrow black line zooming through the red sky like a dark comet. Another shattering boom followed and the line disappeared, leaving behind an intensely bright flash of light which splashed onto their faces. The light died. The first boom was entry, the second departure, said the doctor. A machine passing successfully through the continuum. Marcel wandered barefoot into the console room, where Milady was sitting at the table, continuing to familiarise herself with the manual. She was dressed in robes and a headdress as before, but these were yellow and green. Marcel wondered if they were the same robes, and they changed colour every morning. But this was not a child's world of magic. Good morning, dear boy, she said, looking up. I have instructed the Ted to make you a cup of chocolat. I suspected from your expression yesterday when I served you tea that you preferred chocolat, but were too polite to say so. I like politeness. That's why I choose to be known as Milady. It enforces politeness. I see your scar is healing nicely. I hope you slept well. Her eyes dropped to the manual, suggesting she wasn't much interested in an answer. This annoyed him, so he gave one. As well as can be expected, I suppose. 
Marcel's expression became very youthful and almost performatively bleak-faced. His sense of loss was as real as the mark on his forehead. And yet he felt the need not so much to say it as to enact it. The artifice of performance in personal relationships can serve to cover up real feelings, but sometimes it is the only way to declare what is beyond words. And a sympathetic response was a reasonable hope after all that had happened. It didn't come. For all he could make out, Milady might have completely forgotten about the events of yesterday. I suppose to her, with her machine, her Ted, and her lords of time, I must seem like a very small person. And in another quiet reaction deep in his mind, which surprised him, he realised he didn't object to this. I suppose I am. He laid eyes on a tray with a cup of chocolate and an all-butter croissant. He picked up the croissant and bit it. It was warm and fluffy and delicious. He knocked crumbs off his lips. Milady turned the page of the manual. This is nice, he said, taking another bite. And I don't want to complain, but my shower doesn't work. Quietly, Marcel quite liked that this perfect vehicle had such an imperfection. It does. No water came out. It's not water. It's the universal cleansing light, much cleaner and better for the skin. And so he swallowed the last bite of the croissant and drained the last drop of chocolat. Then there were a few moments of silence, broken by, of all things, the sound of sweet birdsong. Not a bird Marcel could identify, but then an urban boy, he knew little about the varieties of birdsong except that he liked them. He looked up, half expecting to see a tiny winged creature circling his head. Milady went to the console. The bird's song ceased. She switched on the scanner. It showed only a kind of greyish fog. Yes? She asked the screen. From deep within the fog there came a muffled voice which spoke very slowly and authoritatively. This is control. From somewhere in the fog, there was a hint of movement of what may have been a mouth, but it was difficult to be sure. It has been many centuries since I last heard from you. I only make contact under urgent circumstances. Our detectors have located an increase in the troubling movements which have been occurring at the far edge of time. Time storms are hardly a rare phenomenon. Surely that is a matter for the time meteorologists. The fog shook a little, as if in anger. These are not time storms, Milady. Not of the usual kind. We cannot be quite certain what they are, but they appear to show unanticipated and fast-moving entropic effects. Entropy, said Milady. Decay. Severely disturbing the equilibrium of time. We have been marshalling all available evidence and have looked at both past records and future records. Something is happening which ought not to happen. There is evidence, tentative, 
but in the view of our experts, convincing that time is in some way being... The voice lost its sternness, became hesitant. Time is being sucked away from the universe. Sucked out of the universe? You mean reduced? Marcel thought he saw a greenish eye in the fog, blinking. Then it was lost. Precisely. Reduced in both quality and quantity. We are already having to recalculate our projections for the lifetime of the universe. These incidents are literally shortening the life of the universe? Sucked towards where? Into another universe? The damage is occurring within the body of our own. Our monitors suggest the fault is in the time-space vortex. That's impossible. The fog swirled and darkened. So we have always believed that our understanding of the physics of time might prove to be erroneous or incomplete is deeply worrying. The political classes are in turmoil over the matter. I had a communication from the minister yesterday. He, she wants answers, and he, she wants them now. They always do, even if they're the wrong answers. Wrong answers are better than no answers as far as he, she is concerned. Wrong answers are frequently more dangerous than no answers. Which is why we in the department need the answers to be right. Is this apparent decay purely natural, or has it been manufactured? If we did not discover these occurrences until now, what other phenomena are we overlooking? Not to put too fine a point on it, the universe appears to be under grave threat of early extinction. And more important to he, she, his, her good name. It is not you that has to deal with he, she on a regular basis, milady. He, she is making my life a misery. The voice dropped to a confiding whisper. Unofficially, I have spoken with members of the Objective Time Research Laboratory. The time chemists have risked their own careers to speak to me. Milady, the problem is much deeper than the political classes will acknowledge. The time chemists believe that if the time drain continues increasing exponentially at its current rate, massive chunks of the future will be damaged beyond repair within a handful of objective days, perhaps as few as two objective days. Between you and me, milady, I'm very afraid. Politicians cannot think beyond today, but it is our job at the department to think of tomorrow and after. Milady breathed in deeply. Control afraid. The department desires someone to enter the vortex and investigate. The fog swirled into ribbons, then reformed as a single shape. Did the jaw shut firmly? Did the eye glare? The screen went blank. 
Milady's features were impassive, and yet Marcel could see her mind working, sifting, drawing conclusions. Eventually, she looked around and smiled, but not the warm smile he had already become used to. A worried smile. Monsieur Chowdhury, she said softly. We are needed. The doctor had returned to the time engine. Adric stood behind the captain's seat, watching the screen for changes which did not come. There was no sound of movement. One moment he was thinking, and the next... <clears throat> his mouth was covered with a hand. All he could think was that one of the skeletons had risen and walked. But this was a warm, living hand, clammy, reptilian. Another went around his neck and pressed his windpipe. <clears throat> Just as the reptilian entity had appeared from nowhere, now he and the boy vanished. They might never have been there. The only witnesses were the alien skeletons. They showed no sign of caring. The doctor came through the double doors, knocking them closed. I wonder if I could repair this engine and make some adjustments to it. Adric? Adric? Always disappearing at the wrong time. The fact was, the boy always did exactly the kind of thing the doctor had done at his age. This was why he was so fond of him. Disappearing at the wrong time had been one of the doctor's youthful specialities. There was a sudden boom. A black, thin streak showed on the screen, widened, moving at great speed closer. For a moment it blotted out everything until it disappeared from the camera's range. Metal squealed and bent. The deck rocked and threw the doctor halfway across it and down to his knees. The sleeping skeleton near the divided wall flew from its seat to the floor like a slapstick comedian and lay there, legs splayed. The crew leader sprang forward and folded over the central desk. The toy rolled and landed upside down, tiny little wheels spinning. The child's seat spun like a barber's chair, but the child stayed put. From the place of the time engine there came a gruesome cacophony, tearing, cracking, snapping, hissing, exploding. The double doors were thrown open. The deep black hull of a small craft thrust into the space between. There was a smell of burning. The edges of the new ship fused instantly with the big craft. Oh well, said the doctor, getting to his feet and dusting himself down. So much for repairing the time engine. What he had not seen in all the excitement, though if he had been looking at the screen he would have, was a second arrival. By coincidence, the boom of its entry drowned out by the crash. But this second arrival did not look like a vehicle of any kind. It was a small, barren moon. It rolled towards the hulk and hovered there some distance away, surveying it. Tardis maintained sufficient distance from the bizarre hulk to be able to see it complete. It was like a long, narrow island, thick with impossible flora and fauna of iron and steel and wood and plastic amid a lapping red sea. Spindly as Manhattan, said Marcel. 
and roughly as long, a good dozen miles, I'd say, hundreds of craft all melded together. Milady paused for a second. The presence of dead and damaged craft in the vortex isn't in itself surprising. There have always been a few of those. No, it's this magnetic force that's so disturbing, this fusing. Whatever's dragging these craft together, is it also what's pulling time itself out of the universe? Marcel was staggered by the sheer strangeness of the sight. So many of them, so many spaceships. Some aren't spaceships at all. Some are not even space-worthy. See that one at the far end? An old wooden-hulled ship with holes in the sides? Sort of Viking. More sort of than Viking. That ship wouldn't be any use in outer space. But time. These are time ships. Time ships that went wrong. Experiments that failed. But they're half-successes. Very few species will ever get this far. I imagine when they saw the interior of the vortex, there was a mood of jubilation until they realised they were trapped. What went wrong? Any number of things. Time engines burned out. Perhaps willfully destroyed, who knows? Insufficient energy, simply wrong science. All science is trial and error, and you're looking at error. We have always known there were broken ships in the outer regions of the continuum, including Gallifreyan ships. Ted. Oh, indeed. Gallifreyans had countless failures before the code was cracked. Time Lords were made, not born. There'll be Tedra somewhere here, no doubt. She looked along the hulk. Though I suspect the magnetic effect for Ted would be somewhat different. The physics of dimensional relativity, you see, means they'll be pulled inside another craft, particularly if the chameleon circuit works, and forced to materialise. Oh, except, yes, that dodecahedron over there, that's a very early Gallifreyan craft. Not even interdimensionally relative, I'd wager. It looks in poor shape, the hull is torn. They stared in silence until Marcel said, So that's been floating here for centuries. Since long before your planet was formed. But don't mistake this sculpture of found objects for a graveyard. Look carefully. Some of these ships are rotten through. They may have been here for millennia. Some have a look of new paintwork. Maybe they've just arrived. And, which is frightening, not through a technical form. My suspicion is that among the failures and the junk, there are perfectly serviceable craft which shouldn't be here, but for this force. Like us. We are here by choice. My Tedra is so powerful, we can come and go as we choose. Milady threw Marcel a dry smile. I hope. She put a hand to her lips contemplatively. I imagine those pulled into the vortex have simpler technology or their older ships with a lot of mileage on them. At least, that's how it is at this point in the magnetic effect's progression. But if it continues to gather strength as control thinks it will, then maybe every single time craft will eventually be trapped here. Even us. Along with all of time. 
The vastness of what Milady said left Marcel capable of uttering only banalities. It's head spinning. Considering how new this is to you, you're handling it very well. Maybe because I like surrealist poetry. He laughed uncomfortably. That always helps, she smiled. I was thinking of writing an essay about Le Champ Magnétique just before the invasion, and now I'm in one, a magnetic field. Great chunks of the island of time machines were dark and apparently lifeless, but here and there lights winked against metals. Windows showed interior lights. The effect was of an office block at midnight. At least some of the ships had operating functions. Did they also harbour living beings? Milady looked at some indicators on the console. There are unusually strong time currents pulling towards the hulk, but they're generalised. My tetra can't locate a specific source. She looked at another indicator. There's air around us, thin but breathable. I would have imagined the time vortex was a vacuum. The magnetism which is pulling time inward will also be dragging in atmospheres from these craft's points of entry. If they came from space, they'd be bringing nothing but a vacuum, of course. But if from a planet with an atmosphere, if that atmosphere was touching the gateway, well, it's in here now. The doctor stepped towards the space where the double doors had been. They had been wrenched from their hinges and now lay on the floor. To the right of the doorway, the straight wall had been pushed into a flawed, dented oval, like a malformed egg. In the doorway itself, the black hull of the newly crashed craft showed scratches and dents, but no breaks. There was not a door to be seen. Who was there? Right in the centre, the blackness shimmer-winked and then parted like a curtain. It revealed the interior of a craft hardly larger than a cheap hotel bedroom. To the left, there were two seats, empty, in front of a computer bank and a large window, reminiscent of the flight deck of a small aeroplane. At the long wall opposite the entrance, there were seven slim, glass-like silos, six of equal height and one somewhat shorter. Inside the five rightward silos, there stood figures apparently sleeping, though the far one was cracked. The creature had tilted forward, forehead pressed on the glass like a Victorian pauper staring into a bakery. The other four figures continued to sleep peacefully. Were they in suspended animation? The doctor stuck his head in the doorway. Hello? A bright ray made him jerk his head out again. From somewhere beyond the five silos there came a furious roar. A figure strode into the doorway and looked down threateningly. Ah, oh, hello, said the doctor again. He looked the new arrival up and down. It was like looking at two half-beings sealed down the middle as one. The right side of the militarily uniformed figure appeared to be fleshly from top to toe. A hairy wrist and hand emerged from a long black sleeve. A yellow eye with thick red veins blinked as if to adjust to bright light. A flattish nose with a single nostril, angry mouth open. The left was mechanical, a silvery, expressionless eye, a triangular metal plate completing the nose, a slit adjoining and extending the fleshy lips completed a mouth, a steel arm 
Where is she? The man spoke in a low growl. The voice box was a combination of the natural and robotic. Where is who? My daughter, growled the cyborg. Where have you taken my daughter? Answer me or I'll blow you to pieces. The steel hand was raised. In the middle of the palm, there was a small nozzle which slid out an inch. Adric had the impression that he hadn't moved, but the backdrop had suddenly changed. He was still in the suffocating grasp of the reptile, mouth covered by that leathery hand. He was viciously shoved to the floor. His knees hit wood. I will return, your majesty, said the reptile, pressing a button on a panel attached to the belt at his waist. The belt was loose, as if once the reptile had been fat and had lost too much weight. There was a gun of some kind shoved into the belt and a knife. He was gone, then back instantly this time clutching a female in her late teens. She was half flesh, half machine. Her kidnapper made as if to throw her on the floor, but with a look at the metal arm, kept her in his embrace, arm bent harshly behind her back. (laughs) The kidnapper let out a bubbly titter like a cruel child. Spittle gathered at the edges of his lips. His jaw made a side-to-side motion. Do today, your majesty, do fresh use for the service of the cause of the Nalgren. The creature he addressed was of the same kind, but bigger. He sat in an unostentatiously carved wooden throne, elbow resting on one of the arms, tilting his torso lazily. His green fingers ended in long, grey nails. A wooden helmet was held together by an iron circlet around the forehead and an arched half-circlet from the brow to the back of the skull. It was topped by two massive horns. He wore a long cloak which hung voluminously around his shoulders and over his lap. His jacket and pantaloons were of the same deep green as his skin, so it was hard to tell where one became the other. Around his waist was the same kind of belt as the kidnappers, but without the travel device. Even on the bigger creature, it was loose-fitting. Tucked into the belt was a knife and two guns. The throne was set with its back to a massive wooden space. Its effect something between a cathedral, an empty barn, and a sort of gigantic barrel, long wooden slats curving up and overhead to join in a peak at the middle. On either side, three wooden pillars, church-like, reached to the roof. The area was dimly lit by a few bulbs dangling on wires. At the back of the hall, slats were splintered, showing behind them the smooth bulkhead of an attached ship, as if the wooden stern had been snapped off by a collision, leaving perhaps two-thirds of the hall intact. To the left was the end of a metal walkway, which long ago had been pulled out from the attached vehicle and pushed through the wooden wall, making a splintered entryway, so the people of the ship could come and go from the rest of the hull. Around the gantry was nothing but the vast red sky. But the throne figure had his back to all this. He was facing a wood-slatted front wall painted with a bright sun. Several small round windows showed pinkish light which tinted the sun. Beyond, a long empty exterior deck narrowed to a carved female figure with lush wooden hair and an exceedingly plump body which was scarcely humanoid looking out to the red sky as she had presumably once looked out to an ocean. 
Two circular staircases, one on either side of the throne, led down to a galley. Near the throne was a simple wooden table on which, incongruously, there sat a dusty trunk. There was an old wardrobe a few feet away, one door closed, the other half open. To the far right, a vertical wall running from top to bottom suggested a long, narrow room behind. The helmeted creature moved his jaw from side to side and the grinding of teeth could be heard. He bit one of his grey nails. He looked at Adric and the cyborg girl. A marvellous catch, my graf, said the kidnapper with manufactured enthusiasm, rubbing his palms again. The graf showed no sign of agreeing. In fact, he showed a sign only of generalised boredom. He leaned forward and put a long nail under Adric's chin, tipping the boy's face up, turning it to left and right, tipping it down to look at the hair, tipping it back up to look into the eyes. <sighs> he mumbled, not impressed. Is he not rather young for the work? Marvellous eyes, said the kidnapper. Obviously intelligent. What do we want with intelligence? asked the Graf with a long sigh. What use is intelligence to us? Do we not have enough of that commodity ourselves? Brawn is what we seek. The kidnapper shuffled forward with the girl and the Graf reached towards her, long nails out, and repeated his investigation. She is a gem, said the kidnapper. Fine, fine, I suppose, said the Graf with a bored lack of conviction. He sighed again. <sighs> Another disappointing catch. What is the use of a recruiting officer if this is the best he can recruit? He scratched his nose and subsided into the wooden throne. And the girl's arm, is that not a weapon? Is she not a danger? The recruiting officer grinned. Easily removed, your greatness. Easily removed. She will still be of service with her left arm. The girl struggled. The recruiting officer tugged aggressively on her arm and she cried out in pain. <sighs> Two Nalgren wandered from the long, narrow room. They wore similar clothes to the others. Simple wooden helmets edged and arched with a metal circle. A similar gun and knife. A similar belt, too loose. The smaller one had to keep tugging on his belt to stop it sliding over his hips. Men! cried the recruiting officer. Take the girl and disarm her. The girl tried to bite her captor. The two newcomers showed no sign of urgency, no sign of military discipline. They ambled over. One took the flesh arm and the other the gun arm, which he tugged back without great violence. The cyborg girl fired. The ray blackened a floorboard. They dragged her to the door they had come through with an air of complete indifference. Apparently, the Graf's subjects were every bit as bored as he was. Except the recruiting officer, who, free of the girl, began to rub his hands together in a show of subservience. They'll be fine additions, Your Honor. Fine additions. The Graf was having none of it. You constantly disappoint me. We need stronger, better recruits if we're to reach our destination, and many more of them. 
At this, the officer became yet more the groveller. His knees bent a little as if at any moment he might fall to the floor. He put his hands together in prayerful beseeching. We will reach it. The Continuum God has promised. The Continuum God cannot be wrong. But, Your Majesty, there are so few new arrivals and so few of them in the bloom of youth. I do what I can. I do what I can. It will be demotion for you if things do not improve. The officer rubbed his hands and sniveled. The next wake cycle might bring a whole new crew, your wondrousness. I am constantly on the lookout here, there and everywhere. But we must trust that the Continuum God will return soon. We all live in great hope and joy in anticipation of that wondrous event so soon to come. The graph bit a nail. He looked through the round windows at the eternal redness. Do we, officer? Do we? The doctor threw up his hands in the universal sign that he had no weapons, but as the robotic man before him had a hand which was a weapon, he wasn't sure how it would go down. My daughter! I haven't seen any young lady hereabouts. In fact, there's a paucity of life of any kind. I did have a young companion with me, a boy, but he seems to have absented himself. You know how boys are. I don't suppose you've seen him, brown hair, star badge, likes maths, no? If you do, send him to me. Easily identified, just ask him a difficult equation. The cyborg saw the long skeletons resting face down on the central console. You killed all these people? He seemed impressed. Goodness, no, they've been in this condition for centuries. I wasn't even born last time they were alive. Well, I don't think I was. I was very young, at least, and had done no space travelling. The gun arm dropped. You don't look like him. Like who? The creature who stole my daughter. He was green. Reptilian. I'm certainly not those things. Not in this incarnation, at least. So, how did he do it? May I put down my hands? As long as they don't go near your pockets. Don't try anything clever. My reactions are faster than yours. I'm sure they are. I would offer you a jelly baby, but I was instructed to give them up. Bad for the teeth. And I do value my excellent teeth. He grinned widely. This reptile snatched her and vanished into air. I thought it was an illusion. I feared madness, but it was real. Some kind of materialization belt. I'll never forget that face. He sniggered. When I find him, I will make him pay. Ah. I wonder if that explains the conspicuous absence of my young friend. The cyborg looked at the sleeping skeletons. Where is this? Where are we? Who are they? Who were they? I wish I knew. I know no more about them than you do. We appear, you and I, to be trapped in the time-space vortex, along with our late acquaintances here. Trapped in the vortex? The cyborg let out a frustrated growl. And shook his head. You look confused, disappointed, if I may say so. I don't understand what went wrong. Our departure was perfect. It was the culmination of generations of research. I know I got the calculations right, but somehow as we entered the vortex, we lost control. The fort was not our technology. We should be in the past, and instead, 
we're outside of time altogether. If you care to look at the screen, you'll get a better idea. All those are time ships of various kinds. The cyborg looked dismayed. I was confident we were the first in the universe to make this discovery. You'd be amazed how many species think they're the cleverest creatures in all creation. And I suppose you had all sorts of plans, conquering and ruling and squashing everyone else like bugs. The yellow eye flared, the red veins pulsed. The Trunker are peaceful beings. That makes a change. The doctor looked at the screen. I imagine some of these others had rather ignoble ambitions. Our ambition was, is, purely benevolent. I am not going to ask how you square that with being a walking weapon, said the Doctor. Purely defensive. We have a right to destroy adversaries. They always say that. All we seek is healing and peace, said the cyborg pompously. Healing? Many generations ago, a virulent disease caused one half of our bodies to decay while the other half remained healthy, the cyborg said. Of course, the sick half invaded the healthy half. Sometimes we died in childhood when we should have been able to live long, full lives. Sometimes we died in young adulthood. Through the mechanical means which you see, we discovered a way to allow our healthy half to live out its full, natural span. Within two years of birth, the operation is performed on all our children. Our casings are as flexible as fleshly matter, and they grow up along with our flesh. By adolescence, both hearts are truly one. Very clever. But we have found... What is your name? Call me the Doctor. All my friends do. Doctor. Doctor. I am Thaves, leader of the Trulka Time Exploration Force. The cyborg became excited, confiding. Doctor, we have found a cure for the dreadful disease. Even better. If we could somehow go back and undo the disease, which has consumed our medical researchers for generations, all those shortened lives, all those logical possibilities put on hold as one problem to all our energy, all our best minds. Except mine. Hence the stab at time travel. It has been the preoccupation of my working life. I and a small team, financed by private capital, a gift to the Trulka race. A peaceful gift to the Trulka race, said the doctor with quiet scepticism. We are a profoundly ethical species. As I say, I am an experimental scientist. I understood that I must be the first to take the risk of this journey. That is the ethical way. All my crew are volunteers. Even the girl. She insisted, Doctor. Begged. She has no mother, so without me she would have been alone. Yes, she came of her own free will. The Trulka looked at the floating hulk. I now know we have achieved successful entry into the continuum. And if we can get in, we can get out. He spun around and went to his craft. I must awaken my crew. The recruiting officer pulled Adric to his feet by the hair. Ah! 
The Graf looked at him with curiosity, even pity. Why be so cruel? The officer sniggered. He does not matter, Your Highness. He will be dead soon anyway. There were footsteps. Analgren came up one of the circular staircases. He nodded to the Graf in a sloppy quarter bow, performed with complete indifference and unnoticed by the Graf, who continued to inspect his nails. The newcomer went up to the far end of the empty barn-like space and onto the metal gantry, which rattled as he stepped onto it. Just as he disappeared, another arrived from the same place, made a tiny nod without looking at the graph, and went down the stairs. This individual was a little beefier than the others, but even his belt was a loose fit. As he passed, Adric noticed that, as well as a gun and a knife, something else was wrapped around his belt, flapping against his thigh, making a light beating sound like a flag in the wind. Oh, yes, I understand that said the graph, returning to the subject of Adric's fate, putting one nail under another to flick away some dirt. Still, why make him cry? It makes me sad. He yawned. He flapped his hand in a gesture of dismissal. Take him away. Do what you must. Indeed, sir, said the officer, genuflecting. He shoved the boy towards the door through which the cyborg girl had gone. The front part of this long, poorly lit room was like a dusty, half-abandoned office with a couple of desks and a few chairs. But neither computers, nor paper documentation, nor any other sign that work was done. There was the frame of a filing cabinet, but no drawers. A dim bulb hung over the desk. The two soldiers were next to each other, chairs tilted back, feet on a desk next to their helmets. The belt of one flopped over the chair. The other had removed his and it lay on the desk. Adric noticed how small the guns were and how rusty the knife. Boots had been thrown into a corner and the soldiers were barefoot, showing the leathery undersides of their feet, the three toes on each with nails like claws. They were in that happily relaxed position which, in many other cultures, would have been ideal for the reading of garish comics. But the Nalgren apparently lacked reading material even of this kind. One of them was drinking a thick liquid. The recruiting officer dragged Adric past the desk and the cabinet, spit flecking his lips. There were no lights at the far end, so all was in shadow. He stopped beside one of many small enclosed spaces with vertical woven bars which made doors. The three other walls and the roof and the floor all thickly woven. More like baskets or cages than cells. He threw Adric into it with a kick. Ah! The basket's hinges rasped shut. The cage was too low for Adric to stand. He dropped to the floor and sat hands wrapped around knees. The cage was flush to the wall, one of a bank of maybe 30 similar cages, and on the opposite, another bank. Perhaps a dozen were occupied. The cyborg was in the one directly opposite him. She squatted on her haunches, her fleshly arm roped horizontally to a bar in a corner of the door, the mechanical arm by a thin, tough string woven through basketry behind her. 
Around the end of the gun, a tin cup had been attached with duct tape. She tugged at her bonds, but they were strong. The fleshly half of the girl's face was wet, with tears of anger, Patrick supposed. Three cages further up on the girl's side was a young man with sky-blue skin, and in another, a green shelled creature with lobster-like claws. The close weave made it impossible for him to see the prisoners on his own side, but he could hear them, the sounds of crying, sighing, snoring. The door opened and another Nalgren came in, dressed in the usual Nalgren gear, but the jacket was grubby and discoloured. He walked with a lively spring. Good afternoon, young ladies and gentlemen, he called. His voice carried up and down the cages. He crossed to Adric. Very young, not exactly muscular, is he? Won't last long. He turned to the officer. Is he our patient? Then to Adric. Come here, boy. The officer steamed rage. Can't you even think? Why would we remove a useful arm? The girl, you cretinous elf! Kindly address me less sharply, good sir, said the newcomer, crossing to where the sideboard girl knelt. By the way, how's the press-ganging business going? He looked back at Adric and at the young cyborg. Not terribly well, methinks. I cannot conjure good candidates out of nowhere, spat the recruiting officer, as much to himself as the newcomer. If it weren't for me, we'd have no labour at all. I'm the only one of us who makes a useful contribution. He glared. I'd like to see you try my job. We all have our specialities, dear fellow. Yours is press-ganging, mine is assisting in the surgery, nursing. We're the luckiest Nalgren in the world. Isn't it lovely to enjoy one's work? Maybe we could swap for a while. I've often thought it'd be enjoyable to put on that unique belt of yours and hop about looking for ruffians. And you can help with operations. Variety is the spice. The recruiting officer ground his jaw from side to side, saying nothing. Or you, the one with the badge, would you like to try out for the position of my trainee? There's always a shortage of nurses, you know. If you do a nice job, I might keep you alive to help with future operations. What is your name? Adric stared at the macabre being with silent loathing. I'll give you a name, Starboy. The head nurse and his trainee, Starboy. He turned his attention to the cyborg. Hello, young lady. The girl growled contemptuously. Ah, I see why I've been summoned. How interesting. A prosthetic arm, which has a gun. Mm. We've never had a girl with a built-in gun. Or is that a gun with a built-in girl? Can't have a naughty young lady firing weapons all over the place, can we? He knelt, face close to the woven bars. I bet you're tough, aren't you, young lady? Your name, girl? Your name? Vula, she said, lips curled in contempt. Vula. Vula, vula, vula. Nice. So you can speak. That's one up on Starboy, and not the only one, I bet. If you and that fresh-faced Starboy were to fight, you'd rend him to shreds, wouldn't you, dearie? Even with one arm. And you'll take his expensive little badge and wear it yourself with pride. Vula spat him, but the spit fell short and wetted one of the bars. Now that is not very ladylike. As the senior nurse, I expect respect. Now, to business. The surgery is through the door at the top there. 
The nurse called to the soldiers at the desk. Do come up here, boys, and lend us a hand. Come along, come along. Let the girl out and be quick about it. The soldier who'd been drinking unlocked the cage with a chunky key which dangled from his belt. He leaned in and untied the girl. The moment she was released, she tried desperately to shake the cup off her gun hand, but it was well fixed by the sticky tape. The soldiers grabbed one arm each. The group started towards the door beyond the cages when the nurse stopped dead. I forgot my trainee! Starboy, come along! We mustn't keep the surgeon waiting. The recruiting officer opened Adric's cage and pulled him out. He dragged him to the door with the rest of the group. In front of the pilot seat of Favre's craft, there projected a yoke, the steering wheel. There were an array of buttons and what looked like a glove compartment. There was a second seat next to it. Between the seats sat a frosted box. At the silo furthest from the pilot's controls, the dead figure leaned against the cracked edge. In the short time since the collision which had killed him, both his natural skin on one side and the artificial skin on the other had started to discolour. Tharvis leant across the second seat and pressed a button. In a moment, the dead body evaporated, leaving at the bottom of the silo a powdery residue. Sad, said Tharvis. Tharvis indicated with a polite gesture that the doctor sit in the pilot's seat. He leaned over the second seat again, towards a vertical line of buttons. He pressed the third from the top. An occupied silo began to fill with yellowish gas. Tharvis went to stand by the silo, waiting for the awakening. Only the one? asked the doctor. It's safer to awaken the crew one at a time, said Tharvis. Suspended animation machinery is exceedingly delicate, as my poor crew member over there demonstrated. The doctor glanced at the frosted box which lay between the seats. It was the size of a small picnic basket, made of what looked like plastic. Thin wires of red and blue and green pressed against the lid, colourful as tropical fish. The doctor was certain this was the Trulka time engine. It was very different from the massive engine which had been destroyed by the arrival of this modest craft, and still more different from the infinitely further advanced time rotors of Gallifreyan technology. And yet the function was essentially the same. In most stages of technological development, the more compact the device, the more advanced. However, the doctor suspected that the frosted box was much simpler than the big time engine. It needed to transport a much smaller vehicle. As an early experiment, which Tharvis had implied it was, this wouldn't be designed to travel far. Indeed, its sole intent had been to return to the point where the wasting disease had begun. The TARDIS could leap from the early formation of galaxies to a point of late entropy, though not to the absolute beginning or end, using less energy than this would to cross a century or two. Tharvis has backed him. The doctor put a finger under the top and found, as he had hoped, that it was a hinged lid. It flipped up easily. Yes, it was the device which had brought the Trulka here. Yes, in a quick look he could see how it worked. He let the lid close. It was a good half an hour before the yellow gas brought the figure in the silo to consciousness. He finally awoke and the bottom half of the silo dropped downward. The top half lifted ceilingwards. The figure swayed. 
He swung his mechanical arm, palm open, and aimed right at the Doctor. Farthest pushed the arm away. The ray ran through the open door to the pile of bones, which exploded like a miniature volcano, and lay there a charred heap. Good defensive tackle, Farthest, said the Doctor, wide-eyed. You were right to warn me about Trulker reactions. Very good shot, sir, he saluted the newcomer. Do you have a sporting background? If not for your commander, I'd be a charred heap. I'd offer you a jelly baby, but I've given them up. I think I still have a yo-yo somewhere. He dipped a hand into one of his deep, deep pockets. Don't do that, warned Tharvis, raising his arm. The doctor took his hand out with a smile, opening it to show it was empty. One thing was plain. Until Tharvis wanted to release him, the doctor was stuck with the Trulker. Until they were ready to search for the girl, Adric would just have to wait. There were no windows in the surgery. There was a single naked bulb. Against one wall stood a big machine, taller than a man and wider than two. Dulled with rust, it looked as though it hadn't worked in a very long time. It looked like junk. Hello! said the nurse to the machine. Meet my new trainee. Starboy, meet the surgeon. On, added the nurse excitedly, pulling a little lever at the top. And with a cough, something inside the box sputtered and various lights began to shine dimly. The nurse turned to the boy. It's been a while since the surgeon has been required to perform a really interesting operation. Would you like to try programming the surgeon, Starboy? Adric refused to catch the nurse's eye. His mind raced. He heard the excited, sadistic breathing of the recruiting officer. Could he grab the girl and escape with her? Would the two young Nargren even care? That would leave only the nurse and the officer. But the officer had guns and a dagger. There was no chance of escape. And anyway, escape to where? Come along, lad, come along, said the nurse, pushing Adric towards the surgeon. Let me show you. The operation is prosthetic arm removal. That button there, see? Then there, then that one. Adric was determined to have nothing to do with this operation. He stared at the surgeon like a curious child. He stood back, arms by his side. He turned around and stared into middle distance. He made a great effort to look vacant. Come on, Starboy! Adric peered around as if he didn't understand. He smiled in a stupid, uncomprehending way. This is a waste of time, said the officer. Subnormal, sighed the nurse with a shake of the head. To the officer he added, You do know how to choose them, don't you? Angered by the implication of incompetence, the officer put his claw on Adric's chin and roughly turned his head left and right. He looks intelligent. Has he perchance spoken in your company? Actual words? Moans and groans. I bet he hasn't any frontal lobes. There's one way to find out. My Good friend, the graph would have a meltdown if we wasted a useful worker, especially an intellectually impoverished one. Often the slow-witted last longest. Poverty of brains compensates for lack of physical power. 
but just in case he conks out fast, I'll put him on the list for posthumous research, so he will have been of some use to us. There was a chart on the wall, and the nurse did indeed write upon it. Starsy-wazy boy! There! Once he pops his clogs, we'll have him up here for the benefit of science. I always say everyone has a talent. Look at his frown, almost as if he understands. I expect he was someone's pet. The nurse pressed a few buttons. The surgeon beeped, and its right side opened with a rickety twang to reveal a space, at the back of which was an upright cushion that might once have been comfortable, but was now threadbare. The two young Nalgren turned the cyborg girl around rather gently, stood her inside the machine back to the cushion. The door twanged shut. The nurse pressed a couple of buttons. Starboy, press this one to start the op, he said, holding the boy's hand up, splaying the fingers and moving the forefinger towards the last button. The boy tugged it away with a cry and, looking on the edge of tears, stepped backwards and simply stood. Oh, you're no fun, spat the nurse and with an angry stab pushed the final button himself. It's not as if it even hurts. The surgeon is nothing if not kind. Aren't you, surgery, Wurgy? The surgeon made a hum, disturbingly uneven, as if power came and went. Somewhere, a very long way from the longship, there was a spacious garden. There were squares of grass divided by paved paths which led to four quarter-moon flower beds at the centre and a fountain. Four stone girls and four stone boys holding overhead between them a bowl from which water sprang and flowed down their bodies, streaking them with jewel-green moss. At three edges were more beds of bright flowers at the foot of high red brick walls bushes showing their own yellow and white and blue blooms. It might have been imagined, had there been an observer to imagine anything, that somewhere nearby a gardener sat in a shed having a quick nap before returning to tend the plants. At the fourth edge, a series of clean, slightly bluish marble steps led to a wide covered sitting place from which could be viewed the beauties of the garden. At the top step on pedestals, four elegantly draped female figures like caryatids stretched arms to the roof. All was silent. Even the fountain's ever-running water was eerily quiet. A sound broke through which did not belong in nature. It sliced across the grass and the flowers and the water. Then all was silent again. But where there had been four pedestaled marble ladies, now there were five. A square of blackness appeared in the new pedestal. A tall, dark-skinned woman in flowing robes of blue and green emerged. She walked down marble steps with clicking heels. Behind her, more tentative, a young man in a suit from 1960s Earth stood in the black space. The black square narrowed to nothing. The young man went down the steps. Isn't it lovely, said Milady, the sound of a fountain. I don't hear anything. Exactly, 
Milady, said Marcel, what are we doing here? Looking for clues. Could you be more specific? We are looking for a needle in a haystack. A needle that devours time. The trouble is, we don't know what it looks like. Or the haystack. Are we looking for some kind of new natural occurrence? Artificial? A machine? What? So we don't know anything. Correct. But at least we're inside the hulk. Inside? It's possible to have an indoor garden, dear boy. The sky. It looks like sky. It certainly isn't. My lady turned around and walked back up the steps. Are we giving up already? Looking, dear boy, looking. Something that devours time. She veered to the left and put her hand against the plinth of the figure next to her TARDIS. She pushed on the plinth with a flat hand. Nothing happened. It was cool stone. She tried the next side. Nothing. She tried the back. Marcel! She called excitedly. Come up here! He ran up the steps. A doorway, she said, holding out her hand. Marcel made to go in, and she touched his shoulder. No, me first, dear lad. We don't know what we might find. She went through the door, robes flapping behind. Well, well, well. He assumed it was safe to follow her in. Milady recognised the room immediately as the interior of a TARDIS. Another TARDIS. To Marcel, however, it looked in no way like the luxurious time-travelling hotel which was Milady's vehicle. Then he saw the circular indents along the wall. Oh. And in the middle of the room, there was a control console with four panels. Type 35 or thereabouts, said Milady, and in very poor condition. No second-hand value. That time rotor hasn't worked in yonks. The top of the back panel had been removed and several charred wires were exposed. Its owner tried to repair it. No luck, poor thing. She glanced at the large glassy tube in the middle. From where Marcel stood at that moment, the rotor was clean and straight, but as he moved behind Milady, he saw that above the exposed panel it had softened and melted and bubbled like blown glass disfigured. So this Ted was pulled into the uh, vortex, or whatever you call it. Vortex, continuum, time corridor, time axis, take your choice, dear Marcel, a rose by any other name. No, not this one. This probably failed of its... Well, it's being rubbish, really. Look. Marcel was standing by a long case clock. Milady went to the clock and gave it a good stare. Its face showed five to midnight. Stars glittered and a moon smiled. A very nice clock. If it is a clock. One thing you don't need in a tetra control room is a clock. It can tell you the time itself. Only a very strange Time Lord would bother with a clock. For an aesthetic reason, it looks nice. I once knew a Time Fellow. His Tedra was like a clock museum. He was a very unusual chap. There was no ticking. The hands were still. She opened the door, stuck her head in. As I thought, 
it's no more a clock than my Ted is a Morris column. Adric was pressed against the back of his cage like a frightened cat. He stared into nothingness. He was so upset that all he could do was pretend he wasn't there. He tried to remember the burble of the Alzarian marshes, the feel on his body of the lake's cool water. He ran in his head over and over the old folk rhyme of the marshes. When mistfall comes, the planet that has slept awakes. He thought of Varsh, of Romana and K-9 and the Traken girl Nyssa. He thought of the Doctor. He supposed he would never see him again. Goodbye, Doctor! The young soldiers had been dismissed and the nurse had returned to wherever he had come from. The recruiting officer sat at the desk. He opened a drawer and pulled out a few sheets of paper. He shuffled them about. It was not reading or writing, merely shuffling, jaw running from side to side with a self-important, concentrating demeanour. Occasionally he darted a look at the cages, then shuffled again. From outside the office door there came sharp cracking sounds, then a clattering as 14 young people of different species were pushed into the room, followed by three Nalgren guards. These were not the indifferent Nalgren of before, these were vicious. Something coiled was flapping from two of the belts. Adric saw what they were, whips, and the third held a whip in his hand. He lashed out at one of the prisoners and screamed. They were herded towards the rows of cages. They were pushed inside. Locks were turned. The recruiting officer looked smug. Next shift! cried the guard with the whip. And his two associates released the other batch of youngsters, including Adric and the cyborg girl and the blue-skinned young man with his pointed ears and his loincloth and the green lobster-like being and a tiny female whose bright orange skin had the shine of a doll. All these creatures were gathered together then, with a crack of the whip, pushed out into the main hall. The Graf was sitting on his wooden throne, wrapped in his voluminous cloak. His head rested in one of his hands, elbow on the throne's arm. He was gazing through the windows. The red sky was bloody at this moment, the painted sun dark orange in reflected light. The Nalgren, cracking his whip, made a vague nod towards the Graf, who made a vague nod back. They stopped at the top of the circular staircase on the office side. First one, then another prisoner was pushed down, so violently that they toppled over and rolled to the bottom. Adric's turn came. He made his face as empty as he could. The guard with the whip pushed him. He was determined to stay on his feet. But he fell over, scraped his knee and thumped step by step to the floor. Vula followed, landing on top of him. He slithered from under her, and with all the tenderness he could muster, he offered his hand and pulled her up. The lobster girl was next, landing in a heap. Adric held his hand to her claw and repeated the action. They were in the galley of the longship. It smelt of stale sweat. It narrowed towards the near end. On either side there were many benches running all the way to the far end, which was crushed and splintered against the hull of the adjoining craft, like the hall above. A couple of benches were broken. 
Along the hull on both sides were circular holes. Most were empty, but in seven there were long wooden oars sticking through the side into the reddish nothingness where the longship floated. A crack of the whip came from the staircase and the vicious guards appeared. The ceiling was only just high enough for the Nargren to stand straight. The slaves made haste to their places while the two new recruits stood aghast. One of the guards thrust Adric towards the bench occupied by the blue boy, who looked desperately sad and tired. The cyborg girl was pushed onto one behind. Then, one of the guards noticing the missing arm, brutally transferred across the aisle. Start rowing! shouted the head guard and cracked his whip. Curling back, it struck the face of the doll-like being, leaving a shiny gash on her cheek. The young alien woman wailed a second and fell silent. You're all healthy, fit people, full of energy, ready for work, just what we need. Start rowing. Row us to the mouth of the river of time so that the Nargren can re-enter the universe just as the Continuum God has promised. Row! Row! Most of the slaves, tired and scared and hungry, reached out to their oars and started rowing. And Adric felt in his heart the aching knowledge that he would never see the Doctor again. Feeling lost and hopeless, he too began to row. Like all beginners, Adric started rowing with a show of enthusiasm, if only to keep the guard's attention off him. The young blue man made as little effort as he could get away with. With his pointed ears and his narrow, puckish face, and, Adric noticed for the first time, his hooves, he might once have skipped merrily through some alien forest making mischief. If this had ever been the case, there was no mischief left in him. The down-drawn line of the mouth looked like it might never rise in a smile again. It took very little time after the badged boy and the blue boy started rowing for Adric to find the oar leadenly heavy. He began to ache all over his arms and his back, and the rough splintered wood made his palms sore. This is really hard, he whispered, removing his hand from the oar for a second. A whip cracked, licking his boot hard enough to hurt his foot. Work! Work! He put his hands back on the oar. Adric spoke under his breath, nominally to the blue boy, but really to himself. 
Have you noticed that the only people around here who show any enthusiasm are the evil ones? But I suppose that's the case everywhere. Decent people shuffle about while the bullies and crazies walk around with a spring in their steps. Perhaps cruelty is life-enhancing. Indeed, the whip-cracking guard looked much happier than the Graf who lorded over him. What I don't understand, chanted Adric, is how a species clever enough to develop time travel could believe this would work. They can enslave aliens for a million years, and this longship won't budge an inch. With a gasp, he completed a turn of the oar. <sighs> and even if it could... There isn't a literal mouth to the time corridor anyway. It's like rowing to the end of the rainbow. The blue boy looked at Adric, but said nothing. It would be wrong to say that Marcel's recent adventures had rendered him incapable of amazement, but he had adjusted quickly to his new circumstances. If the universe was a surrealist poem as it appeared, he accepted that he lived in a surrealist poem. They went inside the second TARDIS. A Ted inside a Ted, said Marcel. This interior exuded a primary coloured brightness. The walls were a lively blue. The console had a nice sheen. The time rotor was slimmer. The buttons and levers were simpler and brighter. Type 44-ish? speculated milady. I'd hate to see a type one. They were dreadful. So uncomfortable by all accounts. All they could do was hop back five minutes, then they exploded. Which must definitely have been uncomfortable. Marcel looked at the console. This doesn't seem burnt out or anything. Try pressing one of the buttons. Which? Any darling boy. He leant towards one. The console was quite low. He put his finger on a button. Oh. It's painted on. Where? It's a toy. A toy? You have toy cars on Earth. Where? This is a toy Ted control room. A playroom. A sort of time machine Wendy house. Type 44s often came with a playroom. Even Time Lords sometimes have families. If you wanted to learn how to fly a TARDIS, this simplified representation of the levers and buttons was a good basic guide. The colours in the time rotor were only painted stripes. There was a football in a corner, half the air gone, and a bright red plastic ladder was propped against a wall. So where's the proper console? Long gone, dear Marcel. For obvious reasons, however massive a Tedra interior may be, the main control room is at the very front. If there's a backup control room, it might be some distance away, but not all that far. So, this playroom got separated from the main part of the Tedra at some point. By accident or design, who knows? One thing is for sure. What? This isn't the devourer of time. Come on! <laughs> The doctor remained in the pilot's seat. Tharvis's colleague was outside exploring the main deck, occasionally looking at the screen showing the sculpture of found ships, occasionally gazing at the tall, narrow skeletons. Tharvis had begun reviving another crew member. The doctor looked once more at the time box and carefully opened it. 
For a mind of his quality, it was a simple device to fathom, and he made a choice and acted swiftly and then shot the box. While waiting for the next revival to occur, Tharves took the co-pilot's seat. Now, said Tharves, I must try to trace her. Vula, my child. Once my crew are fully awake, we'll find her come hell or high water. And whoever stole her will regret it. Tharves put his mechanical hand against a door in the middle of the dashboard. It looked like a glove compartment set between assorted flight information displays, but when the door zipped aside, it revealed a sort of large keyhole. Our machine halves are linked by a program with the ship, so if she still lives, I will be able to pick up colours from her subconscious and get an approximate trace on her. A sort of technological mind-reading, murmured the doctor. Tharvis folded his gun hand into a fist and pushed it inside. There was a click as it locked on. Flesh hand on his forehead, he closed his eyes. Information ran up his arm into his brain. Adric's hands were badly chapped. His arms ached so much he felt it was impossible to turn the oar again. The blue fellow next to him was so tired he wasn't really pushing the oar at all, just leaning against it. There was a cry behind them. The cyborg girl, Vula, fell to the floor, hand to her head. She yelled, Father! And then, very quietly, Father. The Nargren with the whip dashed to her. Get up! Get up! Back to work! He cracked the whip. Unless you feel you cannot do it, in which case... Another crack of the whip completed the meaning. Vula rose and shot a look of hatred at him and took her seat again. Adric turned and threw her a reassuring smile, but her face expressed nothing. She began to turn her oar. Thaves let out a loud roar and pulled his hand from the dashboard. I'll kill them! When I find them, I'll fry them! Vula, is she alive? He swung to the doctor as if the girl's disappearance was somehow his fault. He shouted so loudly, his recovered crew member worriedly put his head through the door. I should meet her as a mild yellow and received a screaming puce. Oh yeah, she's alive, but severely damaged. This was disturbing. If Vula was damaged, could Adric be injured, dead? Have you located her? She's at the far end of the ship, a long way from here. He held out his gun arm. I've downloaded her tracer information. As you get nearer, her location will become more specific. A buzz behind them alerted Tharvis that another crew member was coming to consciousness. He went to the silo just as the figure toppled forward into his arm. A moment of recovery, a sharp look about. Then the new man saw the doctor and raised his gun arm. Tharvis knocked it away. Don't fire! You Trolka are very impulsive said the doctor. We are a peaceful people, doctor. An ethical one. The journey has put my colleagues under great stress. I'm sure you can appreciate that. Oh, yes, said the doctor, with a big, insincere smile. Back in the roofed marble structure looking over the garden, Milady peered at the next caryatid along. Just a statue she sighed. The next one yielded nothing. The next. 
all just statues, she said. She put her hand gently against her earring, as if listening. Nothing, she said on her breath. They walked down towards the fountain. A grey stone girl, a grey stone boy, a grey stone girl, a grey stone boy, all encircling the bowl, holding it aloft. They were exactly what they appeared to be. But the next boy... Look how he's holding his hands up towards the bottom of the bowl, but not touching it. Another Ted. With the smallest pressure of Milady's fingers, the side of the statue opened up. They went inside. This was a bleak, dimly lit space smelling of damp. The walls had once been white, but were discoloured to a brownish yellow. In the middle of the floor, there was what looked like a dark circular patch, which turned out to be a small heap of something. It was rather as if the room had been occupied by a homeless being who had tried to make a fire and had given up, leaving behind a pile of twigs. Milady reached out. A wire, she said. Stiff. Burnt. Once there was a console here, now there's nothing. She let the wire fall from her hand. It turned away like a sad, dying flower. Nothing here to help us. They emerged. They looked up the steps and one by one to all the red walls. A garden of Tardises, mused Milady to herself. Tardises next to Tardises. Tardises inside Tardises inside Tardises. Could be hundreds of Ted throughout the hulk. Could be hundreds of thousands, could be hundreds of thousands in the garden alone. Now that's interesting. The far wall. She pointed to the red brick wall behind a long, well-planted flower bed. Milady and Marcel made long strides to where, as Milady pointed out, the red brick looked fresher. It wasn't brick at all. It was a painted metal door. There had been a casual effort to disguise it. Milady pushed on it and it slid aside. They were in a corridor. The bulkhead was an oak leaf green with leaves painted at intervals along it. The floor was painted in a similar design. The distinctive nature sensibility suggested it was a part of the same craft as the garden, or rather, the garden was a part of it. And a few dozen feet further on, they came to a small glass hothouse. Flowers and leaves alien to Marcel dripped in the wet, steamy air. Beautiful, said Milady, and very interesting. See how the plants are entwined round wires? Understanding dawned. Incroyable. They, they convert their time travel machine into a hothouse for plants? More incroyable than that. This isn't a conversion, dear boy. This is a time driver. Partly organic, partly artificial. Exquisite. Not the most efficient system, I don't suppose, which is one reason it got stuck here, but very clever. Marcel clicked his fingers. He was like Sherlock Holmes solving a problem. Maybe it is what we're looking for, the thing that is drinking up time. The lady looked impressed. 
Good thinking, you sparkling boy. She paused, perhaps giving the matter thought. Mm. It hasn't the strength. This couldn't cause serious damage to the universe if it was the size of a star cluster. I do wish you wouldn't praise me for my intelligence and then tell me I'm wrong. Dear boy, if I was to wait until you were right, there would only be silence between us, and we do all enjoy being praised. Further along the green corridor, they found an open door. The sound of chat came from it, and the smell of cooking. Sentient life, said Milady, holding a hand up to tell Marcel to stay quiet and still. She stuck her head round the doorway. There was a long, rustic table at which seven beings were sitting. In front of them were bowls of what looked like an alien vegetable soup. They were slurping happily and talking until one of them saw the stranger in the doorway and rose with a welcoming gesture. A visitor! How nice! We so rarely get visitors nowadays. Both hands open welcomingly, she summoned Milady in. Milady beckoned to Marcel to follow. The meal was being shared by three generations. The welcoming woman was fairly old, with that healthy disposition of the grandmother who has seen everything and has learned to enjoy what life has to offer. At the table's far end was a male of roughly the same age. He too rose with old-fashioned courtesy and waved to the strangers. In the middle, two males and two females, adults nearing middle age, did not rise but smiled warmly. A child with its back to the door turned and waved her spoon. She could have been no more than ten. They were blue-skinned, the men naked but for loincloths, the women in dresses from neck to thighs. They had pointed ears, they had hooves. One of the younger women was pregnant. Would you like to share our repast with us? said the grandmother. Milady said that having had a large breakfast, she wasn't hungry, though the food certainly looked delicious, but maybe her young friend would like a bowl. With his most charming smile, Marcel declined. A Ted croissant was one thing, but this concoction of nettles and flowers didn't stir his appetite. You're welcome to sit with us for a bit. Take the weight off your hooves. Ah, I see you have feet. Take the weight off your feet then, said the grandmother. We always like to meet strangers. She pulled chairs from a corner and put them next to the young girl. I've always been curious about feet. They seem so impractical. Do you not find they ache rather easily? I've noticed that people with feet do an awful lot of sitting. Of course, stuck where we are, we do rather too much sitting as well. Back home, our ancestors galloped for hundreds of miles without the slightest twinge. Lovely robes, my lady, she added. Young man, do you not feel constrained in those heavy cloths? By all means, take them off. Marcel said he was comfortable in his cloths. We respect all alien customs, said the pregnant woman, even if we do not understand them. We have met so many, many different kinds over the generations since our ship was pulled in here. We only wish for you to be comfortable. You've been here for a long time, asked Milady. There was a sudden boom overhead. The blue people put their hands firmly around their bowls and drinking glasses. I wonder if it will pass through or join our community, said one of the young men. A second boom indicated that the ship had departed the vortex. Everyone relaxed and went back to their soups. It makes a terrible mess when there's a new arrival at lunchtime, said the grandmother. A long time, said the grandfather, returning to the subject and Milady's question. We have lost count of the generations. 
But we are self-sufficient and we can live perfectly happily here, said the second young man. Would you say, asked the lady reflectively, that there has been an increase in the number of uh, new arrivals of ships that fail to escape the vortex lately? Massively, said the pregnant woman. There used to be a novelty. Now it happens too often to count. It's like we used to live in the wilds of nature and some wretch went and built a spaceport at the bottom of our hill, said the grandmother. It spoiled things rather. They talked in a friendly way for a good half hour until Milady said she and Marcel would depart. If you walk further down the corridor, you'll come to the edge of our craft. Beyond it, there are many others to explore, though I'm afraid we're the only people alive in this area nowadays. As far as we know, said Grandad. And remember, our door is always open. Everyone waved goodbye. The young girl looked up at the strangers. She spoke for the first time. Have you seen my brother? This is starting to get monotonous, said the doctor, as the last awakened crew member blasted a shot at him, which was diverted by Tharvez, but only just. A piece of the floor in front of the doctor's boot blew up and radiated heat. I'm beginning to feel like we're in a shooting gallery and I'm the tin duck and there's not even a stuffed bear for the one who gets me. This last person was a woman. Tharvez lined up the four crew members. All your guns are fully charged? Good. We have a long journey ahead of us. Indications are that Voodoo is at least a day's walk away. Remember, we don't know what we might find, so stay alert. And in keeping with Chalka ethics, do not shoot first. The doctor was fairly sure this last point was for his benefit. But it made sense for him to remain with them. It seemed probable that wherever Vula was, so was Adric. At least he hoped so. The unhappy galley crew turned the oars more slowly with each passing minute. This, of course, made no difference to the speed of travel of the longship, which remained at zero knots per hour. The guard cracked his whip, sometimes along the floor and sometimes against the ceiling, where, as it recoiled, it was likely to strike the back of the head of one of the young slaves. Even at slave driving, the Nalgren were pretty inept. If their intention was to encourage greater exertions, they failed. The most efficient rower by far was the cyborg girl. Even with one arm, and that the natural arm, she was able to make a heavy oar turn at a fair rate. Also surprisingly successful in one respect were the small doll-like woman and her companion, the young lobster woman, who stood on their bench and leant forward and pushed their oar from above. This kept the oar in perpetual motion. Had there been any ocean outside, it would have had a negligible effect on the speed of travel, being a dipping rather than a circular motion. But on the longship, it seemed to be regarded as satisfactory. This suggested to Adric that even the Nalgren had little faith in their efforts. Perhaps long ago they had believed in the river of time, in the journey to the mouth, in the hope of returning home. But now all that remained were obsession and boredom, and habit. No wonder the Graf was in such an unchanging state of ennui. If nothing else, recruiting slaves and working them to death added a bit of colour to the day. 
The oar was now crossing under the blue boy's armpits. His head had dropped forward. He was breathing very lightly. He was fast asleep. Adric didn't want to wake him. He made mild grunting noises to give the guard the impression of work, but his strength was gone, and the oar scarcely moved at all. Milady and Marcel found that the blue people had been right to say there wasn't much life in their part of the hulk. They wandered through dead ship after dead ship. Holes had been blown in walls so that only the variations of styles indicated they were crossing from one ship to another. Milady exuded apparent calm, but Marcel noticed that occasionally she cupped her hand to her earring and put it down again with a worried look. They passed from a small battered spacecraft into... into, of all things, a town. A town with shiny moving walkways which were unmoving, an overhead railway, shops and a park. There were empty shop fronts, office buildings. There were street lights, road signs, empty litter bins. Un ville, said Marcel. In a time machine? Yes, a brand new town being moved in time and space. As for why, said Milady, I don't suppose we will ever know. Abandoned, said Marcel. Not abandoned, dear garçon, said Milady. There would be traces of old life. Everything is spick and span. It's never been occupied. They glanced in display windows. No stock, no old tins or dried out flowers or what have you. Look, shop signs unpainted. She turned in a slow circle. I wonder if it's all an illusion. A projection. She touched one of the windows, then a door, then a street lamp. It's all quite real. This is a town that was built at one point in time and was being transported to another. Oh, now that's a curiosity. At the edge of the road, parked by a bus shelter, was a large white double-decker bus. It didn't quite fit. There was grime on the sides, the tyres were worn, there were scratches here and there. And while the shops were nameless, waiting for stock and a purpose, an advertising slogan along the side of the bus promoted some form of broadcast entertainment. A very strange half-circle of a head, humourless, violent, forbidding, stuck out from a grey spacesuit. Sontarans, the first thousand amazing years! A documentary series coming to a channel in your galaxy. What are Sontarans? They look pretty ugly. That's surely a product of the Sontaran Truth Council, which means it's propaganda and lies. Could this be a Sontaran autobus? They don't use public transport. But notice how battered this funny old thing is. The only grubby thing in this brand new town. The windows were blacked out. The double doors in the middle opened with a soft buzz. Another Ted. Possibly. Do owners of Ted never bother to lock them? Except you, of course. Marcel remembered how he'd fallen into Milady's craft, how she had pored over her manual. When you worked out how. 
They always do unless they've had to leave in a terrible hurry. My Tedra has a subsonic key. She tapped her earring. Operates through this. And what they beheld behind those two doors was so unusual, even Milady hesitated. There was a console of a sort in the middle of the room. There were circular indents around the walls. There were coat hooks. There were doors to other rooms. But the whole place was built of cold, thick, grey stone. The console showed no dials. It was a plain stone table divided into six sections. Vines grew from a crack in the floor up to the stubby round chimney of the rotor which it enwrapped. It was like the abandoned tabernacle of an ancient mystic religion. Now this, said Milady, really is baffling. They both touched the console, felt the cool on their fingertips. Through the far door they came to a corridor and beyond that to a substantial square hole in the ground. A swimming pool, said Marcel. Looks like it. Pity it's empty, I could use a swim. He sat on the edge and took off his boots and socks and wiggled his toes. Milady took off her shoes and joined him. They sat together, feet dangling. Around the walls, vines grew prolifically. Everything they said, even in whispers, was sent back to them by the cool, hard walls. I had always thought this was merely a legend. There were children's stories about a wizard who believed he could summon all natural things to help him travel through time. Wizards, said Marcel with a grin. I thought you didn't believe in wizards. Children everywhere will believe in magic, even Gallifreyan children, until they learn that the truth is infinitely more interesting. So a wizard built a stone time machine. In the myth, it could only go backwards, and only as far as the origin of the stone it was constructed of. The stone contained all its own history, just as the fossil and the bird are all one, one thing at a different stage. But you couldn't wave a wand over the fossil and watch it fly away. Exactly. The flying bird is still in it somewhere, but it will never fly again. Anyway, that was the tale. If we believe what we're seeing, it wasn't just a tale. A stone time rotor. Somehow it brought this machine here. It worked. It didn't work. Milady shook her head firmly. It couldn't have done. It didn't move through time of its own volition. My guess is it got caught up by a time wind. Perhaps the tailwinds of a travelling Ted, which tugged it into a relative dimension and plopped it down here. <laughs> I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Marcel let out a burst of laughter. Pardon, my dear Marcel? Earth culture, he said dismissively. Funny, he said, remembering... The wizard was a fake in that story, too. A time wind. Whew. You have seen a stone roll down a hill without an engine. Somehow this was blown on a time wind. The creator may have thought he had made a great breakthrough, and in fact he had, but not the one he thought. The first being ever to travel on a time wind. But he had a, what do you call them, a chameleon circuit. She shook her head slowly. 
somehow entering the vortex, the travelling Tedra and this, maybe only for a nanosecond, who knows, they became one, like Siamese twins. Then this fell away, the chameleon circuit was triggered. That would explain why the bus, a fairly good choice with this setting, is not quite right. The circuit had no time to make a full reconnaissance. It guessed. Pretty much. And the other, the other Ted, probably went on its merry way, oblivious to its hitchhiker. They sat in silence for a long while, deep in their thoughts. Does this room carry excess time energy? She shook her head slowly. Surely not sufficient to threaten the fabric. Once again, her hand wandered to her earring. Then she sprang to her feet. Come along, Marcel. They went back to the town. At the end of the shopping street, there was a theatre. The front of house display cases were blank, as if waiting for its first touring production to arrive. To its right, a tinny black wall was the hull of yet another ship. A charred circle made an entrance. The young blue man asleep on the oar rocked sideways. An arm fell away from the bar of the oar. The second arm followed and he slid in an oddly balletic movement to the floor, where he lay on his side. Adric let go of the oar. He's in trouble, he cried, kneeling down. Vula and the guard reached his bench at the same moment. Adric was trying to pump his heart and Vula began the kiss of life. The guard struck the floor with his whip. The whip licked Vula's forehead and she drew away. The blue boy stared upward. Adric put his hand over the boy's face and gently closed the eyes. This offended the guard. It is not for you to deal with. It's for me to deal with. Adric went back to his place on the bench. Work! Work! He put his chapped hands on the oar. The guard went to the foot of the leftward staircase where there was a little bell. He rang it three times, three short, dry trills. The blue boy's eyes had half opened and seemed to be watching while Adric made an effort to turn the oar. It was some minutes before first the recruiting officer appeared and then a few seconds later, the nurse. The young slaves could hardly be unaware of the ruckus, but they continued to work or to perform actions which passed as work. Another one gone, said the guard. It wasn't my fault, honest, he just gave out. Why are they all so weak and worthless? Spat the recruiting officer. The grav will moan and groan about this. He put his screwed up face, spittle on his lips, right next to the guard. You don't have to put up with his nag, 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 you buffoonish incompetent, but I do. He made his voice satirically high and weasel-like. Yes, sir. No, sir. Three bags full, sir. That's what it's like for me. And it's so hard to find replacements. How are the new ones doing? The girl, okay. The boy, not so well. Oh, star boy. You're not going to let us down, surely, said the nurse nonchalantly. Ah, well, the sooner you give up the ghost, the sooner the surgery gets you for research. One of the bored men from the office appeared, yawning at the bottom of the steps. He had summoned the energy to put on his boots. The nurse turned to him. 
Bring the blue one up! The newcomer stifled another yawn and dragged the dead boy from under the bench. He threw him over one shoulder as if he were an empty backpack and went up the stairs, the hooves swaying lightly against his chest. The nurse followed. Treat him with care! We don't want him damaged! Yes, thought Adric. Treat him like dirt while he's alive and then treat him with care once he's dead. The recruiting officer looked at the slaves on their benches with total contempt. What a useless, undeserving bunch you are! He turned to the guard. Make them row twice as hard! Yes, sir, said the guard. His belt had sunk to the middle of his thighs and with a firm, prideful tug, he pulled it up to his waist. He cracked his whip. The little blue girl was clutching her small, hoofed, floppy blue doll close to her as she wandered in the garden. At the marble steps, there was a new column. She was certain of it. She counted. Yes, there had been four, and now there were five. This was interesting, but not wholly incredible. Sometimes new things appeared, and sometimes old things disappeared, and that was the way it was in the garden. She wondered whether her missing brother might be inside the new column. She hoped he might come around it now with a laugh and a hop. She'd been annoyed with him for going away, and she said to the doll, When he comes home, I would certainly be cross with him. But if her brother came out of that new column, she would hug him and hug him and hug him. The column was consumed in a halo of light. It moaned and disappeared. It hadn't stayed long. Well... Sometimes they didn't. Things were here and things were gone. She went into the column next to it, through the first room, towards the long-case clock with the moon and the sun, into the clock and towards the toy console. She put her doll on the console against the painted time rotor. Her doll looked happy sitting there. The little girl began to kick the ball around. This is fun, she said to the doll. But it was not as much fun as when she'd had a brother to kick the ball around with. Well, they'd left the empty town sometime before Milady and Marcel and were now back in the more familiar terrain of spaceship corridors, bulkheads, decks. And they came at the end of an overly lit corridor to a burnt-away entry into a dark one which had cobwebs around the upper edges. So there are spiders alive in the hulk. I hope they're small ones, said Marcel. I've never liked spiders. There are plenty of very large spiders in the universe, some highly intelligent. Why did I know you were going to say that? Because you're a bright spark, dear lad. He wasn't bright enough to shine light down the dark corridor ahead. A corridor dark enough that it was like going into the haunted house of boyhood nightmares. Marcel had once, as a very small child, been on a ghost train at a carnival, where deep, crazy laughter swirled and skeletons jumped out and phantoms sprang from graves. When the journey had finished, he had been shaking and crying. His parents and sister had laughed at him and he had briefly hated them for it. He stood nervously at the entrance, looking into the thick, webby blackness. Milady had gone ahead, 
He could hear her footsteps clanging on an iron floor. He called to her. I don't want to go in here. I don't like the dark. Her voice was far away and echoey. That's fine, dear Marcel. Stay where you are and wait for me. And, of course, his absurd male ego. He knew this was exactly what it was. His absurd male ego, as he remembered his sister laughing at him outside the ghost train, would not permit him to hover at the entrance like a frightened boy while a woman treated exploring a haunted spacecraft as a lark. I'm coming, he called. Heart pumping fast, he went through the door. Cobwebs brushed his face. He sweated. He hadn't known how scared of the dark he could still be at 22. At the turning around which he saw Milady go, floor-level emergency lighting was activated, throwing up pale yellow beams. Marcel wanted to be away from the darkness and inside the light. Bad light was better than none. Under the delusion common among humans that light meant safety, he hurried on. Just as he caught up with her, Milady stopped at a doorway to what looked like a control room. Something moved overhead. The breath of a ghost. Wind lifted Marcel's hair. He let out a boyish squeal. Relax, dear garçon. We've activated air conditioning, that's all. The breath of a ghost. Boo! The corny trick of a ghost train. And... Milady parting cobwebs like curtains, they went through into a shadowy circular space lit only by the floor lighting. The walls were dotted with the levers and displays of an advanced craft. The poor lighting gave the impression these banks of machinery had sagged, like paintwork that has dripped. Marcel thought of the long faces of sad old men. This was a room full of the giant faces of sad old men peering through the dark. No, it was not an impression. The banks really had sagged, melted. And against the banks at the long wall, under the sad faces, were several arced metallic figures, no more than five feet high. Some were blue, some red, some white. The light, rising upward, showed two horizontal arms coming out of each, their shadows, black sashes across the upper bodies. Mon Dieu! The things that attacked Paris! Milady grabbed his hand. Relax, sweet boy, relax. They're all quite dead. These figures had been softened and distorted by heat, then hardened by cold. Their grills were wonky, the eyepieces curved like waiting snakes. The perfect semicircles of the heads had fallen inward. The small lights at the top were softened yellow marks mixed into the blues and reds and whites. The circular spots were long ovals. The back halves had flowed into the banks behind like boiling lava, so they had become one. One of the eyepieces stared right up to the ceiling. The head had been opened. Something had tried to escape. At the grill's rim, there was flaky organic matter, just discernible in the dark, a sort of dried paste. The mournful old faces looked down on the metal husks. In sadness or in judgment, who could tell? On top of his terror... 
Marcel felt overwhelmed with loathing for these beings which had destroyed his city. He thought of Leon Paul, that morning kiss, a day at the box office thinking about Le Champ Magnétique, a warm spring day, April the 8th, 2164. He went to one of the lifeless cases and kicked it. Then he kicked another, punched another. He dropped to his knees and hit the skirt of a fourth repeatedly. Then he began to sob. Milady pulled him up and held him. These things, these destroyers, they're everywhere, everywhere. Their claws have stretched out into large parts of the universe. She patted his back gently. Why is there so much vileness, so much evil? This question, which had burdened philosophers and thinkers throughout eternity, brought no answer because there was none to give. Try your eyes, Marcel, said Milady, and he took a corner of her robe and wiped it over his face. He managed to smile. He bent and brushed his hands all across his knees. I wouldn't want my new suit to get grubby. Dear Marcel, you sound like an Englishman. He drew down his mouth in the way of someone who has been insulted and followed it with a small, light laugh. But the laugh died as they saw in the far corner yet another of the metallic conquerors, some feet from the nearest wall, unmelted, unburnt, complete. There is nothing to fear, my boy. It is dead. Milady sauntered over and put her hand on it. She began to walk around it, hand on the casing, until at the back, at a small pressure, an expanding line of light marked an opening door. It never lived. A good chameleon circuit always chooses the best disguise, she said. And what better disguise on a Dalek ship than a Dalek body? The exhausted slaves went back to their benches and their oars. The guard slapped his whip furiously against the floor. Now, for the first time, it came to Adric that the guard didn't want to do any serious damage to any of them. He wanted to be seen to drive them, but he did not want them to die. When a slave died, he got into trouble, and he didn't like trouble. Adric perceived that like a minor lackey in any irrational dictatorship. He needed to please his superiors to be safe, but it was impossible to decipher what would please them at any particular time. So, the prisoners turned their oars, or they didn't, and the guard shouted and whip-cracked. And so the time passed. There came a point where the slaves couldn't do anything except rub their aching backs and their chapped hands, except for the blank-faced cyborg who continued to row. She's a tough one, no mistake, thought Adric. It might have been late afternoon, if such a thing existed in the vortex, when feet shuffled busily overhead. There was the scrape of a heavy wooden object being moved. Then there were sonorous chimes, like a summons to church on medieval earth. The guard bellowed, Stop! at once 
Only the cyborg girl was actually still rowing, and she continued, oblivious to everything, until the whip struck the edge of her bench. Stop rowing! She let go of the oar. The bored duo from the office were now at the foot of the stairs. Take him up, said one to the guard, yawning. And be quick about it, said the other, yawning louder. The guard went down the row of benches, harshly pulling each individual to their feet until they all stood in a queue down the aisle. Follow! Follow! He went up the stairs. All the teenage aliens but Adric and Vula clomped up after him. Adric and Vula held back, throwing each other questioning looks. A bored guard said, Go on, kids, let's get it over with and pushed them ahead of him. At the top of the stairs, the slave group from the earlier shift stood in a ragged line. One by one, they were pushed to their knees, the current shift likewise. The throne had been turned around so that it faced into the big open space at the heart of the hall. The graf's cloak hung over the edges and both elbows projected beyond the wooden arms. His helmet's great horns curved above the throne's back. The table and the dusty trunk had been moved to a corner next to the wardrobe. Many Nalgren were circulating, a couple of hundred at least, with their wooden helmets and their loose belts and their knives and guns which seemed too small for their big green hands. They talked to each other in low whispers, wandering from one to another. A few more came from the metal gantry, nodded vaguely towards the graf who didn't bother to nod back. Some of them sipped from wooden goblets. Though the kneeling prisoners staring at the floor were tense, the Nalgren were almost too relaxed. The atmosphere was a cross between a cocktail party and a gathering for a funeral. A door at the far end of the hall opened and a Nalgren appeared, a long, priestly white cloak over his green clothes. His wooden helmet was painted white too. It was massively horned like the grass. He passed the first line of three pillars and came to the middle of the hall, ritualistically swinging side to side a lidded silver container hanging from a chain. The gathered Nalgren grew quiet for the spectacle, though without marked excitement. Some of them checked their nails, one or two stared at the ceiling. The priest came right down the centre of the hall in a peculiar side-to-side dance walk and stopped a few feet from the throne. He bowed deeply to the graph, whose helmet bobbed in a small nod. The silver cup was swinging madly now. The priest turned his back on the congregation and began to intone sonorously, his voice bouncing around the vast, empty space, off the wooden pillars and walls and the arched, barrel-like ceiling. O oh God of the Continuum, many eons ago we were brought into the place of red skies by our evil oppressors. You, in your infinite wisdom, eliminated those oppressors. The Nalgren mumbled, We thank you for that, O Continuum God. In your righteous anger, you told the oppressors, My chosen people, the Nalgren, are not to be slaves. You sent a great illness to blight the oppressors. You gave us the gift of the longship, O loving God of the Continuum. So they were slaves thought Adric. The enslavers were slain. The cup swung now in a pendulum-like rhythm. Perhaps it symbolised time. 
We thank you for your goodly supply of labor to bring us towards the land of bright stars. We thank you for that, O Continuum God, said the crowd without passion. Most of the kneeling slaves said half-heartedly, We thank you for letting us serve the Nalgun. We are naught without the Nalgun. Adric made silent movements with his lips. Vula, who stared blankly ahead, was kicked by a guard. She didn't respond, remained silent and staring. We know that in your great goodness you will soon return, as you promised your people the Nalgren, to guide us with your all-comforting cloak back into the place of stars and time. While we await your return today and all days, we know you will show us your face, the face that promises all. Oh, show your face, great god of the Continuum. Show your face to us now. Sail to us on the red waters of the River of Time. In the centre of the hall, a tiny light, no larger than a firefly, flashed. There was a distant groan. With a final swing of the silver container, the priest flipped open its lid and upturned it. A red liquid splashed to the floor. Adric had not noticed before that at this place the floor was stained a watery red. This ritual had been performed thousands or millions of times in the same spot. The twinkling firefly began to expand. Now it was candlelight. Now it was a headlight. Now it was a glowing ball. Now it was a small sun. The priest cried out ecstatically, The god of the Continuum smiles upon us! And as it expanded, so the sounds it made grew louder. Now there was the deep pain call of some big animal right in the middle of the great hall. To the boy Adric, a very familiar call. Adric raised himself onto his haunches. He began to mutter under his breath as if in fervent prayer, or as if perhaps speaking in tongues. No, surely not. It can't be. No, no. The god of the continuum began to materialise. The Doctor and the Trolker walked through several ships, one burnt-away wall leading into a walkway, ending in another burnt-away wall. It could be assumed that some long-dead creatures investigating their new surroundings had burnt those holes at first trying to find an escape, perhaps, and when that proved impossible, to explore. When one species had met another, had there been cooperation or had there been war? Many walls showed random marks of searing which suggested gun blasts. Occasionally, there was an intact door, wide open, beyond it the open door of the next ship. Perhaps these had been open as a sign of welcome. So long was it since there had been life in these ships that even skeletons were rare. Often, dust was the only trace of life. Usually the doctor stalked ahead of the Trulker, but sometimes he lingered behind, appearing to luxuriate in the unknown. Thavis tried to make conversation, but discovered little beyond that he had long been a traveller, landing here and there at random. 
Once, the doctor remarked while puzzling over a computer bank built of wood and plastic that he had seen a lot less than there was to see. He knew a lot less than there was to know. It must hurt, supposed the Trolka leader, for him to walk through all these alien places, these museums, without being able to stop. A pyramidal structure, a forest of iron, a library with no books, books with no library, a purple room full of purple plants, a morgue of robots. Tharvis himself had no interest in any of these. Curiosity could wait. He wanted to find his only child. Undoubtedly, somewhere in this hulk, even now, other living beings were to be found. Among the big silences of all those gone to their graves, there were surely other survivors. But in one respect, it must be assumed the doctor would have preferred not to find any life at all, because it was unlikely to survive an encounter with the Trulka. At nearly every turning, one of Tharvis's jumpy associates would blast a shot down the corridor. Really, you must stop them, said the doctor. They are on high alert, doctor. If we do not shoot, we will be shot. We are a peaceful people, but we have a right to defend ourselves. You don't have the right to shoot everything willy-nilly. Ah, you have never been in a war, doctor. The doctor turned to Tharvez at this, showing real anger. He spoke very quietly, but with teeth gritted. I've been in more wars than you will ever know. And strode ahead, hands in pockets. Suddenly, something swept overhead with a movement of air like a bat. It was a small, black, round object with a white circle in the middle. It looked a bit like a flattened billiard ball. It spun around and around and then away, too fast for the observers to get a good look. One of the Trulka raised a gun arm, but the ball had turned a corner. Tharvez would stop every so often and put his hand to his head. It was impossible to make the journey to his daughter as the crow flies. They were stuck with the winding paths laid out for them. Tharvis feared most of all, finding that he was moving away from, not towards Vula. But the information that came up his arm told him that in general they were moving closer. She still lives, he said. But what a long journey it might prove to be. Until they found themselves outside another ship. A shiny, compact, clean, well-lighted place. Double doors open, ramp down. Utterly silent. So silent and bright that the Trulka didn't so much as raise their gun arms. Gingerly, Tharvez went up the ramp. There was a surprise as wonderful as rain in the desert. A row of hover vehicles. That'll speed things up, said Tharvez with excitement. There were eleven in a neat row against the curved wall. They looked as if they had just been delivered fresh from the manufacturer. Simple, white, anti-gravity vehicles. Ten for a single passenger each, consisting of no more than an oval platform, a vertical frame and a straightforward control bank. The eleventh was wider, with a star-shaped base for two or maybe three passengers. For an average humanoid, the control banks were slightly lower than ideal, but no one was about to complain. Tharvez climbed onto the bigger, star-shaped craft and pulled a lever. A 
small engine quietly purred to life. There was a sudden blast of a Cholka gun, followed by a blast from elsewhere. One of Thavis's kinsmen was slapped against the wall and flopped down dead. The doctor and the other Cholka pivoted to see where the second blast had come from. A chilling electronic voice spoke one blood-freezing word. Exterminate! A single entity rolled towards them. A Cholka fired at it. The blast bounced off. An answering blast threw her backwards. She was dead before she hit the ground. Yet another made to fire and was dead before he raised his arm. Exterminate! Behind the killer, another three similar beings circled smoothly round the corner from one side and another three from the other. All were white but the one in the centre, which was glistering gold. The line of seven faced the three surviving intruders through impassive ice stalks. They repeated that single ominous word cacophonously. Hoping to find life hereabouts, but not your kind of life, exclaimed the doctor. The polished golden figure in the centre spoke. Hold fire! Six eyepieces swivelled to the leader in almost a choreographed movement. The gold Dalek glided towards the doctor. You know of us? There was a tense silence. Was the gold Dalek scanning memory banks? The remaining Trolka soldier raised his gun. Without even moving its head, the gold Dalek shot at it. The arm tore away and smashed against the bulkhead and shattered. The Trolka toppled down the ramp. Sharp, twisted metal prongs projected from his torn shoulder. A reddish-brown blend of oil and water seeped from the wound. A metal coating slid into place at the shoulder blade, stanching the wound but leaving the ugly prongs exposed. Those prongs scratched the wall as he tried to sit up, leaving a thin, vicious silver gash. But he was alive. This was surely not blind luck. The creatures had a use for him. The gold Dalek fired again, disarming Thavers, who let out a low, furious moan as his arm dropped away. The gold Dalek looked at the Doctor, holding his gaze for several long moments. This one is known to the Daleks. He has interfered with our plans before. Another Dalek spoke. He must be exterminated. The gold Dalek swung around. He will be of use to us. 
take him into the control area with these others? Wait, 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 said three Daleks, swooping balletically behind the Doctor and the two Trolker, prodding them. The Doctor staggered. You will surrender? Of course, sir, said the Doctor, his hands shooting straight-armed over his head, almost in mockery. The Daleks, lacking humour, could not recognise it in others. The gold Dalek's eyepiece tilted downward. Expressionless and yet contemptuous, it said, Dispose of the corpses. One of the others said, I obey. The Doctor had encountered the Daleks often across his regenerations and at many points in their history. He had materialised on Earth in 2164, not many weeks after Marcel Chowdhury had disappeared. Though in the Doctor's case it had been London, just as the Daleks were tasting triumph. He had said farewell to his granddaughter Susan there. And much later in his life, but much earlier in theirs, he had witnessed the founding. Davros. A good mind, distorted and unstable. He had had the chance to wipe them out then, once and for all. You can't doubt it, an imploring voice had said. But he had doubted it. Courageous, foolhardy. Perhaps some memory of Time Lord ethics. Some memory of the rules of the Watchers. He had no right to wipe out a whole race. That made him just like the Daleks, didn't it? But if he had... If he had, would the universe not now be a better place? If he had, he wouldn't be their prisoner now. If he had acted differently. You can't doubt it! This Dalek ship was smaller than most. Some kind of experimental ship? Were these Daleks researchers, like the Trolker? Probably. It was wise during dangerous early trials to put as few as possible into harm's way, even for the Daleks. The Daleks had long been obsessed with the conquest of time. They tried often. Maybe there were other Daleks here in the hulk of lost ships. Earlier or later failures? Thaves stood in silence, fuming, and yet feeling for these eerie, gliding killers a sort of admiration. They certainly knew something about discipline. The universe could use more of this kind of discipline. Leaders strong and unforgiving. The lead learning respect. Under other circumstances, he could imagine working with them. He looked at the space where his gun arm had once been. They were the enemy, and he would show them no quarter. And if, when, he got the chance to destroy them, in their final moments they would bitterly admire him, as he bitterly admired them now. They went some way round the circular corridor into the main control room. It was ovular and dotted with machinery. The six white Daleks encircled the three prisoners. The gold Dalek spoke. You are the one called the Doctor. Your faces are recorded in the memory of the Daleks. We do not forget. You have tried to interfere with our plans before. You have always failed. 
Not always, said the doctor with a toothy grin. Our creator, Davros, knew of you. You tried to exterminate the Daleks. You failed. As always, you failed. We emerged stronger than ever. Now you will assist us. Must I? We will punish these creatures if you do not do as we instruct. Why not let them go? Why destroy them? Not destroy. Punish. They will suffer. You are sentimental. You will work with us to stop their suffering. Will I? Escort them to the time engine. Way away! Two of the white Daleks pushed the Doctor and the Trolka back into the corridor, on the other side of which were several more doors. Behind them came the gold Dalek. The nearest door phosphoresced open, and they all went through into a small room thick with technology. In the centre stood a structure of some glassy substance, completely surrounded by an ovular control panel. The design had an echo of a TARDIS. Had they at some time used one as a model? Had they pulled it apart to find its secrets? Had the Time Lords unwittingly showed the Daleks the way into the Vortex? We have entered the Time Stream successfully, but we have been unable to escape it. Our machinery is perfect. There is no error in the design. You must adjust the engine so that we can leave the Vortex. I'm not an expert on these things. Think of me as a taxi driver. I can make a car nip around corners, but don't ask me to build one. You lie. You are the Time Lord of Gallifrey. Not a very important one. You lie. You know this technology. You understand it. The gold Dalek swiveled. Take these others to the holding cell. I obey. The Trulka was shuffled towards the door. Wait a moment. I will need an assistant. These beings have no intellect. On the contrary, Thaves there is a time scientist, said the doctor. He probably knows more than I do, he added with false modesty. The gold Dalek appeared to be reflecting. You are not to be trusted. Take both of them to the cells. Two white Daleks took Thaves and his compatriot away. The gold Dalek swiveled around. Do not try to trick us or you will all be exterminated. You will be overseen by Dalek scientists. A door at the back phosphoresced and two new Daleks skimmed forward. They were coloured a very deep purple which lent them an imperial air. One of the purple Daleks spoke. We will observe your work. We must escape the Vortex. If you cannot help us, you will be exterminated. I thought as much, said the Doctor. From the floor around the console, there rose four slim poles, topped with circular eyepieces, very like those on the end of Dalek eye stalks, black with a white disc, not unlike a billiard ball. Their places marked the corners of a square, meaning every part of the console could be viewed. (laughs) 
Above them, four screens dropped from the ceiling, showing what the eyepieces saw. These will follow and record your every move. The doctor peered at the time engine. He opened a panel and exposed some of the innards. He angled his body so as to block the view of the nearest eyepiece. Ah, he said, pretending to understand. He reached a hand towards a wire. An image on one of the screens showed movement, like a handheld camera. The recording eye had risen from its pole and swept down to the console, hovering near the doctor's hand. Hello, said the doctor. Type 40, said Milady. Never liked these, too much white. She looked more closely at the console. Seems to be operative. One of the panels under the console had been removed and wires ran along the floor. A comfortable black leather armchair faced away from them towards the scanner screen, but the screen was closed. These tedros are always empty, said Marcel. Where is everybody? We Gallifreyans are adventurous by nature, dear boy. Those of us who travel are. We'd be out and exploring in no time. Not all of us. A small broken voice came from the armchair, which spun. The figure in the chair was tiny and impossibly fragile, like a grotesque newborn and yet ancient. His head was disproportionately large, completely bald, eyebrowless. The lips were so narrow they were hardly there. The features creased and dried. There was a small, brittle nose and poorly seeing eyes with pupils the white of an eggshell. His skin was as white as printing paper, as if no blood flowed beneath. The tiny feet at the end of thin, bony legs hung over the edge of the cushion. It could now be seen that the wires running from the console disappeared into the bottom of the chair and came out again at the end of its arm, then ran under the man's plain white jerkin and separated, some to the left, some to the right, linked to two hearts. The old man and the chair and the console were one being. Two white Daleks pushed the cyborgs into the corridor, which curved away on both sides. The design of the small craft was fairly easy to guess at. The corridor wrapped around the ship. If they were to run around it now, they would soon come to the main entrance and the row of small vehicles. Fathers wondered whether it was worth trying to make a break for it. They'd have to abandon the Doctor, but war is war. No, without weapons or the benefit of surprise, they'd be doomed. At the centre of the ship was the large main control room. At the outer edge were these smaller rooms, the time travel room they had just left, the cells to which they now came, offices of some kind perhaps, even sleeping quarters perhaps. Presumably Daleks had to rest or recharge in some way or another, though fathers could not imagine how. A door phosphoresced, they were pushed into cells. Inset into one wall were shallowly concave spaces of different heights and sizes. Several of them could hold a trulker. 
A Dalek pressed a button to the left of the first of these and Tharvis was prodded into it. A metal cuff sprang out and snatched his remaining wrist, pinning his hand to the wall. Another sprang out from the other wrist, but there was none to catch and it snapped back. A bigger brace swept the waist, pulling him towards the wall of the pen. At a similar concave space several feet away, these actions were repeated. Instinctively, the Trulka's shoulder twitched to raise his gun arm. He let out the furious growl of an angry being who has been checkmated. Imprisoned, the Trulka were helpless. The white Daleks slid out, the door flashed shut, and there was nothing for them to do but stand there. One eye of each Trulka was impassively shining. The other was aflame with rage. Thave's admiration for the Daleks was wearing thin. The purple Daleks slid to the main computer bank at the long wall. A number of screens lit up on the main bank. Four repeated the pictures of the Doctor supposedly at work on the time engine. The others showed fast-moving images from throughout the Hulk. One of the Daleks operated a series of buttons while the other watched as the images moved, slowed, stopped still, sped up. Some were of places the Doctor had seen. The Forest of Iron, the Pyramid. Some he had not seen. An abandoned bus, what looked like a shopping street. Some of the images settled for a while, some sped on. One flew towards an old London police box, but the Dalek scientists showed no interest and the image zoomed on. Another hovered in some kind of medical centre, lined with rusty wrought iron bedsteads, without sheets or mattresses. The information was being sent by a number of flying eyepieces. One of these zipped down a darkened, silent, cobwebby corridor. It spun around corners. It came to a control room lit by floor-level emergency lighting. At the back, there were melted shapes. The eyepiece stopped at one. The doctor looked up, watched intently from his place of work. Daleks, said one of the observing scientists. The other rifled through memories. The second Dalek time mission. They were presumed lost. They did not report back. They failed. They did not fail. The Daleks never fail. They served their purpose. The flying eyepiece moved from one to the other of the dead ancestors. We must investigate. We must find out why they perished. They are from the distant past. They are of no practical interest. The eyepiece discovered a Dalek which, though quite still, was seemingly undamaged. That Dalek escaped the heat. It is dead. There is no life there. These are of the past. They were inferior Daleks. They served their purpose. They took us one step closer to the ultimate conquest of the universe. Now we approach the reality of that triumph. We look only to the future. We look only to our ultimate success. The eyepiece whirled away. It came to a garden. It hovered over a fountain. It spun around. It sped to the four caryatids at the top of the marble steps. It went around and around one of them and spotted a sliver of light in the back. The blue girl had failed to pull the door shut. The eyepiece nosed through the crack. 
one of the Gallifreyan time machines. The machines called TARDIS. The eyepiece swirled. It ran past discoloured walls. It went to the middle of the room where wires hinted at a missing piece of machinery. It spotted a long case clock and went towards it, then into it. Another TARDIS, cleaner, in better shape. A time rotor. The eye hovered over the time rotor for several seconds. It looked over the brightly coloured buttons. Then it lifted away. It showed a ladder against a wall. It showed a ball a few feet from the console. This is a dummy machine. It contains no engine. The image swept from the TARDIS, back out again and across the garden. A little blue girl came into the garden. She looked up and saw the round black object. Hello, she said. Perhaps she thought it was a rare kind of bird. She'd seen lots of strange things in the garden. The eyepiece moved over her head. She went towards the fountain and sat on the edge. The eyepiece went to the red brick wall and swirled through the open door. It passed what looked like a hothouse. It passed another room, a kind of living area. There were voices. The eyepiece looked at the beings in the room. An old blue hoofed man, a younger blue man, a young blue woman. Life! said one purple Dalek. Excellent! The flying eye moved quietly upward. It fixed itself to the ceiling. And it waited. The purple Dalek turned to the doctor. We know you are not to be trusted. We are holding the people on the screen to ransom. The surveillance drone is a bomb. It is set to explode in two hours. We will disable it only if you make progress. If not, those beings will be exterminated. They'd obviously decided that the Trulkers' lives weren't enough of an incentive. The doctor said with an edge of panic, I'm trapped here just as you are. There's some sort of magnetism which has pulled time and space vehicles into the vortex. You're just one of hundreds, thousands. I can't promise to make progress in two hours. I can't promise anything. This is delicate work. The Daleks are superior beings, but the Time Lords have the key to time travel. You will help us to escape or you will be exterminated along with the others. Any attempt at sabotage will result in the death of those people. The tiny old being looked at the arrivals through roomy, scarcely seeing eyes. Do I know you? He blinked several times to clear away the fog, but the fog apparently stayed because he said, I do not see it all well. I am known as Milady. This is a friend from Earth, Marcel. Marcel raised his hand in a wave. The little old man made a tiny nod. I am from the Department of the Watchers, continued Milady. We are seeking information, urgently. Where are we? asked the old man. He looked confused. In the vortex. Ah. Oh. Have you been here long? I don't know. I think so. My mind isn't what it used to be. I was myself a watcher. 
a long time ago. I think I was. I'm sure I was. I seem to have been sitting here for a long while. I think so. I think I have. My TARDIS keeps me alive. There doesn't seem much point, does there? It was all right at first, but I am so old and so tired, and I find I can scarcely think. I made a mistake, you see. I was too greedy for life. You attempted an extra regeneration when you should have died, an induced pseudo-regeneration through my TARDIS. But as you can see, it didn't work or else it worked too well. I am too weak, too tired, and it has lasted too long. I have been in this form for 2,000 years, longer than any of my healthy bodies. I think I have, or maybe 200. No, 2,000. Maybe 20,000. Too long. This will not let me go. It will not. The voice was too drained to do more than report facts. Any emotion the man might have felt had to be contained inside him. He could not express it. It wants to keep me alive until we can re-enter the universe. It thinks I am its only hope. So, so it keeps me alive. If this is life... My lady caught her breath. Her memory shook. A watcher like her, with a Type 40 TARDIS. Do you remember an ambassadorial party, she asked, on Peladon? The little figure seems to be flicking through the filing cabinet of his memory, but like index cards where the ink is smudged, he could make out nothing. He perhaps knew, or thought he knew, that one of these cards contained the relevant information, but no amount of studying it could decipher the blurred meaning. I knew you once, said Milady. We knew each other. He shook his head with small, effortful shakes. Marcel had the sense he was eavesdropping on a private conversation. Silently, he stepped back a few feet to remove himself from the scene, though, of course, he could not help listening. I wish there was something I could do to help you, she went on. Kind of you, most kind, but as you understand, there's nothing to be done. It will not let you pull out the wires. It will kill you first, electrically, I know it will. It protects me, you see even from myself. On particularly desperate days, I have clawed and clawed at these wires, and in my weakened state, I cannot get them out. I have been sent by Gallifrey to investigate a crisis in the vortex. If I can find a way to release you, I will, the lady said. The little man tried to raise a hand, but did not have the strength. I must ask you to leave. I cannot talk more. I do not have the energy. But please. 
If you are able to solve the problem, please remember me. Remember me. Milady stood. I promise, Gren. The name meant nothing to him. Come on, Marcel. Let's leave him be. She glanced at Gren's console. It confirmed what she knew. Outside the Dalek shell, she stood for a moment to catch her breath in that dark, haunted room. Yes. She had known that old pseudo-being when he had been vigorous and full of life. He had been beautiful to her, and he'd had a brilliant mind. They had fallen in love. Gallifreyans have a gift of recognition, not always, but often reliable, even of altered bodies. The radiations of an individual remain the same. But the damaged man wasn't recognisable in this way because his had not been a proper regeneration. He radiated nothing. No, Milady's recognition had come from connections. Watcher, Type 40. And once Milady had known, she had definitely known, because the clear plastic covering on one of the console dials had once been shattered and replaced by different blue-tinted plastic. She'd seen that tint as she left. Apparently trivial things sometimes contain significant information. And so she had recognised her greatest love. For millennia, celibacy had been strictly required by the Department of the Watchers. How the argument had gone could one observe coolly while bound up in emotional complications. The rule had been somewhat relaxed by the time Milady and Gren had met on Peladon. It was part of the long and complex laws and customs of personal relationships which had evolved on Gallifrey over numerous centuries. Like so much else, love could find itself wrapped up in red tape. Theirs had been a passionate and intense affair, but the call of the work, the call of the department, eventually ended it. Now, Milady was, to use an old phrase, married to her work. She was hardly the only watcher to whom this applied. But there were memories. Her encounter with Gren had reminded her how intense love could be, how deep her own passion had been. Now... In a corner of the huge canvas, which was the crisis in the vortex, there was a tiny dab of paint which also made it personal. She would like Gren to be released. She looked at Marcel and put a hand on his cheek. Yes, the loss of Leon Paul must be hard for him. She hadn't understood. Now she did. At that moment, however... Marcel was thinking of something else. He was struck by a word the little man had used. Regeneration. Milady made a dismissive gesture. One day, Marcel, I'll tell you. With a long, thin finger, she touched her earring twice, lightly. She shook her head, frowned, walked on. The aged, melted, computer-bank faces looked on, tired and warm as grim. The doctor was on his knees by the Dalek time engine. 
making a performance of deep concentration and occasionally touching a wire or loosening a bolt with an air of considering the matter. This fiddle-faddle meant nothing. He couldn't get the Daleks out of the magnetic pull, even if he wanted to. And he didn't. He was concentrating, but on another matter. While his fingers fiddled about, his mind whirred on and on. He now had perhaps 90 minutes to disarm the bomb. He could try right now, but the chances of successfully fighting off two Daleks and working out how to stop the countdown were minuscule. He waited in the hope that one of them would leave the room, increasing his chances. It was a pretty forlorn hope. Eventually, if it came to a matter of all hope lost, he would just have to go for it. But not yet. The nearest eyepiece looked right at him, as if trying to read his mind. He removed another panel and peered at the wires beneath, wide-eyed with wonder. Ah, progress! I think we're making progress. If only. Tharvis thought of his daughter. His only child. He had to find Vula. All the molecules of his fleshy and wiry sinews cried out to find her. He pictured her face, flecked with tears. He had never seen her cry, not since she had been a baby. Vula did not cry. She never expressed much. She had the mind of a soldier, always had. She was tough. And yet he saw her crying now. Fury engulfed him. The Trulka were not a race which gave up easily. The button which had locked Thaves into his cell was located in the wall on the left at the height of a Dalek arm, four feet or so from the ground. Thaves tried to bend first his natural leg, then the mechanical one, to catch the button with a foot or a knee or a shin. He tried until his muscles ached. He couldn't reach it, just a few inches short. He felt with fury the twitch in his left shoulder, the ugly, twisted, knife-like teeth, reminding him what he had lost. One day, one day, Fleer, we will be repaired and we will come back here and we will blow every single one of these Daleks to pieces. Fleer had watched the desperate actions of his captain. He stood, his back against the curve of the wall, trying to gather his strength. A realisation came to Fleer. The missing arm, the prongs like knives. In a sudden furious movement, Fleer bent his whole torso to the left, his belly tensing against the constraint at his waist. The prongs scraped the concave wall. He could feel pain in his artificial innards as he contorted himself in ways his body was not designed for. He stabbed the air near the button repeatedly. Stabbed, stabbed, stabbed. No good. Breathing heavily, stopped to collect himself. Thaves tried the same thing. A swing of his upper body. Stab, stab, stab. Just two inches short. Then just an inch. Then half an inch. But half an inch might have been three feet for all the good it did. Stab, stab, stab. Wires stretching, tendons screaming. Half an inch, half an inch, half an inch. Fleer pictured the boxing ring on Trolkara. He had been a champion, standing in that ring, hearing the chants of the crowd. Flair! 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 
All his coiled energy had sprung into his arms and fists. Gun disarmed for the fight, so there was only physical strength. His powerful arms, his powerful, powerful fists, all that energy coming from his legs into his arms. He didn't need death rays. He could win by pure physical force. He remembered the aches afterwards, but it had always been worth it to win. To win. The lock button was the face of his opponent. Like Marley on the knocker, the face should not have been there, but it was. Dead centre of the button. Fleer showed no mercy. A thrust of the shoulder, coiled, uncoiled, a leaping spring. And one of those sharp knives pierced the button. A fire spurt of electricity. The restraint snapped back. Fleer was free. One of the shoulder prongs folded in on itself. And a moment later, Favez was free too. The Daleks had crippled them, but it was the crippling that had freed them. Favez listened at the door. Passing Daleks? Dalek guards? They were lucky that the crew was so small. Why would they waste two crew members to guard the unescapable? The door phosphorescent open. Thaves looked up and down the curving corridor. Across the way, the door to the main control room. A few doors down on their own side, the room of the time engine with the doctor in it, if he was still alive. They didn't have time for the doctor. War is war. Silently, they ran on past. In the time room, one screen among many showed from overhead a blue man and a blue woman sitting at a table playing a complicated board game. The woman was doing well. She moved a piece triumphantly. The man showed good-humoured frustration. Grandmother came in with a plate of oat biscuits. The woman moved another piece. She put her hand on her belly, feeling the kick of the child within. In the console room, the doctor on his knees looked at wires, mind whirring. There must be less than half an hour before the bomb went off. Soon he would have no choice but to take a final action. It would be his doom. He could tear wires from the time engine, not ending but further delaying the Dalek discovery of time travel. Perhaps he could destroy a Dalek too, push it hard against the computer banks, cause a short circuit. That was all he could hope to do. Suddenly a light began to flash on the console, on off, on off. The finger of a dial shifted. Near the light, a small screen showed the outline of the complete hulk, like a roughly drawn map. The watching, hovering eyepiece tilted up to the doctor's face, almost as if questioning him. One of the purple Daleks spun around. What is happening? Well, sir, it appears I'm making good progress. I'm boosting the time-space overblow. All should be well in a short time. You lie! Before the doctor could reply, all hell broke loose. The door phosphorescent. The two Trulka rushed in. Fleer grabbed at the purple Dalek near the doctor and swung it around with his one powerful arm. Emergency! Emergency! Tharvis ran towards the one looking at the screens and jumped on its back, gripping it with his thighs. His one hand reached around the head and covered the eye. The Dalek began to spin in confusion. Emergency! 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 The Doctor reacted instantly, wrapping his scarf around the head of Fleer's Dalek, blinding it. 
Fleer took one end of the scarf, then the other, gripping both ends tightly together, and almost as if swinging a lasso, he spun the Dalek round and round, dizzyingly. The Dalek cried out, Emergency! Emergency! He thrust it towards the time engine. It slapped against it and bounced back, and Fleer swung it again. This time it toppled over, the scarf unfurling from the Dalek's body, hanging from Fleer's hand. Flames burst from the centre of the console. Emergency! The near eyepiece was engulfed in the flames. The other eyepieces began to fly around like baffled insects. Fleer tossed the scarf at the Doctor, who caught it and ran towards the other Dalek, Tharvis still on its back, flapping the scarf around the Dalek's belly. Both ends in the Doctor's hands, he pulled the Dalek and Tharvis backwards towards him. The Dalek was swinging its eye stalk, trying to shake off Fleer's hand. Emergency! Tharvis leapt off in an elegant backflip, and the Dalek rotated several times as it rolled towards the time. The Doctor whipped his scarf away like a magician. The Dalek toppled over its compatriot and hit the floor on its side. It swung its eye stalk to one side, where it hit the floor like a drumstick, then to the other, trying to work out what was happening. Now the whole room reeked of burning. Flames licked the surviving Dalek. The bottom of its skirt caught fire. The sprinkler system began to work, raining on all of them. But the doctor was oblivious. Come on, doctor, roared Harvest at the door. Give me half a mo. He grinned broadly. He threw his scarf around his neck. I have work to do. A half a mo was all he had. The doctor dashed to the control board under the array of screens. He had been snatching looks earlier to see which levers and buttons related to the eyepieces journeying through unknown ships. The blue family were contentedly playing their game. The man laughed. The blue girl appeared with her doll. We have no time, shouted the trollkers. The blue family looked up from their game. The doctor was urgently pulling at a lever. Come on, come on. The blue girl pointed at the eyepiece. Look, Mummy. The image moved towards the blue family as the eyepiece descended from the ceiling. Come on. It pulled away, out of the room. It swung around a corner. The image shook horribly. It had collided with the wall. It plummeted a few feet, recovered, rose, looking backwards as it sped along. The little girl appeared in the doorway holding her doll. She could be seen shrinking on the screen as the eyepiece zoomed up and away. The doctor mumbled to the controls. How do I turn this ball around? How, 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 how? Ah! Yeah. The eyepiece spun three times, but when it stopped, it was still facing backwards. Doctor, we're going to leave you, barked Tharvez. This is not a time for games. This is a game with deadly consequences. That's a bomb, Tharvez. I don't have time to worry about them. I must find my daughter. This is someone's daughter, shouted the doctor. Not mine. The trolker dashed into the corridor. Always nice to have friends when you need them. The doctor gripped a lever. The eyepiece had passed the plant-filled glasshouse. The doctor noticed something unusual about that, but this was no time to reflect. The eyepiece, still running backwards, had passed through a red wall and burst into the garden. It flew through clear air and suddenly bumped into something hard, and it shook and dropped to the ground. It sat quite still. 
the child began to approach, talking to it. It might have been a puppy. Go away, little girl, go away, the doctor said, pulling on the lever. And with a wobble, the eyepiece rose upward. He made it spin again, and this time it turned twice and at last stopped facing ahead. The doctor could see what it had collided with, a stone fountain. And at the far end, atop some wide marble steps, ah, the elegant ladies. The eyepiece flew as fast as he could make it. It sped towards a particular statue, nosed through the door, circled the room, found the clock, rushed into it towards the toy console, and then the screen went blank. The doctor closed his eyes for a moment. He was suddenly aware of rain. He shook his head like a wet dog. Then he stood up straight, threw his scarf in another loop around his neck, and went to the door. At that moment, the sprinkler system stopped. Smoke curled from purple Daleks where they lay next to their damaged time engine. The engine would never travel in time again, true. But it was not wholly destroyed. For the flashing light which had been of such interest to the Doctor continued to wink on and off. And the pointer on the half-moon dial next to it continued to waver at the far end. How long would it take for the gold Dalek and his crew to see this light and this dial, to interpret the information correctly as the purple Dalek had done, and take action? In the corridor, the doctor made his way hastily to the exit, his scarf dripping raindrops. The blue girl had followed the flying ball into the garden and watched it smash into the fountain, then swoop towards the caryatids. It wobbled a bit. It spun like a top. How funny, she said to her doll. It seems very excited. She saw it go into the statue. All was silent in the garden. She went around the figure and into the bleak TARDIS and threw the clock into the playroom or what had been the playroom. For the toy console had been torn to pieces. The ladder had fallen to the floor and lay soft as wax. The walls were darkened. There was a little noise under the girl's hoof. She had broken a shard of some hard black material. And all over the floor were other little bits of the same material. Oh, how sad, she said. I always liked this playroom. Oh, well. She left, remembering how her brother had loved it, too. The doctor rounded the corridor and came to the main entrance. He saw, not exactly with relief, that the Trolka was still there. They had powered up the larger star-shaped hover vehicle and one of the smaller ones, and with the vicious teeth projecting from their shoulders, were in the process of disabling the others, bodies tilted to stab the panels, pleasing little flame flares showing their success. The last one, said Tharvis to Fleer. Would you mind, asked the doctor, politely pulling him away from it, I might find that useful. Tharvis stood aside. He said briskly, You must understand, doctor, we have no choice. No choice at all, sir. No choice at all. You are, after all, a deeply ethical race, you Trulker. Indeed we are. 
The Trolka sped over the ramp on the two primed vehicles. It took frustrating seconds for the third to warm up, then its little engine hummed. The doctor leapt on board. Exterminate! A white Dalek hove into view. A ray blast went right by the doctor's ear, singeing a loose curl. Ah, that'll help dry my hair. Exterminate! The little craft moved with a pleasing dash, blowing his hair from his forehead. Whee! He had soon caught up with his comrades, if comrades was the right word, which the doctor concluded it was not. The three vehicles were on their way. Their journey time to Vula and hopefully Adric would be much shorter now. It does an excellent job of drying one's clothes, don't you find? I wonder if it's been patented. After that, they tore along in silence. The travellers were mulling over different matters. The Trolka had not gone back to the time engine with the intention of rescuing the Doctor. In their eyes, he was expendable. But running to the exit, they had stopped for a moment. They felt absence where they had had dangerous gun arms. Their impulsiveness, their coiled energy, had combined to make a choice. They wanted revenge. They wanted to kill Daleks. That had brought them back to the engine room. And as for the Doctor? The Trulker were not in his thoughts at all. He had known, as the Dalek scientist had known, what the flashing light, the pointing needle, the rough map of the terrain had told. That somewhere near one end of the hulk, there had been an inexplicable surge a surge of time, creating a thickening, a density. The doctor wanted to know what had caused that density in time. Once again, Milady's hand was cupped at her ear, this time in a harsh action. Marcel worried that she'd lost her mind. Her face was stony. She was listening. A sort of sigh, no louder than fingers running over skin, came to Marcel. Some kind of communication was occurring between Milady and... Marcel realised where the soft sound was coming from, her earring. The sighing stopped. At last! At last! My Ted has news! News? Urgent news, some kind of time surge. This is what we've been waiting for. A time surge at a specific location. Our magnetic force? The cause of the temporal drain? We must hurry. To your Ted. It's ages away. My Ted is coming to us, dear boy. It knows where we are. She smiled. The earring tells it, you see. She was back to her old self. And a moment later... There was the far cry of alien wildlife, which grew nearer and nearer. And then this dark, sad room of the dead was filled with bright colours, bathing the melted Daleks, the walls, Milady, Marcel. But just then, in the doorway, there was yet another Dalek. It faced them with its gun. Stay calm! Milady went right up to it and incredibly disappeared inside. Then she reappeared. Are you coming, my boy? The God!
God of the Continuum is here. Will you stay, O oh Lord? Will you stay with your servants? Is this the promised day at last? The priest was enacting an overwrought rendering of ecstasy. The god was groaning. The priest fell to his knees and kissed the floor where he had spilt the reddish liquid. O oh Lord of the River of Time, we bless thee. O oh God of the Continuum, we bless thee. He threw up his hands. He speaks. He speaks. He communicates with his interpreter, the priest, to bring comfort to his favoured people. Adric, on his knees, had his hand over his mouth. What were the chances this TARDIS had brought the Doctor? And yet, what took shape within the expanding circle of light was not the friendly London police box. It was much larger. Adric's hopes died. But just as the selected form of the materialization began to show itself, it began again to fade. Once more, the hall was empty. The groaning animal was distant now, far away in pampas grass. Even that was soon gone. All was quiet but for the fidgeting of bored Nalgren, the rustle of clothes as the young slaves looked up. The graf's head leant against his curled fist. The priest began to spin the empty goblet around. He looked into it. He turned it over and looked at the underside. He upturned it and looked into it again. Perhaps, like tea leaves, the residue of the liquid contained mystic reportage. The god has a message for his people, the Nalgren. He has a message of great joy and hope. We are in the last days of our long waiting. The day when he will guide us back into the universe of stars is imminent. The Nalgren showed no excitement. They'd heard it all their lives, and still the god never did more than show up for a moment and then go back to where it came from. If it really meant to stay, it'd be nice if it got on with the job. Even before the priest stopped talking, there were whispers about supper and sports. The priest was losing his audience. He began to speak of the curse in store for those who did not wait patiently and fervently for the ultimate moment as was their duty. Apparently, the gods' favours were not to be equally distributed come the great day. This did not have the presumably desired effect of frightening his listeners. The graf had unfolded his fist and was looking at his nails, as was his wont. Adric was as bored as an Algren. Now the unknown TARDIS had gone and withered his hopes, he thought he'd rather be back in the galley than here on his knees on these hard boards listening to the absurd priest. Adric tuned out the drones of the ceremony. Was the manifestation even real? Was it a conjuring trick? He looked for signs of projectors and speakers. There were none. He wondered if he should try to escape. To where? Back into the Hulk. The Doctor must be somewhere. He would hunt for him. One day he would find him. He looked at the belt on a nearby Nalgren, too big for him, always needing to be tugged back to the waist. But the weapon's too small. The weapons of their original enslavers, he supposed. He pictured a comically rotund creature, a beach ball on legs, huge waist, small extremities, like a cartoon. 
And yet, to the Nalgren, they had been monstrous, abusive, exploitative. And the tragedy was that they had learnt the worst from their captors. Free of them, they had inherited their cruelty. In such a way, it seemed, did the universe work. Adric wondered if he could get his hands on one of those guns. He had stolen things before. He looked at his fellow slaves. Could he persuade them to join him in an uprising? Were they too worn down? If they could have rebelled, would they not have done so before? Anyway, what were their chances? Three dozen tired youths versus numerous Nalgren bristling with guns and knives. So, maybe the best he could do was look after himself. If he was to have any chance of escape, it would have to be soon. Much more rowing, and he would be worn out too. Already he ached all over. Tiredness makes it hard to think, let alone plan an escape. He remembered the mocking voice of the nurse, the embittered hiss of the recruiting officer. He remembered the humiliation of those basket-like cages. I've got to get away. Before they try to put me back in a cage, I'd rather die than go back to that. Yes, I'm going to make a break for it. If I can get across the hall unnoticed and onto the metal gantry. Vula was looking at him in silent concentration. Maybe she was thinking the same thing. She expressed nothing, just looked. It was unsettling. Adric made a small nod of the head, looking at a gun belt, and back to her, questioning. One of the soldiers from the office was nearby, talking in a whisper to a friend. Adric crawled on knees towards him, raised his hand as if to wipe his nose, and, like the claw in an arcade machine, moved it slowly to the left to grip its prize. Easily enough, he lifted the gun from the belt. It lay for a second in his palm, a lethal little object. At home, living in his rarefied world of mathematics, he had been a thinker, an intellectual, perhaps too much of one. Even in his frustration with the dreary airlessness of Starliner life, he would never have conceived of carrying a weapon. They were, to him, symbols of stupidity. He tucked the gun under his tunic in the waistband of his trousers on his left hip. Adric was left-handed, a more common condition on Alzarius than among earthlings. The priest droned on. The young Nalgren chatted in whispers. The Graf sighed. The floor, the purple Daleks, the time device, were wet from the sprinkler. The gold Daleks' eye stalk ran over the wreck of the room. Have the dead removed, he said. I obey! The gold Dalek did not feel sadness or anger at the death of his compatriots. Not a computer, yet in some ways he thought like one. Observed the situation recalibrated accordingly. He was interested in the flashing light and the water-splashed indicator and the bright little blob near the edge of the Hulk's mapped outline. The long waiting, it was called. It had consumed the religious instincts of the Nalgren ever since the mysterious manifestation had first occurred. 
now a folk memory encrusted in myth. And every sleep-wake cycle at the same moment it had reappeared. This was interpreted as a smile, the god smiling on his beloved people. Had it ever missed even a single cycle? There were stories that once or twice, long ago, angry with its people, it had refused to show its face. This absence, if it had occurred, was interpreted as a frown, the god abandoning his people, signalling the end of all things, until a day or two later it had beamed on them again. Some Nalgren of an intellectual bent had engaged in theological debates about whether the mythic frown was a short flash of anger or, more worryingly, a message that the god might never fully return. The waiting would never end because his people had disappointed him. But too many generations had passed in the long waiting for any but the thinnest intellectual properties to remain. Very few believed the daily appearance was more than a sort of sundial telling a time of day, while all paid lip service to a pretended deeper meaning. So when, after the god had smiled and departed, the great hall filled with the cries of strange beasts a second time, it had the emotional impact of the sky falling in. Ancient preparations and rules for the final coming had all been forgotten, and what should have been a rapturous moment of joy was thoroughly terrifying. This second appearance occurred not in the middle of the great hall between the two sets of columns, but between two columns on the left. A shape could be discerned, a building like a small, simple wooden church. It solidified. And this time it stayed. Sitting as if it had been there between those pillars for centuries. Reddish light from the open space near the gantry threw a pillar's shadow over the church like a collapsed spire. The graf sprang from his throne and fell to his knees. His jaw moved from side to side, spit at the edges dribbled down his neck. He bowed so low that his helmet slipped off and he placed it back on his head. Following his example, his people fell to their knees. Many knives and guns slipped from belts. The recruiting officer waved his hands over his head and ululated, as if to demonstrate he was more deeply spiritual than the others and deserved special treatment. The nurse fainted. Only the priest remained standing. He dropped the cup and pulled his robes around him. He looked not so much moved by the manifestation as irritated, as if he saw his thunder being stolen. The prisoners hardly understood what was happening. It was said in many religious philosophies that in the final days the first would be last. These young creatures were certainly the last. Perhaps they were about to be the first. The lobster girl applauded. The doll-like woman did a small dance. Vula showed no mystical hope or fear. The chaos gave her an opening. Perhaps this was the perfect time to walk away. Adric was torn. This was a TARDIS in front of him. It wasn't the blue box, but with the certainty of faith, he knew the Doctor would emerge. He felt the gun pressing against his belly. I don't want a gun. I don't want it. He touched Vula's leg. She turned to him and he held the gun out to her. 
She smiled and said, Thank you, and took it in her single hand. No one was looking in her direction except the boy, and soon even his eyes were back on the new materialisation. She began to circle the hall behind the crowd. The door of the simple little building began to open. All the noise ceased, as if a recording had been switched off. In the sudden silence, Vula stepped on a floorboard. It creaked. She froze. A stunning woman stepped from the small building. She was dark-skinned and graceful, and she wore long, colourful robes. She was tall, and her headdress made her taller. Behind her, a young man in a sophisticated, idiosyncratic suit showed himself. His skin was lightly brown. He had splendid features, and his ears, slightly too big, were rather charming. Barely sounded whispers buzzed around. Two of them! Two gods of the Continuum! Marcel liked being looked upon by countless eyes with awe. This is going well, isn't it? He murmured. The crowd waited for the first paradisiacal words of the Continuum gods. But it was not the voice of one of the gods which reached the waiting multitudes. It was the angry voice of the priest who had glimpsed a threat to his power. These are not gods, he shouted. They ooze corruption. These are demons. He drew a gun and a knife, both too small for his leathery green hands, but glinting with threat. They have come from the evil place to sow fear and confusion. Maybe not so well mumbled Milady. The Graf made a snap decision to support his priest. Destroy them, he shouted. Destroy these demons! He pulled his gun. The Nalgrens sprang to their feet. A hundred spit-flecked jaws slid from side to side, burning with the wounds of betrayal. After all the endless waiting, what comes is a ship of demons! Milady and Marcel looked down the barrels of a hundred guns. A hundred triggers were pulled. As the Nalgren pulled their triggers, Vula pointed her gun at the priest and pulled hers. Adric snatched a fallen gun, pointed at the Graf and pulled his. Nothing happened. Adric shook his gun. The power cell was completely dead. Vula tossed hers away in disgust. The Nalgren looked at theirs wonderingly. Some fell to their knees, begging the god for forgiveness. Others ran away. The priest ran towards the two gods, roaring. His rusty blade flashed like brackish water suddenly. 
Marcel moved in front of Milady and crouched, holding out his hands in a martial arts pose. He knew nothing of martial arts, but he slashed his right hand upward and struck the priest's wrist. Ow! Oh! The priest's knife flew up. Marcel caught it and pointed it, looking as threatening as he could. Then he realized the rusty blade was in his palm, the handle out. He tossed it. That's better, he said, making a couple of stabbing motions. A bit too pleased with himself. The priest stood, hands splayed, first confused, then surprised, then furious, then frightened. Slay the demons! Slay the demons! He ran into the crowd. Splendid work, dearest Gloucester, whispered Milady. Marcel crouched again, challenging all comers, though he hoped there wouldn't be any. Don't get overly ambitious, advised Milady. In fact, as these demons were doing nothing very demonic, the Nalgren were losing interest. Demons, it seemed, were as boring as everything else in longship life. The crouching Marcel was more amusing than scary. The Nalgren hardly cared that the long wait's climax was a damp squib. This seemed to be the way of all things. But the young slaves realised that guns useless, their captors were powerless. Tired and beaten down though they were, they saw a chance. The small, doll-like young woman led the charge. Get them! The hall descended into chaos. Some of her comrades followed the door. Several attacked the priest. Others dashed towards the centre of the hall, aiming for the gantry. A red-skinned, one-eyed boy stopped at the table with the trunk and tried to pull it open. Failing, he ran to the wardrobe and with one push sent it thudding to the floor. Following his lead, the lobster girl sprang to the trunk, pulled it from the table and kicked it. A thin crack showed under the lid and she pushed the end of a pincer into the space and slid it along like a paper knife. The red boy had pulled on the wardrobe's open door and was rummaging inside. He tossed out several duplicates of the priest's robes and dozens of guns and knives. He pulled one of the robes over his head. He took out a gun and tried to fire it at the floor. Its power had long since died. The lobster girl pushed her pincer further under the trunk's lid until, as the wider part of her claw crossed the threshold, the old leathery material began to tear. Meanwhile, one of the lazy Nalgren of the office had got halfway across the gantry when he saw a white metal flying object move at great speed towards him. In Nalgren life, nothing happened. How could so much suddenly happen at once? He clutched his knife in his hand, wondering whether to attack this big flying thing. He ran back. Invaders! Invaders! The other Nalgren were too busy to take any notice. Some were fighting off the angry slaves. Others were trying to pacify them, saying they'd never done them any harm. Some fought each other. The recruiting officer was besieged by some of his underlings, all kicking and scratching him and hitting him with the butts of their guns. One of them reached in and pulled off the officer's travel belt, that unique, magical device which had given him such power. He tried to put it around his own waist. Others turned on him. The recruiting officer slithered away. Two Nalgren made a tug of war with the belt while a third tried to snatch its operating box. Others watched the entertainment. They began to take sides, cheering and booing. 
It was a long time since their lives had been so full of interest. There was a tearing sound. One now held half a belt, wires dangling, another the other half, the third a dead box. They threw their useless prizes on the ground like spoiled children. The audience wandered away. The nurse recovered from his faint and, trying to be invisible, crawled towards the office. Vula was hitting Nalgren with her single powerful arm. He toppled onto his back, leathery hands over his face, but she slapped them aside. He tried to cry for mercy, but no sound came. Adric made his way to Milady and Marcel, hands open to show peaceful intent. Hi! Are you Time Lords? I know a TARDIS when I see one, or hear one. I am a Gallifreyan, said Milady with a small grin. Are you a Time Lord? she added sweetly, knowing he wasn't. Not actually, but I'm best friends with one. The hum of small engines made him turn. Three swift hover vehicles zipped off the gantry. Two single passenger vehicles, the other larger. Their controllers swept around the hall, trying to interpret the chaos. Doctor! shouted Adric, waving. That's my time, Lord, he informed Milady. He ran towards him. The doctor hoarded his vehicle near Milady's TARDIS. Adric showed boyish excitement, though inside his feelings roiled. Vula! Thavis bellowed. All the horror of seeing that his daughter had been maimed was contained in that one great cry. And then was gone. He had expected it anyway. The colour of her mind lock had told him. My girl, climb up! Thavis slowed, and she leapt onto the little craft and put her hand on her father's waist, a one-armed pillion rider. He took a quick look around and snarled. Primitives and their warlike ways, they disgust me. His vehicle circled back to the gantry. As far as Tharvis was concerned, all these ugly fighting aliens could go ahead and kill each other. They were too stupid ever to reach the level of development of a trulker. He had his daughter back, and that was all that mattered. Vula spotted Adric and gave him a smile and a wave. He waved back. Fleer sped after on his own vehicle. As they disappeared, Adric felt that twinge in the heart when it is known that a departing friend will never be seen again. It was a few moments after she was gone before he realised he'd scarcely exchanged a word with her. Saying goodbye, the doctor had said, you'll get used to it. Would he? In his friendship with the doctor, Adric had never felt so young, so like a child as now had never seen the Doctor so much in the way of a father figure. Though he knew what he wanted to say, he became inarticulate. They, 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 they think they can row their way out of the continuum and they, 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 they worship a, 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 and, 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 and they made us row in the, the galley down there till we collapsed and, and they woke them to death. Teenagers, young people. And when they die, they do surgery, they operate, and, 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 and then they... And, and, and when they're not working, they put us in cages. They put them in cages! And he burst into tears. The doctor put a hand on one of the boy's shoulders. Milady put hers on his other and handed him an end of her robe. He wept into it for a moment and then dried his eyes. Sorry, he said with a sniff and a smile. Don't be sorry, dear lad. <laughs> The lobster girl threw open the trunk and turned it on its side. Dozens of travel belts fell out. 
it was not just over the matter of the guns that their leadership had misled the Nalgren. It had always been said that only one travel belt had survived. Here was a pile of them. Numerous Nalgren elbowed and pushed. They snatched belts and wrapped them around their waists. One pressed the button and... Pop! Disappeared. Another pressed the button and... Nothing happened. A third pressed the button and... Nothing happened. A fourth pressed the button and disappeared. To reappear a second later. The unfortunate ones smashed their belts to the ground. But there were still plenty of others to try. The hall had begun to quieten down. The priest lay dead in a corner. Other Nalgren bodies lay about here and there, though most had survived. The graph was nowhere to be seen. After their great burst of energy, the young slaves were weary again. They stood around at the edges, some watching the fighting with varying degrees of interest, others standing or sitting, some with their eyes closed. It didn't mean much to them that now they were free. Free to do what? Go where? Mostly freedom meant for them hitting balls with bats, going out with friends leaving home to embark on adulthood, mocking older generations, listening to thudding music. But they had no bats. There were no parents to complain about. There was no thudding music. They'd lost their home planets, their cultures, their dreams. Mostly, they felt the ache in their bones, as if they were old. Old. Only the doll-like woman had made an active gesture towards escape. She had tried to get hold of one of the belts, but easily pushed away. Now she stood with the others. Once every belt had been tried by one Nalgren or another, only the first had proved to work. They lay scattered on the floor like broken toys. Many Nalgren had gone over the gantry into the rest of the hulk, but many remained, pacing about, wondering what to do now, or what might happen next. The atmosphere like the morning after a party which has got out of hand. Are there any people still in cages? asked the doctor. I don't think so, said Adric. They brought them all out for this, this, well, religious ceremony. See, they worship a TARDIS. The doctor was less astonished than the boy expected. Ah, the Continuum God, they call it. Every day it appears for like a second and goes away. Not that one, another one. Another one, cried the doctor. Another one, muttered Milady. Another one, appearing and disappearing. Intriguing. I wonder who is controlling it, mused Milady. Then she became businesslike. It's time for introductions. I believe I know who you are. She touched the doctor's arm. One of our more notorious renegades. Oh, you shouldn't believe everything you're told. Have we met before? Never. But, correct me if I'm wrong, weren't you sent into exile on some backwater planet for criminal behaviour and then somehow climbed the greasy pole to the presidency of the Time Lords? A first, that combination. Earth. The doctor looked at Adric. Where are the cages? The boy pointed to the office. He began to lead the way across the hall, the other three following after. Earth, said Milady, my home during exile. 
You must have behaved very badly to be sent there. How dull it must have been. Earth's all right for a day trip, in times of peace at least, but not for a place of exile. Was it for many years? More than I would have liked, but it had its moments. It has some good art galleries. Do you enjoy art? I do. Here we are, said Adric, stopping at the door. But the doctor and milady continued to converse as if they had all the time in the world. And they do a nice line of wines, but still. And how did you become president? I saved Gallifrey from total destruction. Well done. I must have been away. I am from the Department of the Watchers and am rarely there. I am called Milady. She held out her hand and he shook it. Doctor! said Adric forcefully, pointing at the door. The doctor ignored him. Milady, that's not a name, it's a title. Yes, and it's my title. Doctor? Touché. But don't tell me I couldn't pronounce your real name, because I certainly could. And I yours. But out of courtesy, I will call you Doctor, and you will call me Milady. Meet Marcel. He is from Earth, 22nd century. He's a very nice young man. Meet Adric, from Alzarius. He is very nice, too. Alzarius. Milady tried to place the name. I don't know it. E-space, said the doctor and Adric simultaneously. Adric pointed at the door again. Doctor! Oh, E-space, said Milady. How interesting. Never been, not in my jurisdiction. Dear child, you must tell me all about it. There's not much to tell said Adric. I'm sure there is. Anyway, said Adric exasperatedly, here we are. Hello? The cages? The prisons? He went through the door. Here, said Adric, outside the basket-like prisons. They're empty. They put intelligent beings in these. The doctor was appalled. From the far end there came a small creak, something moving against basket work. The doctor bent down, pressed right into the back corner of one of the cages, and Nalgren sat shivering and whimpering. He looked up at the doctor. The recruiting officer, said Adric, the man who kidnapped me. The doctor curled his hand around one of the officer's bunched fists and pulled. The cage rocked as the man was dragged into the open. He stood cowering. Oh, sir! Oh, Your Honour! Sir, don't hurt me! Don't hurt me! The officer made a deep bow and rubbed his hands together. I am only a worker. I only do as I'm told. He's the Graf. The Graf is the one you want. He is the villain. The Graf? asked the doctor, looking at Adric. He just sits in that wooden throne all day, too bored even to be cruel. It's this one, and a nurse. Oh, the nurse! said the officer, bowing even lower and rubbing even faster. So cruel, so cruel, a disgrace to the Nalgren. I tell him, I always say, don't treat the workers like that. Adric looked at him with loathing and went on to the door at the top. The surgery, he said. He tried the handle. Locked. He is in there! He's in there! I saw him! Help me break the door down and we'll deal with him! The wretch! We'll hang him from the highest beam! Cruel! He is so cruel! Adric came back to the rows of cages. He pulled one to the floor and jumped right on top of it. With a snapping of wicker, the bat caved in. 
Marcel pulled down another. Then the two boys moved on to another. The office was full of dry, snapping basketry. Marcel picked up one of the ruined cages and threw it at the officer, who toppled underneath it. No one will ever be put in these cages ever again, shouted Adric, putting his foot through another. Oh, let me help, said the recruiting officer, coming out from under the cage. Let's destroy them all. He pulled one down and trod on it. Oh, cruel, cruel. I'm so glad to break them up. Look at them crumble. <laughs> Weedy, weak little baskets. My foot through one. There. My foot through another. There. Smash, smash, smash. Today, a new start for Nalgan. A new leader. I will... Milady was about to say that he certainly wouldn't. But the officer saw another opportunity and spun to face Adric. You! You can be our new young leader. Oh, leader with your royal badge of princes. Oh, your majesty. Oh, princeling. I give you promise of eternal loyalty and devotion. He dropped on his knees, then his stomach. He looked like a snake asking for mercy. The boy's eyes welled up again and he couldn't bear the sight of the ugly, desperate creature and ran from the office. Loyalty and devotion, said the doctor acidly. That's a generous offer. Forgive me if I decline on the boy's behalf. He and Milady went back into the hall, where Adric was leaning against a wall. They could hear Marcel destroying the last of the baskets. He emerged a couple of minutes later, elegant as ever, suit pristine. Bon ton, he said with a smile. He put on his sunglasses. Doctor, Adric, would you like to come into my TARDIS for a cup of tea or coffee? Or chocolat? Marcel favours chocolat. We can reflect on our next move while taking refreshment. That sounds very civilised, said the doctor. The recruiting officer sweated and cursed. He came out from under another broken cage. He stood still, jaws grinding. A key turned in the surgery door. The nurse stuck his head through. Now, that wasn't very nice of you to give me away like that, officer. It really wasn't. The doctor and milady stood at the beautiful console sipping their teas while Adric and Marcel sat at the table drinking chocolat. The boy and the young man liked each other immediately. They chatted happily. This is lovely, said Adric, taking another luxurious sip. I've never had anything like it. We didn't have cocoa on Altarius. Do aliens invade Earth for the cocoa? Milady tells me they invade more often than I knew, but not for cocoa. Marcel raised his eyebrows wonderingly. But human nations have invaded other nations for it. They drank some more. An observer might have assumed they had been friends for years, perhaps even that they were brothers. And yet they were, to each other, quite alien. Not only from different planets, but from different universes, as alien as it can get. Most of the planets where advanced life had evolved had fairly similar conditions, water-oxygen chemistry, similar gravities, similar temperatures, some too cold for, say, the peoples of Earth or, say, the peoples of Alzarius, some too hot, but all within a range. This was why so many advanced species appeared on the surface to have evolved similarly. But that similarity was purely on the surface. The biology of a Gallifreyan, with two hearts and regenerating cells, could never be mistaken for another species. 
An Alzarian, with his reptilian and arachnid forebears and his fast healing, was not in biological terms like an Earthman at all. Biologically, these two young men facing each other were unalike. And yet, in this warm room, all the massive universes had shrunk to the space across a table, and these two intelligent, gifted young aliens found they were friends and were, in fact, alike. Marcel turned his cup in his hand. He wanted to speak about something that was bothering him to someone not forbidding like Milady or unknown like the doctor. And this boy was open and friendly. And so, with another turn of the cup, he said conversationally, Have you ever been in love? Crushes. I used to fall in love too easily. But only once in that intoxicated way where you know it's the real thing. Leon Paul. We've lived together three years. You're young to have been with someone so long. Marcel laughed. It wasn't the plan. I thought I'd spend 15 years, you know, having fun, and then maybe settle down at 35 or 40. But he bowled me over, and I bowled him over, and here we are. We'd already decided if we were still together, we'd get married on my 25th birthday. We would have been still together. I know it. We're together in all things. Would have been. I left him on earth. Marcel talked more quietly now, more reflectively, about the Dalek invasion and how he had been killed and had ended up travelling with Milady. Daleks? What are they? Marcel thought for a moment. Sort of like giant lethal poivrier. He drew a little sketch on a napkin and looked at it. After a moment, with another quiet laugh, he added three little circles on the head to make it look more than ever like a pepper pot. If that makes them seem funny, they aren't. They glide like dancers, but they conquer or destroy, well, everything. Milady thinks they're the worst beings in the universe, and there's a lot of competition. He looked up from the napkin. And they've been here, to the vortex. Milady and I found a sort of graveyard of them. They were kind of melted as if they'd been exposed to intense heat. It was weird. Adric picked up the napkin and looked at the sketch. At least they were dead. We, at least they were dead. Marcel was very quiet for a moment, swirling the remaining drop of chocolat around the bottom of the cup. A melody line from a chanson by Julietta Dumas flew through his mind a few times. Leon Paul, I don't even know if he was killed in the invasion or what. I'm sorry. Not as sorry as me. He was solemn now. I'm going to return and find him. I can't not know. It hurts too much. I want him to survive, to, to have survived, to, 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 to think he will survive. All this time travel, I don't even know how to say it anymore, past tense, future tense. More than anything, I want him to survive the invasion. But if he doesn't, didn't, won't, I'd rather know than not know. It's like an ache all the time. Adric touched the older boy's fingertips where they rested on the edge of the table. The laws of time. The doctors told me all about them. The paradoxes. You can't go back. It's horrid, I know. You can't undo what's happened. If you're supposed to be dead, you're supposed to be dead. Marcel gritted his teeth. My lady tells me I have to see that my story is over and my life is about the stories of other beings now. 
My story refuses to be over. And I don't want it to be. To say it's over makes me feel like an old man. The boys heard Milady utter the word Dalek and looked around. Then they turned back to each other. They were dead, fortunately, said Milady, completing her point. The doctor had described the black hole in time which had pulled his TARDIS into the vortex, and Milady mentioned her discovery of the place of dense time right in the big hall where they now were. The doctor gave her the bad news regarding Daleks. That complicates everything, said Milady. Whatever happens, the Daleks cannot be allowed to escape the vortex. Who knows what knowledge they might have uncovered here? Who knows how much stronger they might be if they emerge? I thought, said the doctor with a small smile, that watchers were not allowed to interfere. They are on exceptional occasions. You know full well the Time Lords have always seen the Daleks as a special danger. It's not the same as flying all over the place, sticking your oar in. The lady curled her mouth apologetically. Unfortunate phrase, with that galley outside. I did my bit to slow their development. Did you, Doctor? Gallifrey and outcome calculations suggested the Daleks had a 43.29% chance of dying out before ever leaving Scarrow. You sealed them in and delayed them, but did you also strengthen them? That left a 56.71% chance of them conquering the universe. Which continues to be a danger, and I agree, that must be prevented. And in the meantime, what Adric calls the God Tardis, the Continuum God, must be dealt with. Vile as the Daleks may be, it's not their technology that's sucking time out of the universe and possibly bringing it to a premature end. It's ours. Which is chilling. But who is inside this so-called God Tardis? Who is trying to destroy the fabric of time? Yet more Daleks? Cybermen, Sontarans, Nestines, Trods? Who? None of those, I suspect. They are all rational beings. The imminent end of the universe might be the one thing that would make an alliance between those species and Gallifrey. Conquering races want possession of the universe. If the whole thing were to end, they'd be left with absolutely nothing at all. And even rebels from Gallifrey itself, even the Master, it doesn't ring true. So who? Some force of unreason? Some kind of psychopathy? Somebody or something insane? Somebody insane or some oblivious fool who doesn't understand what they're doing? which we must do all we can to stop. Adric says the god manifests itself at precisely the same time every cycle, so we must wait until it comes again. Doctor, you forget that unlike all those other battered relics, my TARDIS is fully functional. This splendid new machine isn't going to be put off its course by a silly little magnetic force. Not yet, anyway. So we can make a short leap forward. But the problem is, to do what? The doctor smiled knowingly. I wonder just how advanced your impressive machine is. Do you know about time bubbles? Of course. I've been trapped in one myself. It's no fun at all. 
I remember the numerous experiments conducted by research and development during my youth to artificially manufacture them. They never quite worked in my day, but now... Milady showed sudden excitement. Let me check the manual. Boys, come over here. We're about to make a short leap into the future. The two young men dashed across. Milady activated the scanner screen. She typed some information into the console and pulled a lever, and the image changed a little. Outside, the hall was quieter. Most of the Nalgrin had wandered off. A few of the slaves were still to be seen near the far wall. Some lay stretched out on the floor, asleep. Others sat with their backs to the wall, too tired even to be afraid and with no idea what to do. Poor things, said Milady. As the saying goes, said Marcel, sometimes I sits and thinks and sometimes I just sits. Those are the very picture of people who just sits. And who can blame them? Now, let's see. She opened the manual at the index. Time bubble, manufacture of... Page 75. She flicked through the pages. This is exciting, she said. I've never made a time bubble before. Nor have I, said Marcel. Nor I, said Adric. So, a new experience for all. A bubble in time, said Marcel. Until I met Milady, I would have said it was impossible. Perhaps it is, said the Doctor. All to the good. Every living being should do at least one impossible thing every day, he added, sounding as wise as could be. Only one impossible thing would be a dull day with you, Doctor, said Adric. Marcel pointed at the screen. It showed a candle flame of light in the very middle of the moans of an alien bestiary sounded distantly, then grew nearer. The candle flame expanded. Soon it was like a headlight. Milady looked intently at the manual. She pointed to each of her friends in turn. Adric, you press that button. No, that one. Then you, Marcel, pull that lever and hold it in the on position. And you and I, Doctor, we must work these buttons together to mould the bubble. The Doctor was not used to receiving instructions in such a peremptory fashion, though well used to issuing them. There was a hint of disgruntlement on his face, until suddenly he brightened and became excited. We have to time it exactly right, so your TARDIS can form the bubble the moment the god begins to take on a distinctive form. The remnants of the Dalek time engine had been brought across to the main control room. It was never going to do any time travelling again, but one of the panels continued to read the Hulk for signs of another movement of time. And the gold Dalek was not surprised to see the light start to flash, the graphic to show a location right at the end of the floating Hulk, the dial to read an exceptionally high surge. It revolved and said to the nearest white Dalek, Prepare to fire the rockets. The rockets are not powerful enough. We will be pulled back by the magnetism. You will obey or you will be exterminated. I obey. The white Dalek rolled smoothly towards the console. It pressed a button which made a sort of key turn slightly to the left in its socket. There was the sound of an engine starting, then stopping. This time, the button was pressed and held down, and the key moved further, making two-thirds of a circle. The engine screamed. The key spun back to the off position. The rockets will not work. The force is too strong. Try 
Use override facilities. There is a danger of overheating. The ship will be destroyed. Use all options. Use all options. The ship must be pulled away. I obey. The button was pressed again. The key moved two-thirds of a circle where it stuck, jolting crazily a millimetre back and forth as it tried to reach the three-quarter point. The rocket thrusters came to life in a thunderous blast. The ship bounced a few inches from the hull, but fell back into place. The thrusters died. We do not have sufficient power. Try again. Use all power available. The ship will be destroyed. Your function is not to think. Your function is only to obey. I obey. I obey. The button was pressed again. The key spun smoothly two-thirds of a circle and once more jammed, flicking forward for a moment, then back, then forward, then back, like an insect with some fighters done. The thrusters screamed. Searing heat blackened the hull of the craft attached to the Daleks. The stink of burning penetrated the skin of the Dalek ship. The key wobbled and flicked three quarters. The rocket blasted again. The Dalek ship pulled away. began to arc away again, but not smooth. It shook disconcertingly, even as the smell of burning became suffocating. The blast of the rockets was deafening. It is not working. The engines will explode. It is working. We are being pulled back. It is working. It is proceeding as I planned. The gold Dalek swung round to another under. Activate the Dalek Total War Soldier. I obey! Adric pressed, Marcel pulled, and the Doctor and Milady began, with the lightest of touches, to turn dials and push buttons in a harmonious dance, with all the excitement of children at an arcade game. On top of the sound of materialisation, there was a soft whispering noise, which became a muted whoosh. Adric looked up at the screen, and he beheld the air outside thickening and wobbling and straightening and curving and curling away towards the light which was the materialising machine. The Doctor was thrilled. How astonishingly beautiful, he said. I think I must be rather better at this than you, milady. My half is more elegantly formed than your half. Yours is smoother, but mine is more dynamic, I feel. Yours is rather jejune. But the whole thing is wonderful, added Milady pacifyingly. What is? asked Marcel. Human eyes can't see it. Can you see anything, Adric? asked Marcel, accusingly. Oh, it's breathtaking. All those scarlets and mauves around the edges, topped by flakes of gold light. Marcel had a flash of connection. This is like those sculptures, the ones in your gallery. Exactly, said Milady, like a piano teacher whose slow pupil has at last played something correctly. The ancient art of air sculpture inspired the experiments with time bubbles. Of course, the skin of the bubble is made of thicker substance, but it's the same principle. It really looks sublime. Marcel first squinted, then tipped his head sideways. 
He made his eyes as wide as they would go. He still couldn't see anything. Being human is not as great as I used to think. You'll just have to get used to it, said Adric with a twinkle. The god was flashing in and out, fighting to escape the bubble as an animal will pound at the walls of a cave. The light fattened and puckered, moved from one side of the bubble, slapping the wall and bending to its curve for a second before spinning back to the centre. It came and went and came, each disappearance so brief it could scarcely be registered. The moan of its materialisations and dematerialisations were increasingly like a fatally wounded beast. Then it vanished and the bubble was empty. We've lost it, said Milady. No, it can't escape, said the doctor. And indeed, after that last livid attempt, it reappeared and seemed to give up struggling. A whirligig of light at the centre, a light within the light, which even Marcel's hopeless human eyes could see, began to brighten, then darken, and then take on a form. A large wooden building, reminiscent of the kind of church Vikings might have built on Earth in the 10th century AD, and yet quite otherworldly. It dwarfed the disguise which Milady's TARDIS had taken. And now, said Milady, looking again at the manual, we must seal the bubble. No, said the doctor. No? I need to see inside that machine. Milady, whatever's in there has done serious damage to the fabric of time and has done so using our technology, Time Lord technology. If we are to prevent this happening again, we have to understand what's caused it. Milady was studying the image of the god. That ship is in a pool of dense time, Doctor, and now it's trapped. That time, which is fast time, will seep into it. It has nowhere else to go. If you enter the bubble, you're right inside the pool. Once it touches you, you know what will happen. It's a risk I have to take. Doctor, we've solved the problem. Trapped in the bubble, that TARDIS can no longer pull time towards it. The fabric of time has been saved. Mission accomplished, you're saying. Exactly. We should not go further. In my view, it's unnecessary interference. Interference is my middle name. He stalked towards the door, his scarf flapping behind him, and with a sigh, Milady released the door lever. I will have to seal the bubble eventually, Milady called to him. He held his hand up in acknowledgement of this and stepped into the great hall. Silly, silly boy, murmured Milady. Adric and Marcel looked at each other, wondering which he was referring to, and then realised it was the doctor. The god looked impressive in its borrowed form. A working chameleon circuit could create brilliant detail. The wood looked slightly damp as if there had been recent rain, and there were traces of green moss on some of the boards. The doctor parted the bubble's curtain. He stepped into a swirling pool of dense time, palpable as a breeze. At the church-like door, he held out his hand, but before he could push it, it swung open of its own accord. He stood for a moment, hand on the air. Hello? From Milady's TARDIS, the three friends watched. Milady, normally so calm, was stiff with tension, her fingers flat on the console as if they had no joints. Marcel was flabbergasted. Adric was afraid. 
He wondered if the doctor going through the door was the last you would ever see of him. Good luck, doctor, he murmured. Marcel put an arm around him. In the bubble, the door of the god Tardis closed. The other side of the door showed the strangest TARDIS interior the Doctor had ever seen. The general configuration of the space indicated it was a Type 43 or thereabouts, built many centuries more recently than the Doctor's Type 40. The walls were sky blue, the familiar indents somewhat larger. Near the door was a plinth with a white stone bust on top a male head with a long, firm nose and a well-trimmed beard. At the centre was a console, complete with a time rotor which was now slowing and coming to rest. There were seven panels around it, one more than a Type 40, a bare frame marking the divisions. But the machinery was totally exposed, from the floor through the stand into the panels and the rotor itself. It was like an X-ray photograph of a TARDIS console. There was an even more striking idiosyncrasy. The seven segments did not sit squarely together. One was a few inches higher than another, which was higher than the next. One was flat-edged, another curved. One was longer, its outer edge projecting further like a hair lip. The levers at one part were much larger and simpler than others. This was not a single TARDIS console. It was many. Or rather, it was one made from many. In a far corner, several parts, some small, some large, even a broken time rotor, were cast aside like the useless pieces they were. There were a number of panel covers resting one against the other at a far wall, like paintings waiting to be mounted. A tall, lithe young woman with raven hair cut extremely short stood at the console. Her skin, the deep green of wet grass, was taut around her cheekbones. Her eyes were a very dark green, showing no white. She was dressed in rich, night-blue overalls of a material slicker than denim but of a similar toughness. Over a shirt, sleeves rolled up. Dense time breathed around them. Hello, said the doctor. He held a hand up and kept it still in a sort of frozen wave. She looked at him with a questioning air. But she asked no questions, so after a few moments he asked one of her. Are you aware of the terrible damage you've done? He clutched his scarf on both sides like jacket lapels and he arched his back. A friend who knew him well would have registered the high-handed manner of his first incarnation. She made no answer for several seconds, then, ignoring his question, asked him one. Who are you? Her voice was husky, as if she had not spoken for a long time. I'm known as the Doctor. Indeed. Her mouth opened slightly in a show of interest. She nodded. I've heard of you. Your name is... You may call me the Mechanic. That's not a name, it's a title. And it is the title I choose to be known by, Doctor. Was there a tiny flicker of a smile? 
the doctor indicated the jerry-built console. Impressive. But why? If you wanted a TARDIS, why not take one in working order? Why try and build your own? Doctor, she said, as if the word was of special interest. Doctor. Doctor, yes. He told me about you. You're one of the dark ones. One of the evil ones. Oh, yes, I've heard all about you. One of the dark ones? I know about you. The damage you've done. The evil. You are one of the leaders of darkness, are you not? Yes, he told me everything. He. I was the companion of the greatest Time Lord of all. We were adventurers together, he and I. He was marvellous. So intelligent, so brave, so exciting to be around. So much knowledge. I had never known such a richly stocked mind. Oh, it was wonderful. Wonderful. Until until an accident. In a violent meteor shower, a part of his TARDIS was accidentally ejected. The doctor let his scarf go and pressed his fingertips against each other, slightly reminiscent of his second incarnation. Ejected into the vortex, with you in it. A terrible accident. But all is not lost. I have one of the great engineering minds of the cosmos. He always told me that. Things were beginning to come clear to the Doctor. I knew I could return to him. This mind and these hands could put together a time engine. These hands. She looked at them, palms up. You see, I found that in the no place where I was, there were other trapped space and time craft from many cultures, including TARDISes. All fused together. Fused? She looked puzzled. No. Floating. Just floating. But I could move from one to another. They were damaged, disabled. But I knew from the broken parts I could build a working machine... Then I had the good fortune to discover a trove of TARDISes, and I set to work. Why not try to simply repair one of the others? The doctor thought he knew why. The mechanic laughed lightly. <laughs> Travel the cosmos for all eternity in the hope of finding him. My beloved. No, doctor. The cosmos is too vast. What are the chances? This room, you see, is a part of his TARDIS. If I could only construct a working engine from used parts, this room could home in on the primary control console. It could take me straight to him. Yes, all components have a homing transmitter, though it's to allow the main control room to search for ejected parts, not the other way around. But anyway, your plan, it's failed, hasn't it? take you to him. She suddenly staggered and blinked as if experiencing a moment of confusion. She righted herself. So far. 
You've been trapped here for how many years? Centuries? Millennia? Do you even know how long? It will work. It won't. You've been trapped here, repeating the dematerialization for all this time. You see, you made an error. Your homemade TARDIS scarcely travels through time at all. Instead, it reels time towards it. Scarcely, but somewhat. Somewhat. So it has worked. To some extent it has worked. You reel time in from the living universe across what feels to you like a few seconds. And all that ocean of time you've been guzzling, it lets you make small shifts. A day, or what passes as a day in the vortex. Then you're brought back to the place you started. She stood there, deep in thought, then nodded. So that's what's wrong. Her face showed instant understanding, as when a simple error once explained seems obvious. Yes, easily put right, I'm sure. She wanted to get back to work immediately. She knew exactly what to do. But she staggered again. Her hands were weak and shaking. She could no longer do the delicate work required. She was old. She felt her knees buckle. She leaned against the console, the only way to keep upright. I need an assistant, she said to herself. I need an assistant. Your TARDIS is wrapped in an ever-thickening circle of dense time. You've been suspended right in the middle of it. The doctor felt his own strength ebbing. He fell silent to gather himself, breathed deeply and continued. You're suspended right in the still eye of a raging time hurricane which swirls wildly around your botched machine. But here at the centre, there's been only a few slow seconds, endlessly repeating. Never ageing, never changing, never going anywhere, just endlessly repeating the dematerialization. You've been living in a permanent state of deja vu. She was silent for a beat. I realise now. I have felt I was constantly doing something I had just done, and yet I was never quite sure. But now, she looked at him haughtily, now I understand. Nothing is lost. All can be put right. The doctor's hands were near his chest, palms open to her in a show of both horror and anger. The hint of arrogance in his intonation might have been the voice of his third incarnation. All can be put right. While you've been stuck in here like a rat on a wheel, your engineering efforts have threatened the fabric of the universe. Because there is only a finite amount of time, and you've been pulling it into the vortex towards you for all these millennia in greater and greater quantities, pulling it away from the universe. You have sped up natural entropy manyfold. I regret nothing. And now, she continued with a note of triumph, now the circle is broken. Now I can escape at last into time. Find him, the one I love. Be reunited with him. The force of the blasting rockets kept the Dalek ship away from the Hulk's cluster for a good half a minute. This was remarkable. The first time a craft had ever broken off, even briefly. Was it due to the excellence of Dalek technology? 
or a small sign that the magnetizing force was beginning to weaken. Then the inevitable back, said a white Dalek. In the corridor, three white Daleks had rolled to a wide doorway which had slid open. One of them said, I have activated the total war soldier, and went through the door while the others waited outside. Soon the first emerged again, and behind it came a massive, grotesque figure, casting a shadow onto the floor. In the control room, the gold Dalek watched the trajectory of the ship on the screen with, as nearly as possible in the narrow emotional lexicon of the Daleks, satisfaction. All goes as I desired. Perfect. On the remnants of the time engine, the light was flashing crazily. The Dalek craft had curved away in a shallow arc from the place where it had lodged and was now being dragged back, not to the same place, towards a long, narrow, wooden hull. The time light flashed with increasing urgency. It told the Daleks they were approaching very near to a dense time phenomenon. The ship hit the outer wall of the longship in a hard, dry crunch. The metal gantry twisted. The wooden wall splintered. Multiple pieces flew inward or broke in the middle, flew upward and downward like the yawning jaws of a monster. The near row of pillars shook but remained upstanding. Milady's TARDIS shuffled forward a few feet. The god TARDIS, in its time bubble, experienced no effect from the impact at all, the skin of the bubble glistening and dancing with scarlet to all eyes but Marcel. The youngsters in the hall cried out. The doll-like girl ran into the office. Others followed her. She saw the mess of the smashed cages, and underneath one of them, the hand of a dead Nalgrim, wide open as if grabbing for something. She pushed the other children back out into the hall before they could see the dead recruiting officer. She indicated the stairs. They went down. The galley's ceiling had cracked, but most of it was undamaged. Through the holes where the oars were missing, they could see the underside of the Dalek craft like a looming steel cloud. The complete remaining crew of seven Daleks were gathered in the control room. A white Dalek said, That outer war soldier is activated! Excellent, said the gold Dalek. It was watching the time light. Two of you will remain on guard here. We obey! Said two white Daleks, sliding to the scanner screen. The rest will go outside. We obey! And so, five Daleks left the control room and rolled round the corridor. They came to the entrance, near the eight remaining hover vehicles, where gaping rips showed in the control panels. An astonishing object slid silently behind. At nearly seven feet, it was much taller than they were, and from the middle upward, somewhat narrower, the top half shaped like a miniature metal lighthouse. Its head showed four eye stalks, one at each quartile, allowing it to see 360 degrees. At its midriff, it had four guns and four arms, which ended not in suckers, but in three-fingered metal claws. Below these, four spotted Dalek skirts billowed out, making a star shape at the base. 
The lobster woman saw a quick, sharp movement of something under the furthest bench, where the boards on either side came together like praying hands. It was a foot, pulling itself fast under the bench for concealment. She reached for him. He kicked out at her and hit one of her claws, scratching it but not cracking the shell. She tugged on a foot, dragging him a few inches further into the open. His head remained under the bench, but his neck was exposed now. She leant over his kicking legs, holding her claws up and reaching towards that neck. Claws snapping open and closed. She touched the neck and felt for the windpipe. No, said the doll woman, no. The lobster girl looked at her. After all his cruelty and sadism, was this not what the nurse deserved? She didn't speak these thoughts, but they hung in the air. No! The doll approached the lobster girl, gently pulled the claws from the nurse's neck. No! We must not become like him. There was a humming sound above. The Dalek craft's door slid open, and the ramp touched the longship's floor softly. The Daleks rolled out. Behind them came the Dalek war soldier. Once it was on the longship's floorboards, the soldier began to fire towards the first galley staircase. The light of the soldier's ray bounced off the top of the staircase, lighting the slaves' faces below. The nurse came out from under his bench. The doll-like creature had saved his life for the moment but he could not believe he would escape the revenge of her comrades. He knew what he would have done, and it was inconceivable that others might behave differently. There was continuous gunfire, but it wasn't light in the staircase anymore, suggesting whatever was overhead had moved further into the hall. The lady and the boys had been watching the time bubble. Every second the doctor didn't reappear was a second closer to Milady having to seal the bubble. Come on, doctor, said Adric. Come on. And then there was the crash of the Dalek ship. Milady's TARDIS was so strongly built it could withstand nearly any shock. There was no rocking and rolling and being thrown back and forth as in a Type 40, even as the Dalek ship smashed through the longship's wall. The exterior moved a few inches, but nothing was felt inside. Both Milady's hands were occupied, holding the time bubble in place. Marcel, would you press that button, please? She nodded towards a blue disc. The scanner image divided into four. The time bubble could be seen at the top right. The others showed angles of the hall. One image, where rays hit Milady's TARDIS ineffectually, was distorted, heavy rain on a windscreen. But two were clear, and they showed a grotesque, Dalek-like figure, a weird 360-degree death device firing. Marcel remembered 2164. Daleks, he said, his body tensing. Daleks, said Adric stunned in the pool. I will find him. We will be together again. In their hermetic, time-swirled place, the doctor and the mechanic knew nothing of outside events. My dear mechanic, you're not going anywhere. 
All that dense time, it's seeping in here now. You've got all those millennia of ageing to catch up with. There was the slightest hint of grey in her hair. There were lines around her mouth, bags under her eyes. You lie, she said, staggering. You can't fool me. You're the embodiment of evil, You always hated him. You've always sought to destroy him. You disgust me. Her hair was white now, face bonier, green skin drier, her green eyes roomy. The doctor felt his own skin loosening around the jaw. Dense time was touching him, too. The Dalek Total War Soldier was a weapon of mass destruction. It could not lead, it could not speak, it could scarcely think, but it could destroy. It made an impenetrable wall of fire to the staircase and towards Milady's TARDIS. In front of it, the Daleks fired ahead, making another impenetrable wall. They came to the Graf's throne. One of the Daleks nudged it and it toppled over. The nurse stuck his head above the stairwell. What good luck! Yes, now was his chance. On the fourth side where the Dalek craft lodged, there was a gunfire-free zone. If he could get past it and to the gantry, bent he saw, but still attached, he'd be free. He had long legs. The gantry was so very near. He could do it. Just wait for the right moment. Not yet, not yet, not yet. He thought, when you say run, run. His thin, long body was coiled. The Dalek war soldier had rolled further forward and was many yards from the Dalek ship, the wall of fire moving forward with him like rain with a cloud. Now. Run! He ran. Run, run, run! He said this repeatedly under his breath as he dashed forward with blind exhilaration. Run, run, run! Run, 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 run! He came to the Dalek ship's mouth. I've done it! I'm alive! Alive! The war soldier let off a hail of fire at the ship. The nurse's skeleton was visible as the Dalek blasts hit him. He was still running, but this was a mechanical action. Then he stopped and fell and never did anything more ever again. The mechanic's green skin was becoming powdery. I must get to work. I must get to work. You're finished. All that dense time is catching up with you. It was a depressing sight. The doctor had seen a sudden desiccation like this before, the end of a being who thought it could live forever and found its ambition proved a lie. And yet the mechanic hadn't wanted any such thing. She had only wanted to find someone. Before his eyes, she became a hundred. She became three hundred. She became a thousand. As the total war soldier came parallel to the large manifestation which stood in the middle of the hall, it stopped firing at it while continuing to spit death to the galley. Apparently it knew what its masters did not wish to damage or destroy. 
Moments later, the Daleks stopped firing, and the war soldier stopped also and was then utterly still. It had scarcely any capacity for thought, but it contained a cloudy biological consciousness up in the head by the eye stalks. The Daleks surveyed the hall in a circle. The gold Daleks' focus dwelt first of all on the small wooden church between pillars. Then it swung towards the larger building. It is from this structure that the surge came. This is the working time machine. Now it is ours, said a white Dalek. The others joined in. Now it is ours. Now it is ours. Lady was troubled. If I seal the bubble now, the Daleks will be prevented from getting inside. The Doctor will be lost to us, but... And if you don't seal it, they'll have their own time machine, said Marcel bitterly. Then you'll have to seal it anyway, and they'll escape into the universe. Please, give the Doctor just a bit more time, implored Adric. Marcel put his arm around the younger boy's shoulders again. He wanted to say... The doctor made his choice. He's finished, but kept quiet. Oh, my dear boys, said Milady. My dear boys. And her words included the doctor. The bubble parted like a curtain. The gold Dalek approached the big wooden door. Its underlings followed. Will the soldier keep guard here? Asked one. It will board with us. Soon we will be on our journey. The Daleks now have the key to the time stream. The gold Dalek crossed into the big building. The others followed. The total war soldier came last, and it too had soon disappeared. Milady said, They've gone through. I've no choice. I must seal the bubble. You can't, shouted Adric. The doctor's in there. I wouldn't want to contemplate the catastrophe if they managed to dematerialize. And until the bubble sealed, there's a chance. I have to contemplate the catastrophe of Daleks every day, said Marcel passionately, of his beloved battered city, of his beloved Leon Paul. Please, said Hadric, please. The scarlet light danced delightfully across the rim of the bubble. Milady's hand now approached the sealant. The mechanic was more confused than distressed by her decay. She was becoming little more than a self-aware husk, a walking figure of green-tinged dust. The doctor staggered. He put his hand to his head. He felt tired, very tired. Yes, dense time was upon him, like a skeletal hand on the shoulder. He turned and made for the door. The figure of dust which was the mechanic followed him, apparently without purpose. The door began to move inward. The doctor's instincts shrieked at him. His energy reaffirmed itself. He ran in a few long strides and ducked down behind the twisted wires and pipes and wheels of the exposed console stand. He could see the glint of a golden, spotted metal skirt. Behind it came the white skirts, and then what looked from the doctor's eye line like four Daleks mashed into one macabre beam. The lady watched the Daleks disappear from sight. It was vital that they did not escape the vortex. It was a hard choice, but unavoidable. 
she pressed the sealing button. Fire flashed. Adric turned sharply. No! There was no choice, dear boy. No! The crumbling mechanic stared at the newcomers. She stepped backwards slowly, reaching her pale dust-green arms behind her as if to feel for the cool comfort of her console. She touched it and stood there in almost a protective gesture. Exterminate! The gold Dalek might have saved its breath because the old, dry woman was falling away. Her skin and bones were turning to final dust now. Her overalls were a myriad cloth flakes eaten by time. For a few moments, she maintained the outline of her form in a sort of quivering life. Then she was a pastel green powder on the floor. The gold Dalek circled the console, spitting up the little heap mixed with pieces of clothing, scattering it. The Dalek exulted. At last, the Daleks have a time machine. Our plans are coming to fruition. We have access to all that is in the past and all that is in the future. All the universe at all points in time will reach its ultimate destiny as a sole empire. An empire of the Daleks. himself against the innards of the console, wires warm against his cheek. This gap-filled construction hardly hid him at all. The wine-red coat didn't help. It couldn't merge into anything but a Victorian theatre curtain. There was a good chance Milady had already sealed the time bubble. In her position, he would probably have done so by now. If she had, he was finished. And intense stillness he felt his ageing. The longer he stayed inside dense time, the faster he'd decline. Not as rapidly as the mechanic, all those frozen centuries catching up to her. But his hastening end was under his skin. The Daleks focused on the machinery. I will soon work out the operating mechanism. But the total war soldier spotted a movement, a figure on hands and knees dashing out from under the console. Lacking speech, the soldier gurgled. The doctor pushed on the door and crawled through. The war soldier let out several blasts, pockmarking the door. Outside, the doctor sprang to his feet, hands over his head, semaphoring. Then he ran towards the bubble's skin. He bounced him back. It had been sealed. Undo it! 
Undo it, cried Adric. Calm down, snapped Milady. Look! The doctor made another leap at the bubble's wall. Swinging his arms about, he found a soft spot and ran through it, filmed with dampness. Sublime, multicoloured flames shot out like a miniature firework display at the moment the sealant firmed up. Beautiful, said Milady. The seal wasn't dried yet, she added. You were going to leave him to die. I made the choice he would have made. Did it work? said Marcel, who of course had not seen the flames. It worked, darling lad. Bon, said Marcel. They went out into the great hall. Are you all right? shouted Adric. I'm jolly good, said the doctor, though he looked very tired. So, you are willing to sacrifice me, milady? With his sleeve, he wiped the stickiness from his face. Was I right? she said as a statement. Of course you were. He rested his back against a wooden pillar, and like someone who cannot stay awake, he began to slide down it. He staggered, collected himself, staggered, folded to the floor. That was the one called the Doctor, said a white Dalek. Now we have the power of this time machine. We can track him down and eliminate him from history, just as he tried to eliminate the Daleks. The gold Dalek turned to another of his subordinates. Has the dematerialization process been determined? It has operate it. We must be launched into the time stream. I obey. Just as the Dalek reached out to the lever, it stopped still. The eye stalk began to jerk back and forth. The leader turned to the malfunctioning Dalek and released a blast. The force set it skimming a few feet, clearing a space at the controls. The gold Dalek took its place. It reached out to the lever. The exposed interior of the time rotor, with its knots and cables and wheels and lights, rose, fell, rose, fell. The Daleks are entering the universe! But even as it spoke, one of its underlings began to spin like a top, letting out a deep groan. The eye stalk of another flopped downward and was still. Another began to burble. I obey! Exterminate! I obey! I obey! I obey! Davros is my leader! Exterminate all! Davros is my leader! The universe belongs to the Daleks! Exterminate! From another came a scratching, as if the being inside was fighting to get out. Gold Dalek didn't care. It had a new, all-powerful time machine. It would go down in the history of the forthcoming ultimate empire of the Daleks. The Dalek Total War Soldier looked on, still as a pillow. Its tiny pulp of a brain registered confusion. The midst of confusion was its natural habitat, but its brain pulp shrank in the swirling, dense time. And in the confusion, it did what it believed in its senility it was built to do. 
it began to fire. It seared the door, the firewall, a white Dalek. It hit a part of the console which exploded, sending two Daleks rolling backwards. It fired at the spinning Dalek. The creature inside let out a last high-pitched squeal and died. But the case still spun faster and faster. The leader, gold tarnishing, fired at the war soldier. But the soldier was made of tough stuff. The Daleks had the capacity to exterminate virtually any living thing, but like so many warlike beings, they had perfected a weapon they could not easily destroy. Exterminate! The gold Dalek was now the colour of aged rust. The war soldier repeatedly fired at it. The rust Dalek didn't cry out or moan. It just died, exterminated by its own creation. The doctor, back against the pillar, arms on his knees which were drawn up to his chest, was contemplating the mechanic's TARDIS, calm in its bubble. Its heavy, rustic wooden door invited congregants, music, candles. It offered spiritual succour. Adric was on his knees at the doctor's side. Milady and Marcel stood nearby. Also in the hall were the young aliens from many planets. After the hall had fallen silent, they had slowly made their way up from the galley, one by one, the braver or more foolhardy first. Now they were against the outer wall of the office again, lost waifs. The wardrobe and trunk were in a corner. Here and there around the floor there were a number of scattered rusty knives and useless guns and broken belts. There were other objects too. The youths had apparently been back inside the office and brought stuff out because the empty filing cabinet was there and a big rusty box, taller than a man and as wide as two, which looked like a computer bank, lying on its side, right half open, showing a worn cushion and machinery of what appeared to be a medical kind. Adric recognised it and thought of Vula. The doctor ran a hand through his curls, then drew it down his face and chin, emphasising the elongation of the features which comes with deep exhaustion. He put a hand on the pillar and made to stand up, but collapsed. Using Adric's shoulder, he tried again, and this time got to his feet. He stretched. I feel much better. He ran on the spot. Much better. See? Losing interest in the matter of himself, he turned a circle on his heel. His brow creased. Are you looking for something? asked Adric. As he revolved, the doctor saw his hover vehicle. It was full of holes. It would never fly again. The doll-like girl, the lobster girl and a red boy were touching it nervously, as if it were an animal which looked friendly but might bite. We can take you back to your TARDIS, doctor, said Milady. That's very nice of you. Not yet. He turned another circle. What are you looking for? asked Adric. The doctor told his friends about the mechanic and her botched construction. He ended with a query. I wonder why the mechanic's TARDIS got trapped in this particular part of the hulk. Because this is where she did her work, said Milady. This is where she launched herself from. But why here? The mechanic mentioned a trove of TARDISes. 
At that moment, the longship shook. The slaves were thrown against the wall. The little hovercraft shimmied. Guns rolled, knives slid. The doctor and Adric and Milady and Marcel fell to the floor. Marcel's nose hit the wood sharply. Uh, Instinctively, he checked for damage. There wasn't any. The gantry bent. The Dalek ship bounced from the splintered opening and then settled back to it. Daleks, shouted the doctor. Do we know for sure they all went inside the mechanic's TARDIS? The quartet looked from one to the other. The longship creaked. The Dalek ship bounced again. They're trying to get away, said Adric. At first, this seemed the best explanation, until the Doctor experienced a sudden revelation. No, the magnetic pull is fading. Now the mechanics' materialisations have stopped. The hulk will begin to break up. Everything settled again, a calm before a storm. We must gather the survivors and make a getaway, said Milady. Hurry! The Doctor was back on his feet. These craft are fused into one structure. There's still time before they loosen and separate. There was a moment of strange quiet. Marcel, still on his belly, saw a small gun. He picked it up. It was cold. If you had asked him on April the 7th, 2164, about his view of war, he would have said he despised it. He might have said he was a pacifist. Now the face of Leon Paul came to him. Their birthday plans, the voice of Julietta Dumas, a restaurant with soft lighting, Leon Paul's laughter. And in this quiet, Marcel Chowdhury felt limpid hatred as he had never done before, not even in Paris or that terrible graveyard. He felt it physically, a punch in the gut. Milady had said, You're dead, Marcel. Adric had said, You mustn't go back. You mustn't. All his old life was lost to him. The Daleks had taken everything. He looked through the open door of their spaceship. A peaceful, kind, loving person. That's how he thought of himself. He looked at the gun. And he remembered. A hundred triggers pulled. The guns didn't work. But there were Daleks in that ship and he wanted revenge. A new, bright, terrible feeling. They might kill him, probably would. But anyway, yes, they're already dead. As Milady, the Doctor and Adric began gathering the youths together, Marcel spotted a heap near the medical machine. He crawled towards it. There were chairs on their sides. There was a pair of boots. There were bits of torn basketry. And there was one shining object, perhaps two feet long. A weapon of some kind? It was bent at the halfway point. The device was jointed. Mon Dieu, a mechanical arm severed at the shoulder. He pulled the arm towards him. There was a metal hand and a thin tube projecting from the palm. He looked into the broken end like a hunter staring down the barrel of a gun which, he realised, it was. He straightened the elbow. He pushed a closed fist a few inches into the opening, compressing the innards. 
From the palm's tube there came a thin trickle of a ray. It blackened a piece of basketry. A gun that worked. He cradled the arm. Hardly thinking, he padded fast and silent across the hall and up the ramp. Inside, there were several hover vehicles, the control panels cut open. He followed the circular corridor. The gun arm made him feel strong, empowered. He passed several doors on his left. One was half open and he stuck his head through into an empty room from which machinery had been removed. On his right was a wider entrance. Another moment of turbulence made the craft move. Marcel fell against the wall, hitting it with his forehead, scraping the skin. He felt blood up there on the left. He didn't care. He was focused on his mission. He pressed a button. The door slid open. Two white Daleks swerved towards him. Bruno Lafer! Marcel raised the gun. He shoved his fist into it. A ray came out, but just a dribble. The floor near his feet darkened. He punched the innards more forcefully. The ray leapt further and again scarred the floor. He punched it and punched it. Uh! But separated from the mechanics of its body, Marcel's merely human strength could not make the gun's ray travel far enough. Perhaps it's as well the Daleks could not laugh. They glided towards him. The group of slaves were flopped across each other in a pile outside Milady's TARDIS because they had just been thrown to the ground by the Hulk's tremor. They began to climb to their feet again. We're going to take you home, Milady said, like a kindly schoolmistress. She looked over their heads to the doctor and Adric, who had managed to stay upright. Adric was leaning, arms crossed, with lazy dignity against a wooden pillar. Where's Marcel? asked Milady. The boy in the grey clothes. The doll-like girl with orange skin pointed. He went in there. What? The doctor cried. He looked quite cross, said the doll. The doctor ran towards the Dalek ship. Stupid. The word cut repeatedly through Marcel's head. Stupid, 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 stupid. Exterminate! He threw the hopeless robotic arm at the Daleks and leapt out of the way of a death ray. He ran from the control room. A blast hit the wall behind him. Stupid, 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 stupid. As he circled towards the hover vehicle, there was a flash of a scarf. The craft shook and tilted upward. He fell over against the vehicle. The doctor sprawled on the floor. The Daleks bounced against the corridor's wall and back. They fired. Exterminate! Marcel sprang away from the vehicle just as a ray hit it. It was at the open door of the Dalek ship. The weakening magnetism was releasing the Dalek ship. It was several yards from the long ship's hull and the gap was widening. Below was huge red nothingness. Jump! Marcel felt a shove at his back and he flew off like a skydiver. He landed with a thud on the long ship's wooden floor. Safe! He rolled around. The doctor stood in the Dalek ship's doorway as it pulled further out. The door began to slide shut. The doctor leapt into air, but in his weakened state, he couldn't summon the needed spring. He thrust his arms out and gripped the longship's edge. His legs flailed. Exterminate! No one controlling it. The ship rocked back, then rolled forward, Daleks with it, blocking the threshold. 
The closing door pushed against their casings, holding them in its grip, half in, half out. Rays passed under the doctor's feet and charred the wooden hull. There was a cracking sound. Marcel snatched one of the doctor's hands in one of his. He threw out the other, but the doctor missed it. The red abyss yawned. Marcel felt a heavy weight on top of his own legs. Adric and several others gripped them. Milady held her hand out, snatching the doctor's other wrist. A single effortful tug pulled the doctor's torso onto the great hall's floorboards. Well, he said, legs hanging in the void, that was close. And he flashed an enormous grin. Exterminate! The Dalek ship tilted again, so a blast went over the great hall's roof. Then sideways, so the next shot hit the gantry. The door squeezed, fighting to close. Skirts cracked. One of the eye stalks hit the head of the other and snapped off. Emergency! Emergency! The blind Dalek fired into his comrade's grill. There was a squawk like some alien bird. The blind Dalek tried to force the dead one out. The door was mashing them together. The blind body half revolved. The skirts back nudged the other forward an inch and it was enough to release it into the void. It dropped to infinite rest. Before the blind Dalek could roll back into the ship, the door, like a nutcracker, pressed against both sides. Adric covered his face. Milady turned away. The doctor watched, tired and horrified. Marcel, however, watched with relish. The door sliced right through the outer shell. The Dalek's front half plummeted into the redness, turning over and over, expelling little twirls of once living green. And as he lost sight of it, Marcel's hatred turned inward. He had never imagined he could feel these brutal excitements. This hatred turned to shame. The Dalek craft pulled away until it too was lost to sight. The last of the Daleks, mumbled Adric. No one responded. The Doctor had lost interest the moment the situation had resolved itself. He had other things on his mind now. His friends supposed his thoughts had snapped back to the earlier question, where was the mechanic's trove of TARDISes? The longship jolted violently. Everyone fell on the floor. There was a percussive struggle as floorboards fought against nails, pushing, pulling. A crack ran like a snake halfway along. A gap appeared between two slats near the gantry, showing a narrow eye of red light. The far wall began to tear. And then everything was still again. Tharvez and Vula had sped from corridor to corridor, from ship to ship on the war soldiers' platform, flear behind, until they came to the main deck of the defunct, tall aliens. The screen was blank. The captain's skeleton lay on the floor. The child's toy had rolled halfway across the room. The hover vehicle knocked it aside and it moved again. Tharvez crossed to the control desk and took the tall captain's seat, Fleer behind him. Vula waited by the Trolka ship, which still nestled in the remains of the smashed time engine. Tharvez pressed a button. Tinny alien music began to play. He pressed another. The screen flickered. The camera showed the Hulk starting to break apart. Metals tensed and creaked as craft pulled against each other. 
piece of grey sheeting floated by. Could their journey now continue? Thavis felt a triumphant sensation as he saw in his imagination the project's total failure transform into total success. It was a pity about the deaths of his fellow Trulka, but war is war. It was a pity about his missing arm and Vula's missing arm, but they could be replaced. When the Trulka had power over the time stream, it would all have been worth it. A strong, ethical species that would eliminate the weak, the foolish, the primitive, for the great good of a peaceful universe. Oh, the noble Trulka. Soon to be the monarchs of time, he said on his breath as he went to the ship. We must leave. He put his hand on Vula's face. Soon, my daughter, we will visit our past. We will eliminate our centuries of suffering. Those centuries lost to the disease, no longer to be lost. He collected the hover platform and brought it on board. This will be of interest. He put it at the back of the craft. Fleer ended his tube and within a minute was in the sleep state. Tharvis and Vula took their seats. The door closed and locked. Tharvis looked at the box between their seats. A moment of doubt came. Perhaps it would not work after all. Perhaps they were stuck here forever. Perhaps the failure really was a failure. But he said to his daughter, brightly, Soon we'll be on our way. The longship rocked again, throwing everyone about, but the mechanic's TARDIS remained settled. Within its bubble, it was at the same time inside the longship and infinitely distant from it. A beautiful paradox. Was the mechanic's TARDIS the only thing seemingly untouched by the damage? The doctor let out a sigh of discovery. Of course. Something else had shown no sign of disturbance. Two rows of three pillars. They had not bent or twisted or cracked. They were as firm, as fixed as ever, even as the boards rattled and rusty nails tinkled down. A trove of TARDISes. The doctor circled the nearest pillar, hand on the wood. Something gave way. He and Adric went through. Yes, the control room of a TARDIS. Not a Type 40, but only one or two types removed. Within each of the circular indents, there was a picture, a figure, back to the viewer, and whether a male or female, unknowable, leaning on a fence, looking out to a wide expanse. The figure was always the same, but there were a variety of vistas, a city street, a field, an ocean, the stars. A larger copy of the same figure on the ceiling looked on a spiral galaxy. Where the time rotor and the console should have been, there was a hole in the floor from which stuck an array of torn wires. Bits and pieces from the console lay about. The sheet of a single panel with holes for the dials and buttons lay flat on the floor. There was a dematerialization lever sitting by itself. The doctor picked it up and turned it and dropped it. He and the boy went back outside. The next pillar revealed walls of a more contemporary model, still showing images of the figure with its back turned. The hole in the floor was neater, no wires showed. 
there were even fewer pieces remaining of the stolen console. Milady and Marcel joined Adric and the doctor. How delightful, said Milady, noticing the images. The old insignia of the Department of the Watchers, back when they could be bothered with branding. I'm one of the last of the department, and here we are in the tardises of some of the first. We really have gone full circle, haven't we, Monami? She became practical. We must get you back to your TARDIS and take our youthful friends home, she said. I won't be long, said the doctor. He went back into the longship and crossed the hall to the next pillar, his three companions following. The next TARDIS and the next were different yet again, but all showed the same series of images. All consoles were gone. She was an astonishing engineer, muttered the doctor. They went into the last. This was a much earlier model. Type 26, I think, said the doctor. And look, an untouched console. It was made of an unvarnished oak-like wood. Indeed, the walls, though designed with a familiar indents, were themselves of wood, which showed patches of bark. The figure with its back to the viewer had been hand-carved into the circles. Remarkable craftsmanship. I've never seen that, said Milady, impressed. Looks in working order, said the doctor. I wonder why she left it untouched, said Adric. For her purposes, the oldest was the least useful. But further, she would have wanted to keep one aside, just in case. Always have a backup plan. Of course, she didn't know she was going to spend millennia trapped in her customised device. Poor woman. Forgive me if my pity has its limits, said Milady. She nearly brought the universe to an end. And all for a delusional love. The doctor staggered and leant on the wooden console. Are you all right? I'm fine, he said. But he looked very pale and worn out. The door of Milady's TARDIS stood open the freed aliens parading in one by one. The doctor saw a little craft streaking through the redness. The Trulker, he said. The craft disappeared with a boom. The Trulker, Milady thought for a moment. Ah, the dominant species of Trulkara, a very violent race, arrogant too. Milady made a sudden connection. Ah, those damaged cyborgs on the hover platforms. I thought I recognised them. The Trulker having access to time travel. Not a good idea at all. And yet we cannot interfere, can we? The Doctor flashed a dry smile, and Milady flashed an even drier one. As they've been trapped in the Hulk with us, they've entered the orbit of our own lives and experience. This would not be interference. Doing something is not the same as undoing. The small print of a watcher's contract must be a headache. It is all quite logical, actually. They certainly don't see themselves as arrogant or dangerous. They see themselves as superior and just. What the universe needs is a bit of trulker discipline, they think. Self-knowledge is not their strong suit. The doctor paused for a second. Nor the mechanics, I'm afraid. She thought she had become separated from her fellow traveller by accident. She devoted all her energy to the day they would be back together. 
I suppose she imagined a joyous reunion. It didn't cross her mind the ejection wasn't an accident at all. The greatest Time Lord. <laughs> As you say, poor woman. Anyway, I'm pleased to hear I cannot be accused of undue interference in the matter of the Trulka. You see, I reversed the polarity of their time box. They won't complete their journey. They'll go back where they started and the box will die. That's perfectly acceptable. They went on a journey through time and never completed it. That's a fixed truth. Hopefully it'll keep them from time travel long enough for them to reflect a bit. At the moment I fear they'd go about the universe slaughtering everything in sight while saying what a peaceful and ethical people they are. Adric and Marcel were standing by the far pillar. Marcel reached out to the boy, took one of his hands and tugged him towards him. He gave him a sweet, chaste kiss on the forehead and smiled down at him. I want to go home, Adric. He thumbed towards the nearby pillar. Oh, you mustn't. It's dangerous, said Adric. I don't belong here. I'm glad I had this experience. I'm glad I met you. But I'm an adventurer only in the intellect. I've seen things in myself I don't like, things I never want to see again. I'll take my chances in Paris 2164. Maybe I'll be killed. doesn't matter. I'm already dead anyway. An insignificant man. An insignificant planet. His eyes glistened with a hardness Adric had not seen in him before. But maybe, just maybe, I'll find my lover. As if to make this true, he nodded and said again, Maybe I will. His eyes were soft again. Marcel, I... You... Rassure-toi, darling garçon, as milady might say. He put a finger to his lips. The longship began to quake severely. The boys in their corner fell to the floor. Across the room, Milady and the doctor gripped a pillar. With a deafening sound of spitting, a snake-like crack down the central floorboard completed its journey. Nalgren guns fell through the space and hit the floor of the galley below. A wide chasm opened for a moment between the two halves of the floor, then closed. Adric and Marcel staggered upright. The chasm showed again, then the halves joined again. I will never forget you, shouted Marcel. Adric reached out for him, but a terrible quake threw him back until he collided hard with the pillar by Milady's TARDIS. Back aching, he hurtled through Milady's door to find the youth sipping juices and eating pastries, the doctor and Milady at the console. The scanner showed the longship rocking and cracking. Planks flew into the void. Ah, Adric, we'll drop you and the doctor off first, then the others. Now, young people, would you like to go home? The young people agreed that they would. If you'll kindly give me the names of your planets, after we've said farewell to our friends here, I'll make some quick hops. I hope you're all from this universe. No East Space residents, I hope. I don't know those parts at all. Now, anyone from Scaro? Mondas? Telos? No? Good, because I'm certainly not going to those planets. Adric was in a quandary. He didn't know whether to say that Marcel was not coming back or let Milady find out later, hopefully after he and the Doctor were well on their way. Marcel should have listened to him, but he couldn't force him to, and anyway, he had pushed him away. It wasn't his fault if he wouldn't listen. 
He couldn't have got back to him across those cracked floorboards. And Adric at this moment was still young enough to care more that Marcel would not think him a sneak than what the adults might say. In the event, the decision was taken out of his hands because Milady said sharply, Where's Marcel? Uh, maybe he's gone to his room, said Adric. Adric, snapped the doctor. Where is he? I don't know. There was an embarrassing silence. He, he said he wanted to look in one of those TARDISes. That foolish boy, said Milady, and I had taken him for an intelligent person. He's just so unhappy, said Adric. Something happened to him in that Dalek ship. He was upset by the violence. Not what he saw, what, what he felt inside. I think he'd begun to somehow not, not like himself. Milady let out a big sigh. What he feels! It's beside the point. We need reason, not feelings. He's a human being a human, said the doctor, not admiringly. Let humans be humans and Daleks be Daleks and God help the universe. I did tell him, Doctor, about the paradox and everything. In the mechanic's TARDIS, locked in its bubble, the console was ablaze. Fire licked the ceiling. Daleks burnt. The total war soldier's already weak understanding was declining. It stood still, sending rays in all directions until, after many hours, it was spent. After many hours more, the fire died out. The war soldier's tiny consciousness sat inside it, looking out, master of all it surveyed. But it wasn't supposed to be a master of anything. It didn't want to be. It didn't know what it was or why it was there. And so it just sat there. The light flickered and went dark. And still the total war soldier stood there. Dark or light? What difference did it make? Marcel moved around the console of his tent. His tent. Milady had a tent. The doctor and Adric had a tent. And now Marcel had his tent. The dials, levers and buttons on this console were differently arranged. Milady was right. It was infuriating how they had kept rearranging the pattern. Still, these in front of him were made to do the same jobs. And as long as he stayed calm, he was sure he could make this machine do what he wanted. He had, after all, watched closely. Yes, Marcel was a watcher in his own way. He had watched Milady at her beautiful new tent and watched in those weird, empty old machines. He looked up at the ceiling with its carved image of a watcher looking across a galaxy. Oui, Marcel, you are a watcher now. Maybe there was a manual hidden away somewhere. Written in alien script, of course, but with illustrations. But being an early Ted, this console was simpler than most. Maybe even a stupid human could make it fly. He tried to recall how those watched fingers had moved. He wished he had a photographic memory. That would have made it easier. 
he closed his eyes and tried to remember. Especially, he remembered the children's playroom Ted, with its colourful, simplified representations of the levers and dials. If a Gallifreyan child could learn from such a toy, then so could he. Marcel's heart beat, sweat built on his forehead. He flexed his fingers like an athlete. That dial over there, that was for programming the date, time and place, surely. And that lever, it operated the time rotor. And that one, dematerialization. You can do this. You know you can. His hand was shaking. He wiped away the beads of sweat, touching the scar which marked his last moments on earth. It would make him look even more handsome, she'd said. He didn't feel handsome now. He felt bedraggled and small and terrified. An insignificant man. His fingertips were damp. He rubbed them across his jacket. The sweat beads gathered again. They started to move his fingers. He felt detached from them, watching. Yes, watching. He was a watcher. As they pressed out information into a keypad, tap, 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 which appeared in numerals on the little screen above. April 8th. 2164. The date of his death. The time, the exact time had been... But he had not known it then. He knew it only later when she told him. He did not so much recall it now as hear it spoken inside the memory in Milady's voice. 11.33 a.m. But he had to arrive before his death. April 8th, 2164. 11.23. That time seemed to shout at him as he programmed it into the tent. A space of ten minutes to prepare. He operated the time rotor. In a groan, it began to move. Iridescent colours shimmered and swirled in it. Whatever anger Milady felt seemed to have dissipated by the time she and the doctor and Adric stood by the blue police box saying their farewells. The doctor looked distracted, but he pressed his hand into hers warmly. He was leaning against the box as if to catch his breath. Then, without another word, he went inside. Look after him, Adric, said Milady. That Adric was to look after the doctor was so much a reversal of the normal situation that the boy hardly understood it. His quick nod was more a courtesy than comprehension. Truthfully, he was more consumed with the matter of Marcel than the doctor. He was sure the doctor would be all right because he always was. I'm sorry about Marcel. I should have tried harder. Milady tenderly brushed a lock of loose hair from his eyebrow. Not your fault, dear garçon. A twisted gantry began to rattle. The skeleton under the staircase shifted, as if turning in its sleep. You must be on your way. The lady pointed at a high steel computer bank behind her, which had only been there a few minutes. As must I. The longship dematerialised, leaving the mechanic's TARDIS in its time bubble hanging forever in limbo.
The longship materialised in an ocean of purplish green which licked the galley. Overhead, two moons hung in a dark copper sky. In the distance, thin fingers of a bluish mountain range reached upward. The longship had moved back in time just as it had been designed to do. Every time physicists had said that it would be easier to travel backwards than forwards, going to what had been rather than to what had not. So that was how all such investigations began. Only a two-day trip on this first try with a large ship and a crew, but what an achievement. The fact that the longship had been elsewhere for millennia was not known to the round, squat scientist who observed his success from a small boat bobbing a few hundred feet away. He took his hands from the belt around his fat waist where they had been resting and put the trinoculars to his eyes. And then the longship, many planks missing or warped so there were clear lines of separation, began to sink. later it was mostly submerged. The scientist was baffled. What in the vortex could have caused it to break up like that? It should have returned in perfect condition. Perhaps in two days, less than that now, when he pulled the lever at his elbow which would send the ship on its journey, he would observe this warping as it disappeared. He turned his back from the wreck and put up his trinoculars. The brand new ship was just visible in the haze, bobbing proudly in the dock. It would be launched away from land for safety's sake. Would the roof of the sunken Great Hall still be visible to him under the purple waters, while that beautiful, proud new ship went off on its adventure with its crew and its cargo of Nalgren slaves? He'd had the presence of mind to come alone to the place of return. When the ship went sailing off into time... Only he would know the truth. He turned his trinoculars back to the sinking wreck and again to the new ship. Sail on. Sail on. The magnetic pull had nearly died away as the breakup of the great sculpture of found objects gathered pace. Even the most strongly fused ships were loosening their grip. The ship of the tall aliens was vomited back into deep space. Tharvez had left the scanner screen on and the Muzak still played. So, as the craft was thrust past a big red sun towards a dazzle of stars, the deck witnessed the sublime sight. The shattered tank of the massive time engine would never function again. But the space engine was still in working order if only there had been someone alive to ignite it. There wasn't. And even had there been survivors to celebrate the escape, these would have died instantly on entering the vacuum of space, because the ship was full of holes. Except for those in command of the exquisite mystery of Gallifreyan technology, not a single crew member of any spaceship survived to tell of the strange red non-world they had been drawn into. But the ships did, suspended between planets. In the broken deck of the tall aliens, the scanner relayed its information and the Muzak played gently on.
the lights in the rotor made a lovely dance. Marcel opened the scanner. There were stars and planets. He too was somewhere in space and time. Tom Edemissuelative on espace. Very alone. Very frightened. But fear was okay. The emotion of fear, well disciplined, was a necessary part of a full life. Fear would take him home. His tent would take him home. The blue grandmother trotted into the kitchen where grandfather was stirring nettles and plants into a rich stew. We're moving! We're moving through time! The grandfather dropped the wooden spoon and galloped into the control room. It was true. They were leaving the vortex and would soon be in the deep past for which they had set out all those generations ago. Their planet had begun to run out of the minerals to power their cities, and their oceans had grown unseasonably warm, and the fish had begun to die. So some of the blue people had decided to depart their present for the far, cold past. And now the journey was resumed. They would soon be in the thickly-treed forests of their north. Every planet has a north and they would skip through those forests and play their music and make merry as their ancestors had. The little girl informed her doll. We're going home, she said. She wasn't as excited as her grandparents and parents and aunt and uncle because she missed her older brother so much. But she knew it was her duty to be happy because they were. Her mother, bulging with child, hugged her. The child inside kicked. And now the girl thought of the child and could join in the revelry. She so looked forward to her mother giving birth because then she would have a brother again. Not an older brother ever again. A younger one. But a brother. The empty town where no one had ever lived shot into space. A grimy bus sitting by a bus shelter with its advertisement bannered along the top went with it. Inside, it was not a bus at all. The empty town burst into the outer edge of the Eridina star system. It travelled for a while under its own momentum until, a long way from that system's sun, between the 12th and 13th planets, it stopped. One far future day, it was boarded by a group of cyborg warriors, led by a cynical captain called Triel. One of Triel's forebears, a man called Thaves, had got near to perfecting time travel technology. Somehow the device had failed, and Thaves, embittered and frustrated, had died soon after, his discoveries lost with him, his notes and sketches incomplete, uninterpretable by any but him, and how they had tried. Ever since, the Trulga had tried and tried and tried to break into the time vortex. Failure after failure. But they were now obsessed with it. Control of time was there to be had, if only. Triel did not much care how a silent, unoccupied alien town had come to this spot. The great discovery within the bus, and yet nested in its own dimension, 
was a cold stone tomb with a hexagonal stone altar. The altar reminded Triel of some of Thave's sketches made after his humiliating return. There had been theoretical notes about joining dimensions. Was this a time ship? It was as cold as Triel's heart. Triel and his men explored and questioned and commanded the big chilly room to give up its secrets. But it did not. They cursed it and felt it mocked them. The Dalek graveyard was so ruined and broken, its engine so melted to useless mush, it was no more capable of functioning than the child's TARDIS playroom. It spun end over end into what might be called the depths of the redness. Eventually it began to break up, and the Daleks that had died inside were freed from their tomb, only to become grit in the winds of time. But there was one Dalek casing which moaned and did escape instantaneously. This was not in reality a Dalek at all. It was a TARDIS Type 40. The sudden release swamped the rotor in so much built-up energy that it overflowed. The energy rushed into a very small man in a black armchair, forcing him off the chair and onto his feet. His eyes grew wide. With shock? With joy? With terror? He stood on the cool white floor for a moment and then collapsed and lay unutterably still. Was he dead? But almost immediately he sprung to his feet again and he began to change, not by his own body's will, but by the will of his TARDIS. The little man became ridiculously elongated and narrow. The rotor overflow had forced another pseudo-regeneration. But this one contained no life, no bones, no blood, no heart, no mind. Even as it might have seemed to contain briefly some kind of pseudo-life, the figure folded like shed skin, and wires hung dead from the black armchair. The TARDIS swept into the universe. At the controls of this Tedra of the Watchers, Marcel felt an almost childlike mingling of terror and adventure. He had always supposed he was a decent person, without especially trying to be. Kind to his lovers, generous to his friends, good to his parents. And yet now he had seen something new in himself. His hatred of the Daleks was just and righteous, and yet had revealed something he disliked. How decent was he, really? As a writer of imaginative gifts, he had peeled away secrets, revealed underbellies, but the exposure of fictional characters was different from what had been exposed to himself of himself. But it no longer mattered. He was going home, and almost certainly going to his death. He had told himself it was all for Leon Paul, but as the craft indicated it was nearing its destination, he realised he didn't hold out much hope for Leon Paul. An insignificant man, an insignificant planet. Ted materialised. The chameleon circuit read the surrounding area and made itself into a Morris column. It told passers-by about an American band coming to tour France, about Giulietta Dumas and the Bobino. It was April the 8th, 2164. 
It was 11.23. It was a pleasant morning. Paris was lively. It always was at that time. A woman and her dog looked at the Morris column. There was a shadow in the sky. Not a shadow, something solid. 11.24. A slightly drunk man passed. A gendarme stopped him and they talked. People pointed up. The shadow expanded. There were other shadows all over Paris. The shadows descended. 11.25. And they landed. Eleven twenty-six. Two young girls ambled by, one carrying a skipping rope. Why aren't they in school? asked Marcel at the console. Eleven twenty-seven. Five minutes. For the first time, Marcel wondered what he was actually going to do. Was he going to watch himself die, then step out in his own place? He heard Darwin groans. Eleven twenty-eight. Or was he going to open the door and let his own self in? Someone passed right by the column, carrying some flowers. There was a glint of something metallic at the far end of the square. 11.29. A couple of people stopped and looked at the metal thing with curiosity, which was now visibly an arced metal casing with what looked like an eye hole and what looked like arms and lights on its head which were turned off. There were blasts. Petals torn from flowers flew. A young man, in jeans ripped at the knee, walked into view, preoccupied. Marcel knew what he was preoccupied with. He was thinking over his essay on Le Champ Magnétique. 11.30. The young man was quite near the Morris column. There was an explosion. The young man was thrown to his knees. There were wails behind him. 11.31. He looked up. Despite the chaos, he was reading the information on the column. The movement of his eyes from poster to poster could be seen inside the tent. There was blood on his forehead. 11.32. Another explosion, a spit of dust. A hand reached out to the column. 11.33. I don't know what to do. Marcel pulled the lever and the Ted leapt back ten minutes. He covered his eyes and nose and mouth with his hands. Speak, see no evil. He put them over his ears, eyes tight shut, mouth tight shut, hear no evil. See, speak, hear nothing. See, speak, hear nothing. I don't know what to do. He rubbed his hand over his brow, sweat, he felt the scar. Breathe deeply. You must decide what to do rationally. Think clearly. You have a good mind. Think clearly. If you step out into Paris at the moment of your death, what chance do you have of another life? Not much. Does it matter? If you pull yourself into the tent, just as the death ray hits, does that mean there will be two of you? Or will one of you disappear? If there is only one of the two, which one? But if there are two of you, can there be three, four, five? Can you go back and back and back to 11.33 on April the 8th, 2164? Can you build an army of yourself? Would that mean that at 11.34, 
You can all go out into Paris to find Leon Paul. Maybe most of you will be killed, but one of you might survive to find him and hug him and feel his lips again. And you can find a place to hide with him. Just to be with each other one last time, even with the explosions around you and the cries of the dying. You will also die, of course, but in each other's arms. Something simple, a cup of chocolat or a glass of wine or a recording of Juliette Dumas, or just silence, but in each other's arms. Or will you all step out and vanish because the death ray got you as it would have done without Milady and you can't not exist and exist at once? Or maybe you can. Remember the stone tent, the flying bird and the fossil all one? Or maybe the ray doesn't get you then, but a moment later, a minute too, one of you is fatally hit and you all cease to exist. This is too much for me. I don't understand. Eleven thirty-one. Eleven thirty-two. Oh, Lavashi. Eleven twenty-three. Eleven twenty-four. Eleven twenty-five. Eleven twenty-six. Eleven twenty-seven. There was a terrible kind of beauty in the darling he saw, in the grace of its curves, in its quiet glide, the smooth movement of its head. Eleven twenty-eight. More time. I need more time. Eleven twenty-three. He went away from the console and sat on the floor, head in hands. He made a great effort to stop the workings of his mind. If only he could stop thinking, that would be best. Eleven twenty-eight. Eleven twenty-nine. He glanced up at the ceiling. A watcher, back turned, looked out to the cosmos. Eleven thirty. Eleven thirty-one. Eleven thirty-two. He sprang up. Eleven twenty-three. I'm not ready yet. Eleven thirty. Eleven thirty-one. I'm well over my head. Eleven thirty-two. Eleven thirty-three. Sweat on his eyelids ran over his lashes and made the image on the screen a blur. Eleven thirty-four. Just as the soul is supposed to fly from the body at death, so something flew out of him now. He looked up, calm, curious to see his own dead body in the street. But the image had gone black. Then it flickered and showed a new image. It was a face of great beauty and distinction. Dear garçon, would you open your door? There's a good boy. All the fight in him had gone. He pressed the button. Milady stood in the doorway. He could not look her in the eye. Don't think I don't know how difficult it is. You are not the only person to have suffered in the universe. But the novelist in him would have said, "Suffering, unhappiness, these are always unique, always isolating. Yours is not like mine." Happiness is generic; it's all the same. 
That's why no one writes books about happy people. They always seem stupid, scarcely alive. Only unhappiness makes you fully alive and fully yourself. Not brusquely, Milady turned her back on him. Just as he had come to her first from Paris, so now he supposed she had come to him from the same streets. He pictured her going down a side street. He pictured the burnt piece of her robe, remembered its texture between his fingers. Perhaps she had stepped over his corpse. He touched his console. Yes, his. It was his own now, his very own tetra. Could he travel in it for the rest of his life? Could he bear to be that alone? All he had really wanted was a room of his own to write in and someone to love and giggle with. He remembered the boy Adric. Maybe he would meet him and the doctor somewhere, sometime. Maybe he and Adric would giggle again. He made his way to the door. So he would step out after all. Paris and the Daleks, he would step out with Milady. But when he went through, it was not into Paris at all, but into Milady's tent. He looked back at his. It was still a Morris column. My dear Marcel, I want to give you a little gift. She went around her walnut console and pressed buttons. They were back in the vortex. They landed in a late dusk garden near a long, low-roofed cottage with blue-painted shutters. A village called Grey, not far from Paris, said Milady. Let's go out, quietly, she added, finger to lip. They stepped into a small, darkened clump of trees. A riverbank behind made a pleasing sing-song at the bottom of the garden. They padded softly under the grass. There was a light on in the cottage. There were several bookcases scattered around. There was a grand piano in a corner, though the piano music coming through the open window was a recording. Chopin, said Marcel. A black man of medium height passed by the window carrying two small glasses of burgundy. Another man, this one white, Slim and blonde sat in an armchair. A grey cat lay curled in his lap. The man with the drinks passed one to his companion, who reached up for it with his left hand. They exchanged a small peck on the lips. The seated man looked up with a smile. It was an unforgettable smile. It always had been. 2194, whispered Milady. He still looked good. His hair was still blonde. His face had thinned a little. He looked his age, but a good example of it. There was on his forehead a scar, in almost the same place as Marcel's. Strange that he should have used his left hand for the drink. Marcel recalled him as right-handed. Leon Paul shifted a little, and Marcel saw that, though there was a right hand, it was artificial. Here was perfect peace. But Leon Paul had lived through the horror of the Dalek invasion of Earth. 
His companion was a little younger and would have been in perhaps his early teens when the invasion happened. I've seen enough, whispered Marcel. The bookcase on the left, said Milady. There were framed photos. Two were of Leon Paul and his partner, one by a pyramid, another in the French quarter of New Orleans. But the third, my 21st birthday party, said Marcel. The two young men, boys really, looked into the camera with big grins. Their expressions were like the passport pictures in Marcel's wallet, but of better quality. I remember the very moment. To me it was only a year ago. To him a third of a century. He never forgot you. Never wanted to forget you. Now, Marcel, we must let them get on with their lives. She put her hand very gently on the small of his back and guided him towards a narrow tree in the clump into which they disappeared. You were right. Adric was right. I can't go back. You can't. How did you find him? Easily. My Ted hacked government records. So what now? If you wish, you can travel as my companion until such time as... She left the statement unfinished. Marcel looked down at his feet. I think... I think I may not be a very easy companion. I don't expect easy. I expect remarkable, and you are that. And one day, perhaps, there will be Gallifrey. One day I'll try and write about this, and... He laughed uneasily. <laughs> no, I won't. Not ever. He laughed again. Except as surrealist verse, maybe. I'm sure Breton and Super would be proud of you. The doctor was worryingly pale. Keep an eye on him, she had said. Suddenly his body went limp. His head dropped towards the time rotor. His hat was on the rotor, rising and falling. He pressed his hands on the console and just about kept on his feet. Are you all right? But then, as if pushed by some unseen hand, the doctor moved sharply backwards and folded to the floor. The boy ran around the console and fell to his knees. Doctor! Doctor! The doctor's eyes widened as he looked up at the bare white ceiling. Then the lids closed. Doctor! Was Adric witnessing a death? The eyes snapped open. Limbs began to shiver in a series of short spasms. Hands opened and closed as if trying to grab something overhead. Then they relaxed. The eyes shut and there was stillness. Doctor! The eyes opened again, wide, and found the boys. A big grin creased his face. Ah, Harry, 
How do I look? It's Adric, said Adric, bewildered. He tried to say positive things. Much better, not as peaky. It was true he was a little less pale. The doctor sat bolt upright. He ran his hands through his hair. A mirror, a mirror. Do you have a mirror? I can get one. Wait, I think I might... The doctor pushed a hand into one of his deep, deep coat pockets and pulled out a little hand mirror. He put it before his face, moving it from left to right. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear. What big eyes you've got. He moved it again. Distinguished nose, though, authoritative. He touched his hair again. Do you think the curls suit? They always have. They're very you. I'm not sure. You think I look all right? You look superb. But it's not an improvement, is it? Uh, it, it is to the extent that you don't look ill. The doctor held the mirror to his face again. It's still the same old me. Nothing happened. Now that's a bafflement indeed. He jerked his head up. Where are we, Jamie? Adric, in the TARDIS. Where have we come from? The Vortex. Milady and Marcel, the mechanic. Dense time. Dense time. Now that's very dangerous. Don't go anywhere near dense time. The doctor stood up. Don't just kneel there, young Ben, on your feet. We've got a time machine to look after. Dense time, a very bad thing. Adric. It is Adric, isn't it? It is. Can I trust you? You know you can. The doctor squinted. You don't look entirely trustworthy. You're far too intelligent. But I don't suppose you would betray anyone when it was a matter of life and death, eh? Of course not. Then I shall absent myself from your presence for a day or two. You can look after the old girl, can't you? He patted the TARDIS. If there's an emergency, of course, you must inform me. He lifted his hat from the rotor. He dropped it gently on Adric's head, then unfurled his scarf and wrapped it loosely round the boy's neck. So, Adric. It is Adric, isn't it? Yes. So, Adric. Just for today, you are in charge. He turned away, raised his hand in a wave, and went through the inner door. Adric, alone in the control room, was excited, confused, worried. He patted the console in just the way of the doctor. So, it's just you and me for a while, old girl. He felt it necessary to put a brave face on the matter, even to himself. He put his hand up to the hat brim and touched the edge. Things will be fine, he told the TARDIS repeatedly. Just fine. To himself, he said, I know they will. I know they will. Marcel went to his bedroom. He looked at the strip of passport photograph. Looked. Marcel was a watcher now. He kissed one of the pictures. Leon Paul gazed right at him as if he too were a watcher. Soon, Marcel had fallen asleep, clutching the strip of pictures. 
Milady, who rarely slept, remained in the luxurious control room of her enviable TARDIS. She drank a cup of tea and reflected on all that had recently passed. She decided it was necessary to contact the advisor to the Department of the Watchers at the headquarters on the foggy side of Gallifrey. She typed a message into her console. Doctor profoundly weakened by recent events. Current incarnation cannot have long to run. Also, fear unable to survive another regeneration. Recommend the department take action. She read the message thrice over. Would the advisor take her warning seriously? Would she pass it on to Control? If she did, would Control act? There were several tools at the department's disposal, but reluctance was their signature trait. It depended on how important the doctor's survival was held to be. She would have to wait and see. Or, more probably, wait and not see. The department was unlikely to inform her of any decision. Anyway, once she had pressed send, she would have done what it was in her power to do. She added one final line. His end must be prepared for. And so, two TARDISes, far from each other, hurtled through galaxies of space, spun through barriers of time, each searching for new resting places on fresh horizons.